Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am your host, Todd Dan Druff Wittellis. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on August 30th, 2022. The time right now is 8.38 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We have a free roll tonight, and this time it has not started yet. You have plenty of time to get in. Plenty of time. It's a $50 free roll on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. We are giving out 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. And you need a separate account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It does need to be validated, so you can't go register right now if you want to play tonight. But if you're already registered and validated, then you can play. And if you need to get validated, please message Belly Buster. That's Belly Buster on the forum with a space in between. Or you can message me, Dan Druff, with a space in between. And I can get you validated, but not tonight. After the show, I can validate you. Anyway, 25, 15, and 10 are the prizes. Thank you to Country978 for giving this week's $50. In fact, he gave 60 and we're holding over 10 for a future week. We have other prizes that we're also holding over for a future week. And it starts at 9 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. So you have 21 minutes before the start of the tournament, plus another 25 minutes for late registration. So a lot of time. You've got 45 minutes left, 46 minutes left, to get in and play if you wish to play. Not a huge prize pool, but it's still 50 bucks we're giving away and 25 for first. And the fields tend to be small because most of our listenership is not live. So if you want some easy money, then get on in there. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is how that breaks out. That is also our text phone number. You can text me anytime before the show, during the show, after the show, whenever your heart desires to text me, you can. Just remember that if you text me during the live show, I may read your text on the air unless you ask at the beginning of the text for me not to do so. But I will respond to most texts I get unless it seems like it doesn't need a response. So that's always a way you can reach me, 775-372-8355. You can also call, but not text, the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone which sits on top of Mount Charleston and forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. There was actually hail in Mount Charleston this past week. Not snow, but hail. It looked like snow, but still. Imagine hail in the Las Vegas area in the summer. But yeah, that happened. It's about 40 minutes away from Vegas by car. If you have a car, you can definitely get up to Mount Charleston and check it out. And uh, there is snow there in the winter, plenty of snow. We have a call to listen line. The call to listen line has been around for seven years, and it is something you just call up and listen. It does not require a smartphone. It does not require a data plan. It does not require an app. It does not require a computer or the internet. In fact, your connection does not even have to be good. You can be driving in the mountains and have one bar. It's fine. It'll work. And I promise you, I absolutely promise you, it will never buffer and never freeze. It just works. If you can make a phone call, then it will stream the show without ever pausing. It's a beautiful thing. 
The phone number, which changed a few weeks ago, so make sure you note the new one, 518-931-1189, 518-931-1189 is the call to listen line. It is free if you can call within the U.S. for free, unless you have T-Mobile, in which case it will cost you one cent per minute, which is something they keep. I get nothing of that. I wish they didn't charge, but there's nothing I can do. 518-931-1189. When we are not on the air, the system runs previous shows as if they're live. So the system selects one of our more than 400 shows in the archives and picks randomly and runs it all the way through. And then when that's done, it picks another and another and another till we come back live on the air. So you can listen to those reruns through the Call to Listen line. You can listen through the main radio tab where you can listen to the show live. And you can also listen via the TuneIn app, which has a live way to listen to the show, and that reminds me that we have a lot of ways to listen to the show in the archives. And let me give you all the options. iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Spotify, TuneIn, and remember TuneIn has two options. You can listen to the live show, which when we're not live is the reruns, or the regular archives where you just pick which show you listen to. Then we have the Bullhorn app, which also has its own call to listen line. So if you want to use the call to, li- call to listen line to pick the archive episode you want to listen to, you can use the Bullhorn app. Very interesting app. And Stitcher, we've been on there for the entire time. So that is now working again. And you can also download or play an MP3 file of the show, which I make available on the Radio Archives forum of PokerFraudAlert.com. You can find links to all these different apps and ways to listen by going to the radio tab on Poker Fraud Alert and scrolling down. Just click on the image of the way you want to listen to it. It'll take you there. You can even download the app through there. So a lot of ways to listen. If there's some other way you want to listen that I'm not providing yet, you can let me know. Maybe I can do it if it won't cost me too much money. We also have Amazon Alexa. You just have to say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert radio podcast. Make sure you say podcast at the end and say it slowly. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast, and it will play the last episode. And if you want to go to the episodes before that, just keep saying next until it gets to the one you want. And you can say previous to go back forward. It's backwards, but that's the way Jeff Bezos works. We're also on Audible, which is now presently owned by Amazon. So we've got so many listening options. But hey, I'll add more. I want to make it easy to listen to the show. I want to provide the show in a way that is very convenient for you to listen. I've always hated podcasts that make it difficult, where they want me to listen to the show their way. No, I want you to listen to it your way, the way you prefer. And that's why I provide many ways to do so. Because really, the show is for you. The show is for you to enjoy. It's not for me to hear myself talk. I can hear myself talk without ever putting on this equipment. So it really is for you guys. I'm not bullshitting about this. This is really how I feel. I try to make the show along the lines of what people want to hear, not just what I'd like to talk about. We have a chat room. If you're listening live, you can go into the chat room and you can comment there. You can chat with other people listening live. I will read your comments in there every so often. It does work on any device. So feel free to go in if you're listening live. Otherwise, don't bother because there will be nobody in there. I'm going to give you the agenda and then we will get going. The top story this week, 2022 WSOP main event winner Espen Jorstad from Norway is accused of welching 
on a 3% swap with another player during the main event to where the other player should be owed 300k if this allegation is true because Jorstad won $10 million in the main event, so 3% of that is 300k But is the allegation a true allegation or is it BS? This kind of reminds me of the Jamie Gold situation back in 2006, but there's a lot of differences as well. So that'll be our main story. This just broke pretty recently, I think yesterday. I got a Twitter debate started on Vanessa Selbst because the Women in Poker Hall of Fame is going to induct a new member. And Vanessa Selbst was suggested, among others, as a someone who is a potential inductee. And I said that I feel she should not be inducted. And that caused a lot of controversy because there's no question that Vanessa Selbst, in her day when she was playing very actively and when her style was working better, uh, that she was a very dominant player, not even just a dominant female player, a very dominant player, period. So how could she not be someone who would qualify for the Women in Poker Hall of Fame. I will explain and I will give you my take on the whole thing and what other people had to say back to me that didn't agree. And then you can decide for yourself. This one is not clear cut, by the way. I will tell you that even though I feel one way, I understand the other side. So this isn't one of these things where I think the other side is crazy. I just disagree with them. So I will tell you that whole debate and you can decide for yourself who you think is right. Speaking of women in poker... The WPA, the Women's Poker Association, has a trophy that they're giving out for an event that they are holding in Reno. But one little thing about the trophy. The trophy is actually a vagina. (laughs) It doesn't just sort of resemble a vagina. It is a vagina. So we'll talk about that. Jean-Robert Balland, who goes by Broke Living JRB on Twitter, and for a long time his gimmick is that he's always broke but lives like a millionaire. That's what he would tell you if you met him. That's what he does. And I actually witnessed him doing that. I witnessed him being broke and living like a millionaire. I've told this story on the show many times about the 2006 party poker cruise. Well, he probably is not broke after what happened on the Hustler Casino live stream where he had a historic win on there. He had the biggest win on a poker live stream ever. So we'll talk about Jean Robert's night on there on Hustler Casino Live. And I'll also tell you if I thought that he was broke prior to this. You've heard of blind versus blind in poker. Small blind up against the big blind with nobody else in the hand. What about blonde versus blonde? Well, we had that too. Because this week, Veronica Brill vented on Nick Vertucci's new podcast. And Nick Vertucci is one of the guys who owns Hustler Casino Live, but he has a new podcast and Veronica Brill is a co-host on there and she vented about how she simply does not like Vanessa Cade and told everybody why. So I'm going to play you what Veronica Brill had to say about her. And you guys know that Vanessa Cade and I have had some uh, minor issues over the last few years. So... You can probably guess whose side I'm on there. I will admit I'm a little bit biased, but I will give you my opinion anyway. I was considering doing another Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history segment this week, 
We had three weeks in a row where we did that after not doing it for a while. And I actually had a topic to do this week, but I think it's time to give it a break. Otherwise, you'll get burnt out on Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. So we're not going to do that this week. and We're going to bring back something else. Druffy Time Theater. I will rarely do both of those in one week, but we're bringing Druffy Time Theater back for this week. Some weeks we won't do either, but Druffy Time Theater, it's... This week, we're going to have the topic of life online in the 1980s, because online existed in the 1980s. You could go online, you could interact with other people, you could meet the opposite sex for dating, you could even meet the same sex for dating back in the 1980s online. It was very different than today. In fact, the way you even connected to everything was different than today, but it existed. And by the way, The internet itself existed in the 1980s, but again, was very different than today. So I will talk about online life in the 1980s, which I was part of for the second half of that decade. Obviously, I was quite young, but I will tell you what it was like online in the 1980s and how it was a forerunner to a lot of what we see today. I have an update on a previous story we did. This one just isn't getting enough attention. I I think this should be a very big story nationally, and for some reason nobody seems to care about this in the mainstream media, and not for political reasons, just as, I don't know, know, nobody cares, but what is possibly the biggest jewel heist in U.S. and maybe even world history, uh, nobody's talking about it, and there's a little coverage in the L.A. Times, that's about it, but we've talked about this before, this armored truck that was robbed in Fraser Park, California, which is, I think, about like 80 miles north of Los Angeles, something along those lines. And a massive jewelry heist. There's still a lot of questions about it, but I have some answers. There's some more information about it, so I will give you an update on that story and remind you of the details if you forgot the original story. A methy-looking woman went with a trucker into his cab and she had sex with him for $20. And this happened at a casino. It was a small casino and she and the trucker met in the casino and they agreed to do this transaction. And she somehow forgot her underwear in the truck and she came back for it and she came back for it and a lot more because when she came back, she robbed him. The only reason I'm talking about this is because it had a casino involvement. This happened in a casino parking lot, and they met in a casino. So I'll tell you which casino was involved, and I'll tell you the whole story. It's it's kind of weird. (laughs) That's all I can say. Luxor has a challenge where you get your food for free if you can eat a massive meal. So I will tell you what you have to eat. I'll tell you what happens if you fail the challenge, because there is a downside to this challenge. And we'll discuss whether or not this is doable. And since I am known for being able to eat a whole lot in one sitting, as you guys have seen when I've appeared on poker streams like Live at the Bike, then I will discuss whether I think I could do it. You know those underground poker rooms in New York? The movie Rounders was largely about those underground poker operations. We got to see Mike McDermott playing there against uh, Teddy KGB. Well... There's a real-life story about these underground gambling operations, and uh, the feds busted some of them, and in fact, they are mafia-run. 
Yes, the Italian mafia, not the Russian mafia or the Jewish mafia. No, 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 no. The actual Italian mafia. So we will talk about those busts. And finally, the Nevada Gaming Commission has put a violent pimp into the state's black book, which bans him automatically from all Nevada casinos. But I have a very recent update to that story. That was just going to be the story, but I have another update, which was given to me tonight just before radio, to that same story. So that'll be our last topic. We may have some bonus topics. Brandon may come on tonight and uh, do some bonus topics with us regarding Las Vegas stuff, as he likes to talk about. So that may or may not happen. We'll see if uh, Brandon can make it. And we'll see who else makes it. We're going to get going. So let's start off by talking about our main subject, our top story. And that is 2022 main event winner Espen Jorstad. And he is now facing an allegation that he welched on a 3% swap for the main event that he won. Now, I need to explain to you people what a swap is. Some of you know, but some of you probably don't know. I have done swaps before as well. In fact, even this year I did a small swap. A swap is where you agree with another player in the same event to swap action. So this reduces variance a little bit because if you have bad luck and either don't cash or don't cash as much as you thought you would end up cashing then you have some percentage of somebody else and they have that same percentage of you. And so whatever they cash, then you get that percentage of whatever they cash. So I will give you a real life example from 2022 for myself. And then you should understand it very well. I was playing the seniors event for the first time in my life because that was the first time I was old enough to be eligible for it since I'm 50 years old this year. And in this seniors event, during day two, I saw Victor Romdin in the hallway and said hello to him. Victor suggested to me that we do a swap after we both said what we had in chips and we were very close. I think I was slightly ahead of him in chips, but basically he just wanted to have this little swap for fun. And I said, sure, why not? You know, Victor's a good player and... Both of us were very uh, well-equipped to handle the seniors' event field. But, of course, there's a lot of luck in this whole thing. So this way, we each got a little piece of each other, so we weren't completely done when we were out if the other one was still in. Well, Victor ran better than me from that point, and while I still lasted a while, and I cashed uh, $4,112, finishing 263rd, Victor Romden cashed about 12K, finishing uh, 56th. However, I only had a very small piece of him. We only swapped 2%. So all I was entitled to here was 2% of this uh, 12K that he cashed and minus what I cashed. Because remember, uh, we're swapping. So it's basically the difference of what he cashed and what I cashed, since we both cashed, and that was when you all when you multiply it all out, he owed me like about $165. So okay, obviously not big money. I was happy to get it, but it was small money there. And he paid me, and yeah, that was that. That's the way these swaps go. 
But basically, we were trading 2% of our action with each other. And we did this because we were in relatively the same spot at that point in the event. Now, let's say on day one, Victor had a gigantic stack and I was short stacked. Then he would not make a 2% trade with me because that would be a terrible deal for him because the chance of me getting very deep in the event is very low and the chance of him getting deep is much higher because he's got a big stack and I've got a small one. But when people are relatively in the same spot, it doesn't matter what point of the tournament it is, beginning, middle, end, whatever, you're relatively in the same spot and you figure that uh, both of you have roughly the same skill. It doesn't matter if one person is a little better than the other as long as it's not just like a really good player and an okay player or a fish and a good player. Like as, as long as the players are both uh, fairly equivalent in skill and fairly equivalent in chips, then a swap tends to be pretty fair. And then the only question comes, uh, will you actually get paid if the other person cashes more than you do? And how much do you trust this person? So I had no issue with Victor. I was sure he would pay me even if he won the event and owed me a lot more than this $165. And he was sure I would pay him, which I definitely would have. So either way, there was no kind of issue there. But you do have to be careful when you swap with someone that you do trust them to pay you, especially in something like the main event where the top prize and even the top nine prizes are so big. At the seniors event, the biggest prize was a little bit short of 700K. Second place, 429. Third place, 323. So 2% of that, it's not chump change. But... It's nothing like 10 million. 2% of 10 million would be 200,000. So you have to really make sure you trust the person to be able to pay you hundreds of thousands of dollars if you swap in the main event. So swapping the main event is also a different story than swapping one of these other events where the top prize is in the six figures. And of course, it also matters what percentage you're swapping. If you're swapping a large percentage, then you have to worry about this again, even if the event is not huge. But... If it's a small percentage, really the only way you're really taking a big risk that you get stiffed is if it's uh, a very high payout in some of these spots in the event, like in the main. So let's get back to what happened here with Espen Jorstad. And by the way, in case you're wondering, I really don't swap the main event. I just don't like doing it. Now, maybe I could be talked into like a 1% swap with someone if we're both fairly deep into it and... You know, just something fun to root for if I bust and that person hasn't and vice versa. But it's not something I'm really big on. In fact, I kind of prefer not to. I would never swap very much in the main event. I haven't done it in a long time. I have done other swaps where just nobody ends up cashing. I've done swaps where me and somebody else are pathetic short stacks and we just say, okay, yeah, let's do a 1% swap here. And then neither of us cash, and that's that. I've had that a number of times, too. Also, sometimes swaps will take place before the event, which, of course, is also fair, because nobody has a lot of chips or few chips. You're all in the same spot prior to the event. It's really only about likelihood in caching and likelihood in running deep. So again, if you're relatively around the same skill level, then it's perfectly fine to do these swaps. And it does reduce variance a little bit when you do this. So let's get back now to Espen Jorstad in the main event. Espen Jorstad brought up a situation on Twitter that was not public prior to him bringing it up, but that was being discussed internally 
between him and a few other people and the person with the gripe. And as word started to leak out and people started to hassle him about the situation, he started to worry that it's going to become a big social media mess. So he decided to get ahead of it and bring this out to Twitter himself. So Espen wrote this on August 29th, 2022 at 11.41 a.m. Pacific time. Remember, he's Norwegian. I don't know if he's back in Norway right now, but his time zone is nine hours ahead of Pacific time zone. So if he's back in Norway, he probably wrote this in the evening over there. He wrote, the following post is a is regarding a WSOP main event swap dispute with community member Alex Theologis, a.k.a. Pondidi. Alex Theologis is another poker pro. He has about $2 million. Trader Risky, hello. What's happening, Jeff? So, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Uh, yet again, we, we have you most weeks here. Glad to have you. I know you were awake, but you were unavailable to come on. I know you were busy. This is what I heard. I heard you were at the men's group. Is that true? I was at, I was at my men's group. It was uh, kind of a deep session. Um, so, you know, have some energy to go for a little bit. <laughs> Okay, the trader is he done with his men's group, whatever they do there, and he's with us here at 9 o'clock, and happy to have him whenever it might be. Had you read anything about this stuff with uh, Espen, uh, your stat, and the swap? No, no, I haven't. Okay, well, it's interesting. It reminds me kind of of Jamie Gold, which we'll talk about shortly. Alex Theologis, who again has about $2 million in tournament caches, and about $1.8 million of that is at the World Series of Poker. He does have a bracelet, so this is not just some random. He claims that he did a swap with Espen Jorstad for 3% for the main event. Now, it wasn't said if he did it before the main or he did it during the main, but uh, he claims he had a swap of 3% with Espen Jorstad, who ended up winning the main event, which would mean if this is true that Espen would owe him $300,000. The problem is that Espen Jorstad insists that he does not have any recollection of such a swap ever being made. There's also nothing in writing indicating this was made. So basically, a guy just came to him, someone who is known in the community. This is not just a total random, not just like some unknown guy in the event just comes to Espen and says, hey, Espen, you know, congrats for that $10 million. Remember when we swapped 3%? Uh, can you send me 300000 please? It wasn't like that. Like, this is actually someone who is known in the community and doesn't have a history of shenanigans. But Espen says, I don't remember doing this. I have no idea what you're talking about. We didn't do this swap. And Alex Theologia said, oh, yes, we did. So I'm going to read you Espen's full statement about this because he put a link to a full statement he made. The following is a post regarding a swap dispute with community member Alex Theologis. After having a pretty uncomfortable experience a a couple of days ago, it became clear to me that this is a situation that needs addressing before the rumor mill gets going. I'll get back to the mentioned incident at the end of this text, 
But first I'll describe the specifics of the swap dispute. On the 13th of July, day seven of the main event, I got the following messages from Alex, and then he puts links to these uh, screenshots from Alex. So this is what uh, he shows here. That Alex says to him, looks like you did spin it. Uh, go, 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 take it down and save my summer. What a time for AA versus Ace King. Go, 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 you took the fake bracelet comment to heart. I don't know what he's referring to, but he's basically just rooting for him here in different ways. Now, the date is important here. The first comment looks like you did spin it was on the 13th of July. That was on day seven of the WSOP main event. So obviously, Espin was doing quite well at that point. He would ultimately go on to win. And so at the moment, he's just getting messages on the 13th and 14th rooting him on, which is not uncommon. I mean, even I got those messages when I ran deep in the two main events I ran deep. And I never even made it to day seven. Best I ever did was day six. So obviously, at that point, Espin is not alarmed by any of this. But then on July 15th, there came the bomb that was dropped. July 15th, he wrote, By the way, our swap is for 3%, right? I looked in our chat, but we didn't confirm in writing. So <laughs> imagine getting this when you're, uh, I think this is like day nine in the main event. I mean, he's now really, really deep. Now this is near, near the very end, and he's obviously going to cash huge no matter what. And Espen says back to him, yo, thanks, referring to the rooting for him. Hmm, don't have written down anything about us swapping. When slash where did we do this? So imagine getting this. Imagine this guy's rooting for you. He's like, oh, yeah. So our swap was 3%, right? You're like, huh? I, I didn't swap with you. Oh, no, 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 we did. So when did we do this? Where did we do this? So then what did Alex say back to him? What was his explanation for when this was? Well, Alex says back, fuck, I knew this would happen when I didn't write down in chat with my swaps. This is so awkward. I am sure we swapped 3% at some point. Maybe it was on our way or during dinner. Maybe at the win. I'm not sure at what point, but I've swapped with everyone, and I'm very confident we swapped. So if you don't remember swapping 3 and you haven't written it down, and then Espen said back, that's awkward indeed. I don't remember swapping with you, and I have all my swaps in a list here. And then he posted a list of his swaps, which he redacted here. And then Alex said back, fuck. <laughs> He went on to write, obviously, I know how it looks. I asked Pads, that's referring to Patrick Leonard, another European pro player, a couple of days ago about his opinion because I thought it might get awkward when we didn't confirm in chat. Now, re remember this line right here because it's a very important line. I asked Pads a couple of days ago about his opinion because I thought it might get awkward when we didn't confirm in chat. Uh, that's very, very important here when... Figuring out who's right and wrong in this, most likely. I honestly have no idea what to do or say. If you see it from my point of view, I remember swapping three and didn't write it in chat with none of my vocal swaps, so it's not just you. Obviously, I'm confident there isn't any angling or whatever from your side, but neither from mine. So then on the 17th of July, and, and at this point he hadn't gotten any responses yet for those prior two days from Espen. Espen's like scratching his head going, what the fuck, what do I do about this? Two days later, Alex writes after Espen won, hey, congratulations, amazing result and good timing too. Will you have time for a quick chat in the next couple of days? And Espen did not respond. 
two days later, July 19th, have some time to meet today? And then Espen finally answers him. It says, yo, yo, been AFK, meaning away from keyboard, from DMs the past couple of days. Sorry for the late response. I guess that's reasonable. I mean, the guy just won the main, so it makes sense that maybe he didn't want to sit around online. Maybe he wanted to celebrate with friends and family, whatever it is. I mean, I, I can forgive someone for being away from his DMs for a few days after winning. It's also possible he didn't want to spoil his great moment. Like, you just win $10 million in the main event... And you're on such a high, do you really want to start arguing with a guy who says you owe him 3% or would you rather just put this off for a few days? So whatever it is, it's fine that he didn't answer right away. So then Alex says back, uh, no worries, I can imagine. And then Espen said, yeah, I got time moving out of my apartment now. Then I'm free for the rest of, and then I don't get to see the rest of that. He didn't provide the rest of that conversation. So on July 22nd, we do get to see from Espen to Alex. He says, hey, dude, I finally had a bit of time to let things sink in and think. Given that I have no recollection of us swapping and you also don't remember when or where this happened, it's pretty clear to me there is no swap in place. Every time I swapped with someone verbally, I snap wrote it down in chat and my own document, and I have neither of those things with you. I'm certain I also would have done this with you, especially since we have never swapped in anything previously. I know this feels shitty for you since you thought we have a swap, but I really don't know what else to tell you. Mm. Alex said back, hey, I was on vacation, so didn't really want to deal with this and wanted to relax a bit. And the reason he said that is he took a week to answer. He wrote back on the 29th of July now. Not sure what to do or say at this point. I feel so betrayed and disappointed. I guess I never expected to experience something like this as I only swap with people I think are trustworthy and especially from you. Lesson learned, I guess. Not sure how you can sleep at night and be happy with yourself, but yeah. Ooh. So that's the last thing we see as far as the screenshots go. I'm not sure why between the 19th and the 22nd we're not shown what happened there, but I, I don't think it really is all that relevant. So then he writes in his statement, this is to the public now, Esmond's statement again, Alex also approached Pads, Patrick Leonard, around this time, saying that he had an awkward situation. He explained that he thought he had swapped with me, but could not find any evidence for the swap. Pads asked me about it, and I told him that I had no memory of ever swapping with Alex. By the time I was chip leader going into the final table, Alex had become certain that there was a swap in place. For what it's worth, I think this is probably a cognitive bias on his part, and not something based in ill intent. So he's basically saying here that he doesn't think Alex is scamming him. He thinks that Alex swapped with a bunch of people... And then when Espen was doing really well, subconsciously tricked himself into thinking that Espen was one of the people he swapped with. Yeah, maybe he swapped with another Norwegian guy and just kind of morphed it in his mind to think it was Espen because Espen was the one who was doing the best. And maybe he honestly believes this. This is Espen's feeling on the whole thing. So he goes on to write, We go on to meet at a hotel in Vegas and we talk about the situation. I explained to Alex that I have no recollection of swapping with him and that I have no records of it either. Whenever I swapped with people for the main or any other tournament, we always confirmed it in a chat. I also wrote it down in my own document to keep track. For Alex, I had neither. Here's the key points. Before the main event, we had only met twice, and we'd never swapped in anything else. I have no recollection of swapping with him. I did not have it written down. He did not have it written down. We had nothing about it in our chat. For every other swap during the WSOP, I immediately wrote it down in my own document and confirmed it in chats. I have to assume this is routine on his part, too. 
Alex did not remember when or where we had this swap convo or any other details about it. I strongly believe that it is crystal clear that there's no swap. However, if the community disagrees with me, I'm happy to go to arbitration with Ike, referring to Ike Haxton, Timex, referring to Mike McDonald, etc., if they believe the swap is on, and I will happily pay Alex the 3%. So basically, he wants to either just have this dropped or to go to arbitration with a respected longtime community member to decide who's right or wrong here. If anyone has comments, I'm happy to hear them, and I'll gladly answer any questions on the matter. I hold my own integrity in very high regard, which is why the situation is very frustrating for me. I'm sure anyone who knows me will attest to this. To go back to the situation I mentioned at the beginning, during a meetup game I was playing in Cyprus two nights ago, a clearly intoxicated Irish fellow came up to my table and pointed at me, saying, pay the man his money, pay the man his money, you know what I'm talking about, pay him his 3%. He proceeded to get right up to me and said stuff like, do you want to discuss it outside, etc., in a pretty aggro manner, basically hinting there would be violence if I didn't pay Alex. I calmly told him that I'm not sure what you've heard, and from who, but I don't owe Alex 3%. I explained that my conscience was clean, and at the end he said he believed me and walked off. For what it's worth, I have no reason to believe that Alex knows this Irish guy, and he probably just heard about the situation through the grapevine. I by no means think that Alex would want this situation to occur. Regardless, it was a very uncomfortable situation, having a drunk aggro guy in my face wanting to discuss it outside and questioning my integrity and credibility in a public setting. It is also not the first time I got approached with this, as I also got a DM on Instagram a couple weeks ago telling me to, quote, pay Alex his 3%. I'll give Alex the benefit of the doubt here. I don't think he's trying to tarnish my rep out of spite or anything like that. He probably mentioned it to a couple of close friends in confidentiality, and then someone he told started spreading it. In any case, it's important to me to tell my side of the story here, as people absolutely love gossiping about situations like this, and I don't want it to get out of hand. So that's his statement. Keep in mind, Alex Theologius did not bring this to social media. This was brought to social media just recently, yesterday, by Espen Jorstad. And this is about stuff that happened in July. Now we are almost in September. Right now is August 30th, and he posted about this on August 29th. So a full month passed from these texts I just read you, and a month and a half passed from the beginning of the texts I read you. So he really didn't want to have this out in public. But he saw that things were getting out and that people were starting to hassle him on Instagram and in card rooms. And he started to realize that if he doesn't bring this out, that eventually someone's going to post about it and say, Hey, Espen, how is it screwing people out of a 3% swap when you've just won $10 million? And so he figured he might as well get ahead of it, which is smart. But what really happened here? Is it possible? Is it probable that Alex just made all this up? Or is Espin's theory correct that Alex just kind of tricked himself into believing that he had 3% of Espin when he really did not? Or is it possible that they really did have a 3% swap and Espin forgot, especially with all the excitement in winning the main event, and maybe this was the one he happened to not write down, and then poor Alex is getting screwed at a 3%. Is that possible? Well, everything is possible here, but there's certain things that are more likely than others. Now, before I get to my analysis, there's some tweets I want to read you from Patrick Letter. Uh, There's some tweets I wanted to read you 
from Patrick Leonard, the one they called Pads. Patrick Leonard tweeted, also August 29th, awkward spot with two guys I know very well, referring to Espen and Alex. I think both would like as many opinions from people, especially those who swap regularly with people to give input, both looking to resolve it with as little drama as possible, but in the fairest way, it's big money we're talking about here. A guy named Lewis Spencer responded back, isn't the way to resolve it with the least drama to just get arbitration privately before posting this? Seems unnecessary for it to be public. If nothing's in writing and has been confirmed anywhere, then there's clearly no swap and any arbitration that's gotten is going to agree with that, in my opinion. So then Patrick Leonard said back and he quoted what Espen said. Quote, however, if the community disagrees with me, I'm happy to go to arbitration with Ike, Timex, etc. And if they believe the swap is on, I'll happily pay Alex the 3%. He says, Espen said this in his post. Problem is Alex could get free rolled this way. But yeah, Alex could maybe get free rolled. And Espen wants to get it out before lots of gossiping. He's getting verbally attacked, etc. Makes sense, I guess. That's kind of a weird take from Patrick. I don't think that Alex would be getting free-rolled by arbitration here. I think it's the other way around. If you're the one with no proof at all that this ever happened and the guy you're accusing of stiffing you is willing to go to arbitration and taking the chance that the arbitrator will rule against him and he could end up paying 300 k the one getting free-rolled here is actually Espen, not Alex. Because it looks like Alex is just not going to get paid. So, of course, Alex will say, sure, do the arbitration because... Otherwise, he just doesn't get paid. So the worst he could do in arbitration is still not get paid, which is neutral. The best he could get was get paid something, which is better than he's at right now. Whereas Espen, the best he could do would be pay nothing, which is where he's at right now. And the worst he could do would have to be pay 300k that he may not have actually owed. So I don't know why Patrick is saying that Alex could get free rolled this way. <laughs> what the hell? I've... Very confused by that take. And, and Patrick Leonard is usually a pretty reasonable and smart guy. It's a very weird thing for him to say. Josh Aryeh was not having it. Josh Aryeh, who has nothing to do with this, just commenting as a member of the community, as I am right now. Josh Aryeh said, there's nothing in writing. They have no history of swaps. They're not even friends. Arbitration in itself is an anti-free roll. There's more than 0% chance that Espen loses. Yes, exactly. 100% agree, Josh. So that was a weird take by Patrick. I'm glad... Aria said something. The community, as you might guess, is on Espen's side here because there is nothing in writing and because Alex can't even recall when they did the swap. Now, even if he could recall, that doesn't mean it happened. He could have said, oh, yeah, we did it at dinner on dinner break from day two, or we did it when we were playing the wind together right before the event. Like, he can say that, and Espen could say, uh, nope, we never did that, and then we'd be in the same spot. But Alex can't even remember. So let's now go back to the part that I told you to remember. But if you forgot, if your memory is a little bit short, then I'm going to read it to you again. Alex wrote on July 15th, Obviously, I know how it looks. I asked Pads a couple of days ago about his opinion because I thought it might get awkward when we didn't confirm in chat. Let's stop right there. He went to Patrick Leonard and asked for his opinion on the situation with not having any proof 
that he had a swap with Espin. He did this before he went to Espin and said, hey, we really have 3%, right? That's kind of weird. Because why would you have to go ask a third party about what to do if the other person denies you have a swap when that person hasn't denied it yet? What would make him think that Espin would screw him? So if he really thought that Espin knew they had this swap and they just happened to not get it down in writing, you would think first you would go to Espin and say, hey, uh, our 3% swap, we somehow never got it in writing, but uh, you know, we really have that, right? Like you think you do that, and then when Espin says, uh, no, we don't, then you go to Pads, who's a mutual friend of yours, and say, hey, Pads, I know you're friends with Espin. Uh, can you help me out here? At that point, it makes sense. But to go to Pads first is kind of strange. It's like he knew that Espin was going to say, no, we don't have this. Let's go back to my little swap with Victor Romden. Let's say I won the seniors event. And let's say, well, not just let's say, I didn't have anything in writing with Victor. So let's say I won the seniors event. Do you think that Victor Romden would go to a mutual friend of ours and say, what do we do? Todd's about to win a 700K event and I have 2% of him and we don't have anything in writing, what should I do? You think he'd do that, or you think he would go to me first and say, hey, you know, just confirming we have 2%, or maybe even not go to me at all, and then just expect me to honor it? Either one of those would be fine. But if he were to go to a third party and already say that he thinks I'm going to not give him the 2% because we have nothing in writing, that would be weird. And he didn't do anything like this, and of course I didn't win the seniors event or even come close. He got deeper than I did. And Speaking of that, with him getting deeper than I did, he got 56th place, so he wasn't that far from winning. I also would not have gone to anyone about him and said, hey, uh, can you make sure that Victor is actually going to pay me because we have nothing in writing? Like, I wouldn't do this. It wouldn't make sense, even though it's not as much money, admittedly. It's much less money, but still, like, you're not going to do that unless you've already been turned down, unless you've already been told that there's a problem. Here he's actually foreseeing there's going to be a problem, which is a little bit weird. It's fine to confirm it. It's fine to say, oh shit, we never got it in writing and he's really deep. Better make sure that he remembers this. That's fine. What's not fine is to already go to his mutual friend and say, hey, I think I'm going to get fucked here. So if you go to the mutual friend first, that already sounds like that you know that either there wasn't a swap or there may not have been. It is possible that Alex swapped with a bunch of people and then wasn't sure if one of them was Espen. And then he kind of went from wasn't sure to, oh, yeah, I think it was, to, oh, no, it probably was, to, oh, yeah, I definitely think it was. But still in the back of his mind, like, oh, shit, I'm not 100% sure, so I better immediately prepare for what happens if Espen says, no, we didn't. So it's very suspicious. There's another line in there that makes this whole thing questionable. And that is when Alex talks about how he thought this was going to save his summer. Well, that means Alex did not do very well at the 2022 World Series of Poker and perhaps lost a lot of money. When someone talks about saving their summer at the end of the World Series, what they're referring to is hitting a big score to erase the losses you've had. And usually they're not referring to being a little bit below even. They mean the summer has gone very poorly and they entered a lot more in buy-ins than they cashed 
and or lost a lot in cash games to where basically the summer was a disaster financially. In fact, there's even a Summer Saver event at the World Series of Poker near the very end of the series, which builds upon that whole concept that you play this as a last shot to maybe hit something big and save the summer. So here he was telling Espen that he thought this might save his summer. Well, that makes the motivation much more likely for him to either completely make this up or trick himself into believing this occurred. Yeah, have this like beer goggles on where he's, you know, oh, is anybody on that continent? Oh, yes, it was him. Yeah. Like he could get his brain to literally play tricks on him. Yes, and that does happen. But that- I mean, he, and they hadn't even gone to dinner. Or, I mean, he has, he's not even representing any type of scenario where they were in the same building. That's my second point is that Alex has no memory of exactly where they were when they did this, which is strange because if he remembers it was done, then he should have some memory of the circumstances under which it was done, especially because he's seeing at the time that Espen is getting very deep. So you would think it would be ingrained in your memory. Oh, wow, I'm so glad that while we were at the win, I did that swap. I'm so glad we did this swap at dinner. Whatever it might be, you'll have a memory at that point, a very vivid memory of that point, of where you were when you made that swap because it becomes very significant. It's going to be a swap which could end up netting you $300,000. So that is something that etches into your brain Whereas if you do a swap with someone and uh, neither of you cash, then it's something you can forget very quickly where you were. But soon after making the swap, if the person you swapped with is running very deep and has a ton of chips, then you're not going to forget the details of the swap in the first place. And I would think if he remembers there was a swap, he would remember the details of when it occurred. So I... I'm kind of split whether this is a guy who's just very desperate to try to get a bankroll back after losing the remainder of his bankroll over the summer, and this is his plan to do it, and that he just tricked himself into believing he had this swap because he desperately needed it, and now he believes his own BS, essentially, that he wasn't trying to lie at any point, but that he invented this in his mind because it's something advantageous for him and now really believes the whole thing is true and feels like he got screwed. So it is possible that this is not an intentional way to scam or to get money that he is not owed, but that he just believes something incorrect. What I think is highly unlikely is that Espen really did the swap and for some reason he didn't note down this one particular swap when he's noted down every other swap and oh what a coincidence Alex didn't note it down anywhere either so there's no record of it on either side even though Espen says that he carefully notes down each swap and actually showed an example of the swaps he had noted down and that Alex was not in there so apparently Espen keeps very good records on these things better than most poker players and there's one other thing to think about Espen is not someone who's hurting for money Espen just won $10 million, minus whatever swaps he had. But he, he won a lot of money here. Whatever he ended up taking home here. And by the way, they're not paying taxes on this in Norway. So he's keeping all of it. So Espen just won 
10 million dollars minus these swaps and he's riding high and he has a very good reputation this is someone who's respected in the community never had a scandal before is generally liked by everybody do you think he would choose to stiff one person who swapped with him over 300k 300k isn't chump change but it's not like if espen pays this 300k that he's going to be broke or he's going to be very much crippled with what he could do poker wise it's not going to do that at all it's not going to affect his life at all other than just having 300k left in his now pretty big bankroll so i don't think that this would even be worth it for espen to create this scandal for himself by screwing Alex out of this. And I don't think Alex believes that Espen is intentionally fucking him out of money. He just thinks that Espen forgot and now is refusing to consider that he forgot and just isn't paying him. So as far as Alex sees it, hey, I'm just not going to get the 300000 I'm owed because you don't remember our swap and that's kind of messed up. And Espen's saying, well, I don't remember it and what can I do? Anyone can say they had a swap with me. I mean, I could go to Espen right now and say, hey, Espen, you know, we both played the main. Remember during break in the bathroom, we were standing in urinals next to each other, and as we were both pissing, I said, hey, uh, I don't really know you, but you're like a Norwegian player who's over here all the way from Norway, so you must be good. How about we swap 3%? And Espen says, yeah, 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 let's do it, let's do it. So we swap. And then I come to Espen and say, hey, remember our 3% swap? I didn't cash, but you won, so where's my 300K? I, I, I could do that right now. And he could not prove that we didn't have this conversation in the bathroom. Or I could even go further and say, I don't remember when we agreed, but I know we agreed. So that's why these things have to be noted down somewhere. Because then you are counting on the person to have a memory of it. And he does not. And the fact that Neither person has a memory that Alex can't even describe where and when the swap occurred. And the weird thing with him going to Patrick Leonard before Espen even said that he didn't remember. Almost like he was expecting Espen wouldn't remember. That's very, very strange. Is he saying they were even together anywhere? Because they're not friends, right? I mean, did they go out to dinner six times in the group? He said something about... something quote during dinner which could have been during a dinner break or it may have been at the win when they were playing some other tournament where they saw each other but i guess they'd only met uh, twice before and weren't friends so that's kind of weird like i mean that's shady and just think of like if you're in a tournament on dinner you're gonna be in a place where the only two of you are talking there's no one else around to verify that's true too that's yeah why was nobody else there that's a good point saying, like that's a good point. That nobody's come forward saying that they heard this. Well, he's saying he doesn't remember where it was even done. So he, he can't even say, oh, it was a dinner at such and such place. He could say, okay, well, there were five other people there. Let's ask them. He's, I don't remember. He says, maybe it was on our way or during dinner. But I don't know if he means during dinner break or that they were at dinner together. And maybe at the win. But what Espen does say is that the two of them have only met twice. And that they never swapped before in anything else and that they're not friends. So I don't know what this is, but I'd be shocked if this was a real swap. And I would be shocked if any arbitration were to rule anything but that this is a non-swap. Quickly, I want to talk about the two people who are suggested by Espen to do this. He suggested Ike Haxton 
Mike, Timex, McDonald, or quote, etc. So it doesn't have to be one of these two. He's saying that these are two that he would think would be fine. I think Timex, Mike McDonald, would be a horrible choice because while Timex is a very smart guy and he's very, very good at getting the best of it in prop bets, he has an amazing talent at that, and he has a very good sense for business. There's a lot of positives about Timex, but one thing I will not say about him is that he is mature. Timex is immature, and he'll sometimes put out these really weird and bizarre takes on Twitter that you're almost wondering if he's trolling, but he's not. He has really weird takes and opinions on things, and I've also seen where he just uh, acts very immature in any kind of uh, controversy that he's in, such as the one he had with Terrence Chan, where Terrence was in the wrong too, by the way, but uh, the way Timex behaved was, uh, was in a very immature fashion, and I've seen this before too. So that's the last guy I wouldn't want arbitrating because you never know what you're going to get from him. Ike Haxton would be a better pick than Timex, but even I've seen from him sometimes that he goes off in the weeds with his opinions that are just kind of weird. So I really wouldn't want either of them, but if I had to pick them, 100% I'd pick Ike over Timex. But really, if you want someone to arbitrate here, you need someone who is mature, someone who is not known to have weird or bizarre takes on Twitter. And just someone who you think would just logically look at this and say, okay, yes, okay, no. Like, for example, Josh Aurier, who responded here, if they said Josh Aurier is going to be the one arbitrating, I'd say, yeah, that's a good choice. Like, Josh Aurier would be someone who I would think would be great to arbitrate this. But not uh, definitely not Timex. Not a big part of this, but just wanted to get that out. I don't think this is going to affect the reputation of Espen. Now, let's go back to a similar circumstance, but one that also had many differences, and that was 16 years ago, Jamie Gold. Jamie Gold was a nobody poker player who played low stakes at the Hustler, and he was a very minor Hollywood agent who just would uh, scrape by with whatever he could get. And he somehow hustled up a deal with Bodog, which is now Bovada in the U.S., but he hustled a deal with uh, Bodog that he would get a main event seat for him and his agent partner, Crispin Lizer in the main event, that they both get a main event seat if they got a celebrity to play the main event and wear Bodog gear. So Jamie, who was not exactly a major Hollywood agent and had very little influence in Hollywood, and same with Crispin, to be honest, they searched and searched and searched, and even though it was a free main event buy-in for this person, they couldn't find anyone until they finally found Matthew Lillard. You know, Shaggy in the live-action Scooby-Doo movie? They found Matthew Lillard, who was willing to do it. So they brought Matthew Lillard to Bodog, and Bodog's like, oh my god, that's our celebrity? This is almost embarrassing. Like, this, this guy's a nobody. We're not giving both of you a main event seat and also Matthew Lillard the main event seat. Like, we'll take him, fine. Matthew Lillard, we'll buy him in. He can wear the Bodog gear. But that's not worth that much to us, to be honest. So, guys, we will give you one main event seat between the two of you, and one of you can decide to play. So that's what Bodog did. Well, at that point, of course, Crispin and Jamie, both of whom played poker, but neither of whom were pros or uh, known as great players, they had a discussion. Okay, who should play with the seat? Now, they both jointly owned the seat because this was given to them for their joint work in getting Matthew Lillard to play in the event wearing Bodog gear. 
And obviously only one of them could play the event physically. So Jamie convinced Crispin that he was the better of the two players and that he should play, but they're going to split it down the middle. But they, they have the best chance of cashing if he plays. So Crispin said, okay, you probably are the better player, and Jamie played. Well, good news. Jamie did very well and won the whole damn thing. He won the biggest main event prize to date, even still today. That's the biggest main event prize ever, $12 million. So great. However, they did not have anything in writing about this. Sound familiar? Except this was a real deal. Unlike the thing with Alex, which is very doubtful, this was a real agreement they had. But they had nothing in writing. And Jamie Gold is kind of a slimy person. And Crispin Lizer said, uh-oh. He saw Jamie Gold dominating and it's a chip lead for a long time. And he goes, oh, shit. What if I get screwed out of this? What if Jamie wins and doesn't want to give me $6 million? Oh, no, this is a disaster. So he started frantically calling Jamie during the event. Started frank- frantically calling, leaving messages. Remember, texting wasn't that big in 2006. So I don't know if text messages were really involved, but they weren't really much of a part of this. But he was frantically calling him. Well, Jamie was getting very annoyed. He's trying to play the main event here. He's trying to keep his chip lead. And he's getting call after call after call, which he keeps sending to voicemail. But he's, he, he just gets driven crazy by this. So finally, Jamie angrily picks up the phone, dials Crispin. Crispin doesn't answer for whatever reason. And he leaves a voicemail to Crispin. And he says, will you stop fucking calling me? I'm tired of this. I'm trying to play here. You're disturbing me. You're bothering me. Yes, you're going to get your half. You're going to get 50%. Now leave me alone. Well, that got to be known later as the $6 million voicemail. Because what happened was when Jamie won, he denied that he ever had such an agreement with Crispin Lizer. And he's a Crispin Lizer just making this up. That there was no such agreement. And that he did the work to get Matthew Lillard. That Crispin was never part of this, and Crispin is just trying to get $6 million out of him after the fact. And then Crispin sued him and actually got an injunction to where half the prize was held up. So Caesars was not releasing the half that was in question. Initially, Jamie Gold was only paid $6 million, and the other $6 million was held up. So this could be adjudicated in court. And then the voicemail was presented. And Jamie Gold said, uh-oh, this is not going to look good for me in court. <laughs> right there in his voice, and it is fully admissible because Jamie Gold knew he was being recorded. He left a voicemail message, and once you leave a voicemail message, you are consenting to be recorded because you are expected to know that you are being recorded when you are leaving a voicemail, obviously. So fully admissible in court, him admitting right there, you'll get your 50%, leave me alone. That's pretty much it. He's done. So this was settled out of court for what I have to imagine was very close to the full amount. We never found out how much, but it's got to be very close because I have to imagine that there's almost no chance that Crispin was going to lose this. And, Drop, let me ask you a quick question. If if uh, Crispin lived in the country that you said the winner was from, where he didn't have to pay taxes, can you have them issue half to somebody else? Oh, yeah. See, the tax situation is kind of weird here with the World Series of Poker. If you're in the U.S., they never withhold taxes. They just pay you the full amount and then issue a tax form to you and inform the IRS of what you won. And then the IRS is going to expect the proper taxes to be paid by you when tax day comes in April of the following year. And if you don't pay the IRS, it's between you and the IRS and you know, it goes from there. So that's how they do it for U.S. citizens. Now, anyone who is not a U.S. citizen, if there is a tax treaty 
between the U.S. and this country, then whatever taxes need to be taken out, they will take out, and uh, and that's that. Otherwise, uh, the World Series of Poker holds 30%, and then you have to get it back from them through some process, which is a pain in the ass. But the bottom line is when it's all said and done, if your country is not taxing you at all, you, you can eventually get it back. It's just kind of a pain, but obviously he went and did this. From what I last saw, you don't get... There's no tax liability for these type of winnings. The withholding of the money here in the Gold and Lizer case, even if one of them was not a U.S. resident, wouldn't have mattered. It was the bottom line. One was claiming he was owed half, and the other one is claiming he wasn't owed half. And Caesars decided to... I don't know if they decided to or if they were given an injunction to where they had to hold half. Let me, uh, I have a call coming in. We'll see if this has to do with the topic. A caller, you're on the air. Uh, yeah. As far as that swap, I mean, there's zero percent chance there's a swap. I mean, he, I mean, it's a ninety-nine point nine nine percent chance he's taking a shot. I mean, this, I mean, this is the, the easiest slam dunk of all time. On the one in a trillion chance there was a swap, uh, there was a swap. He just has to take the loss for the sake of decency. What are the odds? The one guy in all the world he swaps with that nobody has a single memory of anything happening. And he's the guy that wins. So, like, you, like I guess O.J. Simpson, there's a there's a greater than zero chance he might not be guilty, but you just got to take one for I mean, it's over. But it, it's a good story. This guy should be forced to put up any real sum of money for an arbitration and let that Epson guy put up 300 against this guy's 10,000. If there's one out of 100 legit arbitrators in the world that rules if this guy gets 10 cents, he should get the 300. <laughs> 0. 0.0, but you told the story perfectly. Shame on everybody. Shame on Epson for even saying that he doesn't think this guy's taking a shot. This guy's taking a huge fucking shot. First of all, if he had any percent at all, there would be a record, not necessarily with Epson, but that's true as well, but there would be a record of him chatting with one of his friends during the tournament saying, oh, I got 3% with Epson. There's no way you'd hold that back. That's a you good point. That's, that's a great point. I didn't think of that, but that's a great point. That well, How come this guy wasn't bragging about this to everybody he knew that he had this 3%? I mean, 100%. Yeah. You'd be on the edge of your seat sweating blood the whole time. You'd contact everybody and you'd say, get me up here, I got a big shot. And there's no record of that, obviously. I mean, this is the lamest shot of all time. <laughs> By the way, who are you? You haven't I mean, identified unless, yourself. Unless he, unless he I'm the, the big, the big dog. I, I'm a listener. I'm not a poster. I'm a listener. I'm, I'm the big dog. The big dog, okay. And what were you saying, Trader Ruski? Yeah, but I mean... No, I was just saying, he probably figured, like, fuck, maybe he'll just give me 20 grand to shut up and start a whole email campaign. But that is a I mean, good point. I mean, this guy would have been shitting his pants at the final table. Yeah, it's true hey, that listen, the fact that I it try, wasn't said to anybody is to very suspicious. Some of these, I, occasionally, I try to tackle these murder mysteries on YouTube and shit, and there's some real twisters out there where, like, who is it? There's three people. One of them killed this person. Who is it? And you can't even figure it out. Like, even the John Benet Ramsey, it's like, did the dad do it? Did the mother do it? Did Burke Ramsey do it? These things require brain power to figure out. And you still are, you still would not bet your life. I'd bet my life that O.J. Simpson's guilty and you can shoot me dead for 10000 if he's not. And I'll bet my life that there's zero swap ever. 
for ten thousand, and I'm going to take a loss if I'm wrong, and they can just they can light me up right now for ten thousand. <laughs> my whole life, there's no fucking swap. I mean, there's there's nothing. I'd love to be wrong on this. I'd love to be fucking wrong just so I could never be certain of anything in my life. There's no fucking swap. He told a brilliant story. Epson should have never even given the guy the out. He's just probably just trying to like tell the guy to buzz off. Like, oh, I don't think he's taking a shot at me. Everyone on planet Earth that's not involved in this thinks he's taking a big fucking shot and shame on this guy. First of all, if you're going to get denied 300000 and he, obviously he has no memory of telling him, like, when did we swap and all that stuff, but you'd be reacting with rage if you even believed it for a second that you had a swap. Even if you convinced yourself that you did and you didn't, you'd be reacting with rage. And didn't he take, like, a week off before he even responded? I know Epson took a few days off. But then this uh, Alice guy take like yeah a week at off the end after yes after after Espen told him on July twenty second sorry it's not happening I'm not paying you anything he took a week to respond after that on the 29th. yeah I mean there's up to three hundred fucking thousand I'm on my phone twenty four seven till it gets resolved or not and it's the way he said oh fuck when he originally got denied that's the lamest I'm taking it I mean it's just a, it's a pathetic fucking shot the only thing he did right was he put the little thing in there, which is wrong anyways, like, oh, save my summer. And he didn't even go back to that to say, hey, look, when I sent you that text, it said, uh, save my summer, see? And so, like, that was the only thing out of a, that even points to anything, and it's just such a weak, it was his attempt subconsciously to put something in chat to make it look like he was in Allah, but it was just, it's lame, and whoever that guy is is a fucking loser. And guys like that are the, are the biggest, they should be shunned as much as cheaters because the total fucking free roll. His buddy who's in between, the guy that Aria put in his place with Aria made the right comment about it, Josh Aria said, the original guy saying the free roll, you got it all wrong, like you said, you were right on that. It's a total fucking free roll. Put, let this guy put up 10000 and Epson should double it to 600000 for this guy's fucking ten. And if there's one guy out of 10 legit operators that awards this guy 10 cents, Epson should be confident that it ain't happening. I'd be willing to put 600 up against 50,000 against this guy. For a real, you need one out of 10 arbiters to rule in your favor, and you get 600. But you got to put up 50. Yeah. The 50 ain't ever coming up. Great story, though, man. Great story. I enjoy your show, and oh. I'm going to keep rocking and rolling. I'm on the highway tonight, so this is great listening to you. Okay, well, thank you. Good night, big dog. Hey, All right, take care. If he had 600K coming, he could easily bribe one of the arbitrators. That well, you had to find right. arbitrators who had, can't be bribed there. So uh, we have somebody else right. I, I, hope, uh, could, I hope couldn't be bribed. Uh, Calwatt, hello. Welcome to the show. Hey, Drew, if you ever walk into a room and people are talking and you have no idea what the fuck they're talking about? I was wondering if you knew what this is about. <laughs> this, this was about the whole... Main event winner of this year, Espen Jorstad, being accused of stiffing a guy on a swap, but the guy on the other end has no record and no proof that it occurred and can't even say where he was and when the swap was made or when the swap was made. Just He remembers when it was made and wants to be paid 300000 That's basically what's yeah, happening. Good, good fucking luck with that. <laughs> So, and it was Espen himself who brought it out because he started getting confronted by weirdos in the poker room and stuff about stiffing someone out of three k or three hundred k. So he finally said, "I got to bring this out on social media myself." And I think that was the right move because uh, if it starts to leak out, then you want the correct story out there and you want the other side to look like the fool that they are. 
So yeah, I'm totally on Espen's side. Everybody reasonable is on Espen's side here. And I, and shame on Patrick Leonard for even making this look like it's even semi-valid. I mean, I, I understand he's friends with both guys. But you know what? When you're friends with both guys in a dispute, the best thing to do is stay out of it. Or if you don't want to stay out of it, do it all privately. Don't ever go publicly and get involved where you you have two friends in a dispute, especially where it's very clear that one is right and one's wrong. Because then it, even if you come off kind of in the middle there, you kind of look like you're screwing over the one that was right. That's why you really just don't want to comment in these situations if you're good friends with both people. So I can comment because I'm not friends with either of them. I don't know either of them. I know of them, but I don't know them. So I can say all I want, and I'm totally neutral, and I don't have to worry about what they think. But when you're good friends with them both, you don't say anything. So that's how we got this idiotic thing from Patrick Leonard that Alice could get free-rolled here. What is he talking about? Well, it sure sounds like bullshit to me. Exactly. And that Patrick guy, what's happening, Calot? If that was the Patrick, like if it was the three of us, and then I came to you drop, I don't know if Calot's going to pay me. The first thing out of your mouth would be, well, did you even talk to him about it or ask him? Mm-hmm. Hey, wait, 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 hold on. What the fuck, Trader Ruski? Why are you throwing me under the bus? Huh? <laughs> I pay my debts. How dare you? What the he fuck? more than pays his debts. He, he pays for all of our meals when we go out. Exactly. <laughs> Great. Now I'm going to be dragged through the mud. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right. Well, let's let's uh, let's move to a different topic that the most people start confronting you. Let's move to a different topic that Calwatt can't understand because it's uh, a new topic. So we'll start from the beginning, and that is about Vanessa Selbst. And this is a topic that involves me a lot because I'm the one who started the debate on Twitter about this whole matter. Otherwise, I don't think there would be any discussion of this. This was all me, and then a lot of people got involved. And I'll be honest, I took a lot of heat over this, but sometimes that's what happens on Twitter. You know, sometimes I will state my opinion on something, and I will take heat, and that's the way it goes. And I knew when I wrote what I did that I would take heat, but you know what? That's okay. So here's the story, is that Vanessa Selbst was mentioned as someone who would be a... uh, potential inductee to the Women in Poker Hall of Fame. And that's the thing I commented on. The Women in Poker Hall of Fame is a hall of fame, as it sounds, that is only open to women. It's a hall of fame to celebrate women in poker. Now, poker is different. Druff, Druff, is this going to be like that story where they, you know, there was some girl that beat other girls in races and... No, They're no, every, everybody involved the, here, no. The genitals to make, you're not going there, are you? No, no, everybody involved here really has a vagina. Even Vanessa okay. Selbst, which... Uh, I, you I, I, that? I haven't seen, but I will say that uh, despite her uh, masculine mannerisms, I do believe that Vanessa Selbst was born with a vagina and still has one. Right. But uh, this has nothing to do with is, anyone... Is the vagina germane to the conversation at all? No, or? her vagina has nothing to do with this, thankfully. Okay, But uh, right, Vanessa Selbst is the topic here, and there's nothing involving anyone who's trans, to my knowledge, but the Women in Poker Hall of Fame has been around for some time, and it is to celebrate women in poker, simply because there aren't very many women in poker, because poker is a very male pursuit. It's it's very male-dominated. Like, the main event of the World Series of Poker has, like, 97% males. Some of the other events have... Fewer males than that, but 
every single event, except for the ladies' event, of course, has an overwhelming majority of males. So the Women in Poker Hall of Fame is there to honor women who are notable in poker and have done things in poker to be worth being celebrated. And sometimes it's very good poker players. Sometimes it's uh, women who've done a lot for poker behind the scenes. And that's fine. I understand that. Yeah, it's like it's like trying to find a male kindergarten teacher. <laughs> yeah. So, so it is important to note that unlike the aforementioned situation by Calwatt where you have men competing as women in certain athletic events, which is very unfair, doesn't matter if the male feels like he's female, he still has a big advantage. Uh, in poker, this doesn't exist because poker is not a physical game. So women have just as much opportunity to be great at poker as men do. Whereas in athletics, women have a much lower ceiling as far as how good they can get because of physical differences in their bodies. So while some female athletes can be much better at the average at, at, at the sport than an average male would be, they're not going to compare to the top males in these sports because the top males just have a much higher ceiling and will always be much better than the top females just due to physical differences in the bodies between males and females. In poker, we don't have that. Poker the sky is the limit for women, just as it is for men. So on one hand, you should say, well, then why should we even need a Women in Poker Hall of Fame? Why not just have women compete to be in the regular Poker Hall of Fame? Because they're on equal ground. And the answer to that is just because there aren't that many women. There are so few women in poker that there just aren't going to be that many that will rise up to be as good as the very, very top players in poker that are male because there's way more males to have the top few be really excellent. Of course, the more women you have, the larger number of female top poker players there will be that will compete just as well with males. So, and to get more women involved, it's you know I see it as a as a positive thing probably you know to try and get more women involved and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. So so this is an attempt to honor women who have distinguished themselves in poker and as Cal Watts said have women see this and be encouraged to start playing or to play more and uh, and also just the women who have played and, and are dealing with these very male heavy fields that have uh, been successful to honor them and to not have to compare them to their male counterparts and so that's, that's all fine I have no issue with something like the Women in Poker Hall of Fame existing that's, that's totally fine that this thing is there so Yeah, and think think about it, Druff. If you're a poker professional, you don't care who's male, female, whatever. You want as many people coming in as possible, right? Yes. You want the, the as me, as many, you know, fish or rec players or whatever coming into the game as, as absolutely possible. I've never understood people that are I don't know, like not against it, but like, you know, fighting against uh doing whatever it takes to get women involved because it's just it's more money for you, you know? I mean Yes. So, the Women in Poker Hall of Fame, the selection process begins with fan voting. So, fans can select their own nominee, except they do have to meet certain criteria. They have to be either a poker player or industry figure in poker for at least 10 years. They have to be 35 years old or above. I think in the regular Hall of Fame it's 40, but whatever. And they have to have, quote, contributed to the world of poker in some significant way. And they 
must be, quote, a proponent of women in poker. And by the way, these are important, which you got to remember these, this criteria when we get to the controversy. So you can go nominate any woman in poker that meets these requirements, even if it's not someone really well-known or prominent, as long as they meet these requirements. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to win, but you can nominate them. And then there are some candidates which are going to be in there already that don't need nomination. So Kristen Foxen, formerly known as Kristen Bicknell, she's one of them. Vanessa Selfst is one of them. There's a few others, but it, it doesn't really matter for this story here. The current members of the Women in Poker Hall of Fame are as follows. Billy Brown... Debbie Burkhead, Barbara Enright, June Field, Jan Fisher, Christy Gazes, Deborah Giardina, Jennifer Harmon, Margie Heinz, Maria Ho, Susie Isaacs, Linda Johnson, Kathy Liebert, J.J. Liu, Victoria Corin, Kathy Raymond, Lupe Soto, Cindy Violet, Marsha Wagner, and Phyllis Caro, also known as Phyllis Yazbek. So, I recognize seven out of those names. There's a few. I, yeah, I, there's some I don't recognize. I, I recognize more than seven, but I don't know all of them. There were, uh, looks like, 15 total. I probably recognize like 10. But anyway, that's who's in there presently. The most recent inductees were Maria Ho and Lupe Soto. And obviously, uh, Kristen Bicknell, or Kristen Foxen, I guess is her name now. She's someone I feel is, is very worthy regardless of the way you think of her COVID takes that were controversial. Uh, She is an excellent player. She is one of the females presently who does compete very well with the top males in the game, at least in tournament poker. She's she's an excellent tournament player, there's no question. And uh, Vanessa Selbst, she is someone whose style didn't really translate very well over the years. So this is someone who in the 2000s and early 2010s had an aggressive style that worked very well against the game of that day. But as the game evolved and people had ways to counter styles like that, uh, she started to become too spewy and brick a lot of tournaments for that way and chunk off big stacks that way. And uh, there were a number of kind of like chip meltdowns she had. And after Poker Stars parted ways with her as a sponsored pro, they were probably putting her in a lot of events. Once she had to pay her own way to the events, uh, she, quote, retired shortly thereafter and now only plays sporadically. Now, she has a regular job at this point, which we've discussed before, working for this uh, Wall Street firm. And I, I still don't quite understand what she brings to the table there, but whatever. During her day as a dominant poker player, and not just a dominant female player, but just a dominant player, she was very, very prominent in the tournament poker scene. And she was someone who won a lot, someone that a lot of people feared playing against. And she definitely stacked up well against all players of that day, not just female players. In fact, many have said that at least up until Kristen Bicknell Foxen came on the scene, that up until Bicknell showed up, that uh, Vanessa Selps was the best female tournament player of all time, even if her game didn't translate well as the years wore on, but that she was dominant for a long enough stretch to where you can still give her that title. And that's a reasonable argument. 
even though I don't like Vanessa personally, and I'll tell you shortly why I don't, but I will concede that during the period of time when she was very dominant in the tournament scene, she was doing extremely well, and she had a style that worked very well, and she had a lot of respect from her peers regarding her poker play. There's no question about that. There's no question that Vanessa Selbst has a lot better results than a number of these other female poker players that are in the present Women in Poker Hall of Fame. So how could there possibly be a case to be made that she couldn't belong there? If a lot of people are saying that she's the best female player of all time, or the second best female player of all time, how could she not be in the Women in Poker Hall of Fame? We're not even talking about the regular Hall of Fame. We're talking about the Women in Poker Hall of Fame. How could anyone with any sense at all, with two brain cells to rub together, make the argument that she may not belong there? Well, let's go back to the criteria. Candidate must have been an active poker player or industry leader for at least 10 years. Okay, check. She was. Candidate must be 35 or above. Yes, she is. She's 38, so that works. The player must have contributed to the world of poker in some significant way. Well, I don't know about contributed. She won a lot, but I wouldn't say she contributed, but let's move on. Player candidate must be a proponent of women in poker. Now, you may say, of course she is. Yeah, What is she, a proponent of only men in poker? This is a female player. This is a very left-wing lesbian. How could she possibly not be a proponent of women in poker? Well, she may be a, quote, proponent, but she's treated women at the table terribly over the years. Terribly. She's also treated men terribly over the years at the table. But there are a lot of stories of people who were mistreated by Vanessa at the table, including amateur female players at the ladies' event at the World Series who were playing their first tournament ever. And these stories are not just from troll accounts that you can't trust. These stories are from the husbands or boyfriends of these women who played their first tournament ever and were unfortunate enough to end up at the table with her. And then Vanessa was berating them the entire time. And bragging about herself and saying things like, do you know who I am? And these women were horrified. They, they would go there because they wanted like a safe space to play poker where even though they're amateurs, that uh, they wouldn't have to worry about rude men giving them a hard time. And that is generally the environment of the ladies event at the World Series of Poker is that the women are very nice to one another. And there was a big exception. And that was Vanessa Selbst. She was very arrogant and nasty to the other women at these ladies' events. And there were multiple reports about this. We talked about this on the show at the time this came out on Twitter. Because Vanessa was telling someone that uh, there was only one real incident where she was really rude, and that was to Robert Varconi like 15 years ago. And they're like, nope, that's not what it was. And all these people came out with their own stories, including ones as recently as the late 2010s, which is when she was last actively playing. So this is one leopard which never changed its spots. All the way up until the end, she was very rude and nasty to people at the table, both men and women. But it is important to note that at the ladies' events, like the uh, WSOP ladies' event, that boy, she made a miserable time at the table for women who were trying to play their first tournament ever. 
And this was reported by people who were very credible, people who never get into drama, people who hadn't previously argued with Vanessa before. They told very credible sounding stories and there were multiple stories and they all basically said the same thing, that Vanessa is one of the worst people to have at the table as far as the way she behaves towards others and that this applies to men, to women, to pros, to amateurs. She's very nasty to everybody. So this isn't even like a a man-hating lesbian who just is really mean to the men but is nice to the women. No, no, no. She's, She's really nasty to the women too. Even these middle-aged women who are sitting down to play a poker tournament for the first time in their lives, and their poker player boyfriend or husband puts them in, and says, hey, this is a fun game. You know, this is a very nice event. You know, the women here, they, they're very patient with you, and they'll, they'll show you what to do, and it's, it's a very easygoing thing. You'll enjoy it. And then you end up at Vanessa's table, and she's telling you how bad you are, and she's criticizing you for three-betting her, or she's three-betting you and mocking you, or she's telling you at the end of a hand how poorly you played it. I mean, this is what was happening. So when they say she must be a proponent of women in poker, you can tweet the right things of, oh, yay, women, yay, I love women in poker. But if you mistreat the women you play with on a regular basis, then I would say you're not a proponent of women in poker. Like, let's take if a dude was treating women in poker the way Vanessa Selps does. Not only would this be everywhere and that person would be bashed by everybody about it, but this person could be a proponent as much as they wanted on Twitter about women in poker. People would go after them really hard and say, no, you're not, because you treat women at the table very poorly. But because Vanessa is a woman herself, it doesn't get as much attention. However, when it's brought up, all these people come forward and say, yeah, she's awful at the table. And her only response is, Either this is being exaggerated or, oh, I've changed. This is a long time ago when I was young. But that's not true. There's so many stories from late 2010s when she's over 30. So this wasn't just youthful indiscretion when she was 22 years old and uh, didn't know how to act at the poker table yet. She had been playing for a very long time. She was way over 30 and still doing this crap. And there really is that much debate about this. But where there is debate is whether this should be something that's disqualifying. And a name comes up that is on the male side that counters this, and that is Philip Helmuth. Phil Helmuth treats people very badly at the table. Phil Helmuth berates people. Phil Helmuth yells at amateurs and tells them how bad they are. So first of all, I had people attacking me on Twitter because I stated that I did not feel that she should be celebrated in any kind of women's organization because of the way she treats women at the table. doesn't matter that she's a woman herself. If you, I feel if you mistreat women, no matter what your gender is, you should not be celebrated by women's organizations, regardless of your success at the tables, that this should just be a standard that these women's advocacy organizations, as this is, should not celebrate anybody who mistreats women. And she does. So that was my point. Some people immediately attacked me and told me that I'm sexist or I'm a misogynist because why would I say that a woman who has a demeanor I don't like at the table doesn't belong in the Women of Poker Hall of Fame and I leave alone someone like Phil Helmuth who is known to do the same thing? So I have a very easy response to that. I don't leave alone Phil Helmuth. In 2009, on ESPN, I confronted Phil Helmuth about him 
staying quiet about the UB scandal as it was happening and not speaking out about how nobody should play there because he was a part owner of it. And I called him out about it. And I called him out for not leaving, which he hadn't done yet. He was still promoting them at the time. He was still wearing a UB hat. I called him out on ESPN. It didn't make ESPN. They cut it out. And in fact, the floor man told me I couldn't continue because, you know, the favoritism at the World Series. So I was told if I continue talking about this, that I will get a 20-minute penalty. And I was short-stacked. A 20-minute penalty would have busted me. So that was the end of my calling out of Phil Helmuth. But I, I tried. I tried to get it on TV. And this was reported at the time by Poker News. But you may say, okay, well, that was in 2009, and that was about a cheating scandal. But that has nothing to do with his berating of people at the table. But hold on. That's the only time I've been at a TV table with Helmuth. But I've been at non-TV tables with him a number of times at the World Series of Poker. And every single time that he has mistreated people at the table, I have called him out, and I have mocked him, and I have given him a hard time. And in fact, I have been the only player to do it every single time I was doing it. Everybody else is sitting on their hands all quiet. I'm the only one who speaks up. And if you ask Helmuth about this, ask him if Todd Wittell has done this to him multiple times, and he would say yes, he'll admit it. So I'm definitely not someone who can be accused of glad-handling Phil Helmuth because he's a guy and I'm a sexist and I only care when women mistreat people at the table. I'm always the first to speak up when Helmuth does it, and he'll tell you that. So that's a terrible example, because I do it to Helmuth. Now, why am I not bringing up Helmuth here? Because he's not nominated for the Women in Poker Hall of Fame. That's why. He has nothing to do with this. Now, if someone were to ask me, should this mean that Helmuth is out of the Hall of Fame? Should I say we should kick Helmuth out of the regular Poker Hall of Fame because of his behavior at the table? I would say no, because... It's a different situation. Just like I think that Vanessa Selbst, when she's 40, if she is nominated for the regular Poker Hall of Fame, I don't think that her behavior at the table should disqualify her. She can't get in right now because she's not old enough yet. But in two years, she will be old enough, and she might actually be nominated. If she were to qualify for that, I would not say she doesn't belong because of her behavior. Because it's a different thing. It's not celebrating people for... uh, advocating for a certain minority group in poker, in this case, women. It's just a general hall of fame, in which case you're just celebrating greatness in poker, and the only time you're really considering their contributions to poker is when they're a non-player, such as someone like Isai Scheinberg. So I would actually say if she were to get into the regular hall of fame, fine. I don't know if her longevity, if, if her period of dominance is enough to qualify for that, but if she did get elected to the Poker Hall of Fame, amazingly, I actually wouldn't really have much to say about that, unless other people who were better than her didn't get into it. But aside from that, I actually wouldn't have that much of a problem. It's the fact that it's a Women in Poker Hall of Fame that I think is trying to advocate for women, and it should be people who have always treated women well. And just because you're a woman doesn't mean that you've treated other women well. In fact, in many cases, you haven't. So she's one of those women who just doesn't treat women well. And this has nothing to do with her being left-wing or a lesbian. I don't care about that stuff. I really don't care about that stuff at all. That doesn't matter to me. If she treated people well, then I would have no problem with her being in the Women in Poker Hall of Fame. In fact, I would say she should be. Because by her results, she definitely should be. I just think that this is a disqualifying factor. 
So there's a lot of people who disagree. There's some who agree, but there's some who disagree on uh, Twitter. Some for stupid reasons, telling me this is misogynistic and that it's a double standard and that uh, that I'm just picking on her because she's a lesbian or a woman. Like I, I got a lot of that nonsense. That's BS. More sensible responses were just saying, look, this is honoring women who either did a lot for the game or did very well at the tables, and she definitely qualifies for the latter. That was their point. And okay, fair point. I'm not going to say you're crazy to say that. that. That is a fair point, and I can understand it. It's a reasonable argument, but you just heard what my counter-argument is to that. Others said that she encouraged women to get into the game because a lot of women idolized her, saying, wow, look at this really dominant woman at the table. I want to be like Vanessa Selps one day. In fact, one of the people who was telling me on Twitter that I was wrong was a female who was claiming that she was, in fact, inspired by Vanessa's success to try to get better herself. But I said back, okay, but I bet there were a number of players who played with her who were female that said, wow, if other women are going to treat me this way, forget the men mistreating me. If I'm going to get this treatment from other women, I don't like this. I don't want to be here. This is who I'm going to run into. So I bet she ran people off as well. She may have inspired some. She probably also ran some off. I guarantee there's a number of women she played with over the years who were amateurs who probably didn't want to come back to the game because of how she treated them, especially at the ladies' event where they're going there to play in a safer environment, in an environment that's supposed to be free of this sort of thing. So that, that's how I feel. And by the way, there's certain things she's done, especially on Twitter, that have really turned me off. Uh, for example, at one point she advocated assassinating Donald Trump. Now, I don't care what you think of Donald Trump. You, you may hate him. You may have felt really unhappy when he was elected. You may have been thrilled when he lost in 2020. You may think very poorly of him for the way he handled his loss. And I can understand all of that. But to actually advocate and openly advocate on Twitter, which is really dumb, the assassination of a U.S. president, a sitting U.S. president, that's insane. Like, who does that? I couldn't Didn't, believe she was writing uh, Kathy, that. Kathy Griffin get taken off of that uh, New Year's show because she did or said something like that? She didn't even say it. She just showed like a, a, a picture of her holding Donald Trump's head. But she didn't say like, <laughs> let's kill him. It was just like, it was supposed to be a joke and it was, it was just poorly received. But uh, this was actually Vanessa directly saying that someone should, quote, assassinate that fucker. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what the hell? Like, I, I've never thought that about any U.S. president. I, I don't like Joe Biden. I don't want to see him assassinated. I, I've never thought that, that someone should assassinate Biden. I don't think that at all. I think that uh, that would be awful if that happened. Uh, that would be awful to assassinate any U.S. president. I mean, how can you say that? And she's lucky that the FBI didn't knock on her door. And uh, you, you really can't say things like this. I mean, that's really bad that she would even write this. And the, But it wasn't just that one statement. Uh, she also puts out these very incendiary political takes, which is fine. I sometimes do the same, but... The difference is that when I get people disagreeing with me, I don't block them. But she blocks anyone who disagrees with her. She puts out the take. If you respond that you don't agree with her, even if you are polite, she blocks you. So that's very stupid. She has a right to do it. She can block whoever she wants. But that's very weak to put out these political takes that are going to be controversial, that you know are controversial, and then block anybody who disagrees. So basically, you're trying to prevent people from being able to present the other side. 
And she's actually openly tweeted before that she feels that people who watch Fox News should not have the right to even tweet their point of view because they're, quote, being brainwashed with dangerous ideas and they should all be deplatformed. She really feels, this is a, a woman, by the way, who's an attorney. She actually believes that people should not have the right to express an opposing political point of view because it's, quote, dangerous and hateful. That's pretty bad, too. I'm not talking about Nazis or, or white supremacists or people advocating uh, violence. No, I don't mean that. Now, she advocates violence. I guess that's supposedly fine. But no, she just doesn't like that uh, if you have the same opinions as those sit on Fox News, you shouldn't be able to express them at all on social media. If she had her way, you could not express it. Only Vanessa Selfs and those like her could express their political opinions. That those who disagree with them should not. Just very off-putting stuff like that, which is her right to do, aside from the assassination thing. But it really makes me think less of her when I see this. And so that's why I don't like her. Now, to be clear, she's never been accused of any kind of scamming. She's never ripped anybody off. She's never been dishonest from what I've seen. So from that standpoint, she's fine. And I want you guys to understand that my criticisms of Vanessa Selps do not come from any kind of shady behavior. I, as far as I've seen, she hasn't engaged in any. But she just engages in very obnoxious and inappropriate behavior, both on her Twitter and at the poker table. And I've seen plenty of evidence that a lot of this has been towards women. So that's how I feel. I just don't think any women's organization should be celebrating her, even though she was a very successful female tournament player. And there's no question about that part. If you disagree with me, that's fine. Now I'm going to ask... Uh, Cal Watt, do you think that she should be in the Women in Poker Hall of Fame, or do you think she should not be, or can you kind of see both sides? How do you feel about this? Uh, I mean, I think she probably should be in there, and the reason I think she probably should be in there is based on her ability. Now, I do understand what you're saying, that one of the criteria is that she should be promoting women in poker. I'm going to defer to you on that. I know that she's been obnoxious to everybody, Maybe she's just kind of a, an obnoxious person. I've seen plenty of people that have been inducted into various Hall of Fames that are just absolute shit people, but they were really good at the thing that they did, you know? Um, if she really is just treating everyone equally horribly, I don't know. I guess I don't really have a problem with it, but I, I, I do understand your point. If they specifically say part of the criteria is that you need to promote women in poker... You know, maybe not the best choice, but maybe her accomplishments outweigh it. I don't know. And Trader Risky, how do you feel about this? <clears throat> I agree with Cal Watt. I mean, sounds like she keeps the treats the women poorly. She treated Druff poorly. Um, this this Alex uh <clears throat> Langolis says uh, she treated him poorly. He'll take. 50k to forgive it <laughs> i didn't get that at first and i'm like oh okay it's about the other story we were talking about okay. <laughs> he probably would i, I probably if, he, if she gave him 50k he probably would say you know what vanessa has always been super sweet at the table she's definitely she's been the nicest player i've ever played with he'd probably say anything if she gave him 50k but yeah uh, i just sort of think that if our hall of fames only contained 
nice upstanding people, they'd be pretty thin. Not, well, and, I mean, especially and that's poker, why, but not just not just poker. <laughs> you know that that's why like the the regular <laughs> poker hall of fame it does have a lot of scumbags in it, and that's why uh, if she were to qualify for that, which she might in two years. And gets elected, I'm not going to go, oh my god, she treats people so awful at the table, why is she in? Well, then you could say, well, okay, what about Helmuth? Why is he not thrown out? So that would be a great counter to that. Well, I just feel because this is like a niche well, poker hall of fame that it's different. Right, but there's usually criteria to get in. And if the, cri- if the criteria doesn't address it, then it should not be considered as something you'd vote on. It's usually these four things or these five things or whatever. Well, right. it, par- so it partially addresses it, though. That, that's the thing. It's like it says she should be a proponent of women in poker, which you could read one way as just someone who <laughs> says, "Hey, women should play. Uh, let's get more women in the game." And you could read it another way of that also includes treating women well when you actually play with them. So there's two ways but to she read. Treats that. everyone like shit. Like I would just look at that as just a you know someone who's probably you know a little bit arrogant, a little bit entitled, and doesn't like losing and just, you know, behaved poorly to everybody. So she didn't single out women necessarily. Now, it is true, yes. That is true. women? It, it, it is true that she doesn't only go after women, that it probably is equal across the board. Well, she's she bisexual? No, no. I, I, I don't believe that's ever been the case. But uh, she does... Alex Banger, but he said that for 50... 50- <laughs> He won't uh, say anything. <laughs> but okay, yeah, but- I mean that's kind of loose, though. Like you know, promotes women in poker. You could also read that as she's a well-known name. She's very successful, so having her in there would promote women in poker. You know, yeah, I know. I know that's how it can be read. That- that's, that's why it. I just to me it mean it kind of also means that you're not running women off when you actually play with them, and and that definitely has happened somewhat. And uh, and I know that because, like, for example, Ray Henson, who is uh, a longtime poker pro from Texas, and this guy, you know, he doesn't really start drama on Twitter. He's just kind of a, a low-key guy. Uh, he, he couldn't keep quiet because his wife played with Vanessa and was treated very poorly. And there's no chance that Ray Henson is going to make this up out of nowhere that his wife was treated poorly by Vanessa. And he gave a lot of detail there and like, – I would be shocked if that wasn't a 100% true story from Ray Hansen. And there were so many others like this. So I, I don't think that this is just aimed at women. It's not like she's sweet to all the men and nasty to the women. Like, there was that woman we talked about recently, Kitty Quo, and she has the reputation recently of mistreating women at the poker table but being nice to the men. So that's not one of these cases. Uh, Vanessa is known to be just nasty to everybody. So I, I know what you're saying here, that since she's not singling out women, she's just going after everybody, male and female, and just not yeah. being nice to anybody. That, that that doesn't mean there's anything really against women. But still, uh, I get it. the bottom line is women are being mistreated at the table. That's, that's what kind of bothers me here, because the popular narrative in poker is that there's a lot of women mistreated at the poker table, and this runs them out of the game, and it's all or mostly men doing it. And I say, no, uh, there's definitely men doing it, but there's also definitely women doing it. I've seen it. So it's not just the men. There are men who mistreat women at the table, and they shouldn't, and that's very bad. And I've never done this, and uh, I wouldn't think of doing this, and I don't think very highly of any men who mistreat women 
at the table in any way or, or make advances towards him or any of that type of stuff. The, the women at the table should be treated the same way as you treat other men. But I've seen women mistreat other women at the table as well. And, uh, and that definitely occurs. And that's not talked about that much. But th- this is one of the cases where it happens, even though it's not exclusive to the women being mistreated. It kind of looks like everybody me- being mistreated by Vanessa. And uh, by the way, oh. she almost got fired. She almost got fired from this job she has pretty early on. And I only know this because she was dumb enough to talk about it on Twitter out of nowhere, where she and, and her friends were trying to tell her to keep quiet. <laughs> They're like, no, Vanessa, this isn't really good to talk about. She's like, no, 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 we're past this now. So uh, I have no issue talking about this. But apparently at uh, a Christmas party, the first Christmas party that her firm had, her Wall Street firm had, there was some incident, which she didn't go into what it was, that caused people to make complaints about her to HR, and she came close to being fired. They had to call everybody in, and, and, and uh, she had to basically promise to not do again whatever she did. But can you imagine at the freaking office Christmas party that she almost gets fired for her behavior there? I can only imagine what happened. Like, how often does that ever happen? And I don't even think it was just, like, drunken behavior. I... I, I don't know all the details. I'm just guessing here. I don't know any of the details. All I know is that something at the office Christmas party occurred where she had to be called in by HR and she was close to getting fired over what had happened there. So that's something that speaks highly of uh, what I'm saying about her personality. She, cause she has some kind of personality disorder or issue. I don't know what the hell it is. And this has nothing to do with her gender or her sexual preference or anything like that. I, again, I don't care about that stuff. And, and as you see, um, I'll frequently say very positive things about women in poker. I'll frequently say positive things about uh, gay people in poker. It's nothing about that. I, in fact, I think that everybody should just be whatever they are. And if, if you are gay, whether male or female, then okay, great. Then be gay. If that's what you are, if that's uh, what you're attracted to, then then. Go ahead and do it. You shouldn't pretend to be something you're not or or date someone that uh, you're really not into because society expects you to date a certain gender. You shouldn't. You should Whatever you really are, whatever you really feel, you should do as long as it's uh, with adults. So I have no issue with any of that, and I never have. And I, in fact, have felt that people should just come out in poker and not be afraid of what's going to be thought of them. But yeah. uh, well, uh, So here, Drew, I mean, the way to think about it is there are two ways you can think about the criteria that you list there. One way is that these are these are all the criteria that we consider in terms of nominating someone. And you might weight one thing more than the other, and then you take the sum of everything that's in there, and you say to yourself, you know, on the whole, should this person be nominated? If that's how you interpret the criteria, then yeah, absolutely, she should be nominated. If you take the criteria as line items that they must have this, they must have this, and they must have this, then maybe you could interpret it and say, well, you know, if she doesn't meet that one criteria that she doesn't get in. My guess is that it's very much the former and not the latter in terms of these are the criteria that we look at and we weigh them, you know, differently. It's probably most important. She's actually really good at poker. They're probably not going to nominate someone that really is a proponent of getting women in, in poker, but has done nothing notable at all, <laughs> you know? So I think it's, it really depends on whether you look at the criteria as an aggregate that you kind of put together in a, in a weighted form to determine whether they should go in, or if it's a strict, you know, Boolean, true, false, line item, must have this, 
this and this. Yeah, you know they don't really say w- which one it is because I know there's some things that are non-negotiable. Like you have to be 35 or more. You can't be 34 and get in. And you, you have to have been around for 10 years. So no, no matter how great your results have been, let's say a, a female won the World Series of Poker main event three years in a row, which would be an absolutely incredible thing to do. We're never going to see anything like that. But let's say uh, a female did this. She still would not get into the Women in Poker Hall of Fame until she's been playing for 10 years. So uh, yeah. they have some very strict requirements. So I don't know if the last things about being a prop- proponent of women in poker, I don't know if uh, that is considered not to have happened, if that would disqualify them, or if that's just one of these things that you're considering, and that if there's enough positive on the other pieces of criteria, such as their very good results in poker tournaments, that uh, that's enough to get them in. So I'm not going well, be- to... And you- and you could argue just her being there, just her, you know, uh, standing up against the, the, the boys and just her making all those final tables and all that stuff. You could argue that in someone's eyes, that could be a proponent of women in poker because she's promoting it. You know, well, and that's what some people said. Women that they can do it too. You know, that, That's what some people said is that they felt inspired by her. Some women said that they felt inspired by her success. It made them want to aspire to <laughs> be as... Uh, uh, as good as she was to see that, that women can do it. So, okay, yeah, fine, whatever. I, I, I thought you were going to tell me they were inspired to berate everyone at the table. No, maybe, maybe that too. Maybe they realized that, uh, well, look, Vanessa gets away with it, so I guess I don't have to be uh, nice and docile at the table like they expect women to be. I'll just be a complete asshole to everybody like the guys do. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But, but the funny thing is, like, even some of the people telling me I'm wrong and telling me that they completely disagree – even some of them were conceding, yeah, she's terrible at the table. She's the worst one I've ever played with as far as her demeanor. And I hate playing with her for that reason, but she belongs in there. It's funny, like, some of those responses from people that were completely disagreeing with me were at least conceding that she's just always treated everyone terribly. and She's very unpleasant to have there. So, uh, you know what, though? Even if the overall conclusion from that Twitter thread was that she does still belong there because I will admit more people were on the side of bringing her into the Hall of Fame than not bringing her into the Hall of Fame. But even if more people were against me on that, I still think it was a good thing I brought it up because once again it reminded people that she did not treat people well in poker and that she was very nasty to the table to both pros and amateurs, to both men and women, because a lot of people still don't know this about her who are just casual fans of poker. And while everyone knows this about Helmuth, this is like Helmuth's trademark to be a dick at the table and berate people, uh, Vanessa Selps, uh, some people know it and some people don't. And I think if you're going to do this, then you need to own it. You need to wear this on the front of your shirt that you're an asshole to everybody, whether you're a male or female. So I, if I help spread the word about this some more then great, even if this doesn't uh, affect whether she gets in. And I don't feel super strongly about this. So, like, if she does get in, I'm not going to go, oh, my God, what a tragedy. This is awful. This is terrible. They should be ashamed of themselves. No, I just have this opinion. But I understand the other side. And if the Women in Poker Hall of Fame puts her in, I understand it. You're off the Christmas card list, Drew. Like, she's not sending you no Christmas card. Or, or sorry. She's not sending you anything for Hanukkahs. That's just not happening. Well, what's okay. funny is I was blocked for a long time. Then she unblocked me when there was some discussion that she wanted to see that uh, I was involved in. I don't think it had anything to do with her. 
And then she reblocked me after that. And then she must have unblocked me again because she responded to someone uh, <laughs> in this thread about it. And, the, and she responded to what I said. So she obviously had to unblock me to see it or at least go on a, a non-logged-in screen to see it. But she definitely like looked at what I said and responded but still left me blocked. And she uh, she doesn't care for me at all. But that's fine. I don't care for her at all. And she's never done anything to me personally but I just don't like her. I don't like what I've seen of her. I don't like her attitude on Twitter. I don't like how she's berated people at the table, and, and uh, especially to amateurs, male or female amateurs. You should never berate them. And I have played poker a long time. I have taken some awful beats put on me by amateur players, and sometimes when I'm already losing, and this just puts me further in the hole, or I'm at a tournament, and now this really puts me at almost a zero chance of cashing, and... Yes, I'm frustrated and think to myself, well, if this person didn't make this stupid play, I would have won the hand. But then I think the only reason that I can be positive expectation in these events is because of the existence of these people at the table. And a lot more times they make a stupid play which benefits me rather than hurts me. So I think about that and I think about this is who we want here. And also, people have a right to play how they want. So I, I don't have a right anyway to berate anybody for their style of play. There's no rule that at the poker table you have to play a style that others approve of. So uh, there's no reason to berate them anyway. So I never give anyone a hard time about their style of play. And there are times when I'm frustrated, when I've lost, and I will sometimes like look frustrated and stand up and walk a lap around another table or something, kind of walk it off. I mean, that, uh, I just played cash a few days ago that happened. I took a few really awful beats uh, for big pots in this cash game, and it kept happening to me over and over and over. And, you know, some of these were... Dumb plays the players were making. Some of these were even good players that just weren't playing well. But, you know, it, it was something where I, I never said anything to anybody. They could tell I was frustrated, but I never would say anything to anybody to berate them for how they're playing. Now, Jeff, what if it comes out that some of the physical ailments that you've had were a result of your stress that you've internalized from playing poker, all the horrible beats that all these donkeys <laughs> have put on you, would you quit poker if it, it ended up being that? Well, you know what? I had this come up four years ago. Four years ago when I had these uh, psychological issues, that was a thought that maybe this is what has caused or partially caused the issue. I didn't. I, I knew it, it just came out of nowhere. So it wasn't uh, just abruptly brought on from taking poker beats, but I wondered if that was part of the whole equation. But after I learned more about what was going on, it was not, and so I returned to poker, but I did quit and thought that I might be quitting for good with the belief that this might be happening, this might be contributing to it. But then when I figured out that had nothing to do with it, and it was a physical problem, that uh, I returned to poker. And, uh, you know, when I take beats or, or have a bad day in poker or whatever, like, it will affect me in the moment, but then I get over it pretty quickly. Then everything's fine again. But I do make sure not to mistreat anybody, no matter how it's going. And I definitely never berate anyone for how they're playing or anything. So, so if you had to find another career, would you take the job managing a call center in the Philippines? Or <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually might. It might be satisfying to finally put the consequence on the, the horrible service you get from these uh, people. But, yeah, I don't even blame the Philippines so much because, like, 
they're just not given the tools to do the job. They're not given the tools or training to do the job. So I get irritated when they pretend like they can help you and I know they don't have the ability to do so. That's kind of an irritant, but I know they're told to do that. So I, I'm more mad at the company itself for putting people on the phone in a foreign call center that are not empowered to solve the problem than I am at the actual rep. Uh, so that's... So, yeah, it may, it may actually be satisfying, though, to, to manage it and say, okay, I'm going to finally make the changes I've always wanted to see made in these things. What would be torture is if I were to have to work in one of those call centers, just taking calls with very limited power to help anyone and be forced to pretend I can. That would be torture. What? Oh, you know what could be even worse? What if you, what if you were forced to be a waiter at a restaurant or a manager at a restaurant and you had people coming in <laughs> complaining about it all the time. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't like that. Oh, uh, but believe it or not, I wouldn't actually hate dealing with people like me because I actually only complain about things that are reasonable. I, I, but I've seen other people, I've seen other customers sometimes just complain about stupid stuff that they're totally in the wrong. And there I do feel bad for the waiter or the manager for having to deal with with people who are just just completely coming up with gripes that don't make any sense, and you have to maintain your composure, so that must be tough. And I understand that. And sometimes when I'm complaining, I'll even say like, I know some people will say such and such or, or complain about stupid things, and and uh, I, I'm trying not to be one of them here. I, I try to think about these things before I come and and raise an issue. And I, I know you deal with those sort of people, and, and I know it's tough, but uh, but here, here's why mine really needs attention. Like, I'll sometimes say things like that so, to try to separate myself from some of these uh, totally unreasonable customers, which uh, I, I know exist. But, yeah, that, that wouldn't be a fun job. I, I agree. And the, the worst thing would be if you came out there and you had to serve Vanessa Selps. <laughs> and then she complained <laughs> right? about me, too. <laughs> she said, I can finally get revenge on this guy. And by, by the way, I've talked about Vanessa Selps on the show before, not negatively, when it had nothing to do with her behavior at the table. I'll give you an example. When she was a victim of what happened on Venmo, of this Venmo hack that Venmo refuses to acknowledge or talk about, and that never got any play in any kind of media, really, except for right here on Poker Fraud Alert. But it was a very real thing. There was someone who had the ability to just get right into Venmo accounts, and she was one of the victims. The hacker not only got into her account, but uh, she transferred her money over to her wife's account, which wasn't very smart because uh, if the hacker could get into hers, then the hacker could probably see where it was sent and then just go over to that one. And that's exactly what he did. So he stole it out of her wife's account. But I was not negative about Vanessa at all there. And while some people who didn't like her were doubting her account of things and, and bashing her, and there's a lot of negativity when she told her story. And I was not one of them. On this show and on Twitter, I was stating that she was a victim, and aside from making that one mistake with transferring to her wife's account, that she really was a victim here, that I believed that she didn't do anything wrong, that I believe she didn't do something stupid to induce being hacked, that uh, someone just has a way through the back end to get into accounts. Because a lot of people said, oh, you were just stupid, you had, a, you had an easy password, this is your fault. Like, I, I saw a lot of dumb takes that were blaming her somewhat for this, or some people saying she, they just didn't believe her. And I said, no, I believe her. See, because she doesn't lie. She's not like a, a, a she's not going to make up a story like this. Vanessa Selps is not the one who's going to pretend she lost money for attention or say she lost money because she's really broke because she lost a playing poker. That's not her. If she says she got hacked on Venmo and money stolen from Venmo, she did because she doesn't lie about things like that. And that's what I said. So even with someone I don't like, I will give them credit where it's due 
when there's positives about them or where their story is believable. And there's many who won't do that. There's many, if they see someone they don't like, they will find any reason they can to criticize them. So I just want to make it clear that I don't. And if you don't believe me, go back in that uh, segment I did about the Venmo hackings, and you'll hear me talking about her, and I'm not bashing her at all. In fact, I'm very positive about her there, saying that I believe her. So I, I'm just showing I'm trying to be fair all the time to everybody, no matter what I think of them personally. But in this case, uh, I, I just didn't think she belonged. So uh, reading from the chat... C. Jen, he said, self is a vile bitch. She's an ugly person inside and out. Oh, he does not like her. Bobby Orr, not about Vanessa, said, I knew about your swap with Victor. 15%, not 30% is held for foreign winners. I thought it was 30. Maybe they changed it. It used to be 30. He's always here about 30. But Bobby Orr, who is from Canada himself, so maybe he should know, uh, he said that they hold uh, 15%. And yeah, he knows about the Victor swap because he is friends with Victor. Victor's a nice guy. I like him. We always uh, say hello to each other when we see each other. And, uh, you know, I fully trusted him in that swap. There's never a, a question on either end that the person would get paid no matter what the result was. I was a little bit uh, sad he only got to 56th after I busted. I got to like 200-something, so he made it way past me. But I was going, oh, I wonder if Victor can hold on and win this damn thing. And <laughs> I'll get 2% of 700K. That'd be nice. I'll take that 35K for nothing. But, you know, I'll took, I took the 165, too. That was at least something. And he did better than me. All right, so uh, let's stick to another women's topic, but a very different topic, a very, very different type of topic. It's also about uh, a women's organization in poker, but it couldn't be a more different topic than the one we just had. The Women's Poker Association, the WPA has designed a trophy for an event in Reno that is taking place right now, I believe. It's either right now or just concluded. It's something very recent. Might be still going on. I don't know. But they had this event, and Amanda Botfeld, who, by the way, is not a bot to my knowledge. It's, It's a pretty unfortunate name in poker to be named Botfeld. But Amanda Botfeld said this on Twitter. This is on August 24th. Ladies event alert. If you're near Reno on Tuesday, Poker Atlantis, in conjunction with iNinja Poker and Lips Tour, Lips is another uh, women's organization that puts on poker tours, is hosting. Super unique trophy, courtesy of WPA, which is the Women in Poker Association. A lot of great people are putting this event together. Nice win, for the women in poker community. Okay, well, this sounds pretty standard. Like, nothing about that tweet is controversial, right? They have a super unique trophy. There's a ladies' event at Atlantis in Reno, and it's put on by iNinja and Lips. Okay, very standard stuff. Normally, I would not be talking about it on the show, but uh, you guys both can see my screen, right? I mean, I could. I'm not looking at the computer, though. Okay. Uh, can you right now? Can you look at the screen? Yep. Okay. Both of you look at the screen. Trader Ruski, you with us still? We may have lost Trader Ruski. But okay, at least, uh, Calwatt, I have you here. And, That's a nice uh, vagina you've got there. Uh, exactly, exactly. I, now, now, don't mention the uh, the other side of my screen with... Uh, I don't know where you got that picture of Vanessa's side. <laughs> anyway. Uh. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He's actually not seeing anything on my screen. I, I'm careful to close all the gay porn before this, I start the show. A, 
This is a great picture for an anatomy lesson. You can teach men that don't know what the hell they're doing where the clitoris is. It's right. Fantastic. So this is actually, yeah. I'm not kidding, this is actually a trophy of a vagina. That's why I didn't have to tell Calwatt about this. I just thought, look at the screen. He said, that's a very nice vagina. It's an actual vagina with, a, with an actual hole in the middle. There's an actual hole. Okay. In fairness, Druff. <laughs> I'm probably more prone than most people to see stuff like this in innocent images. But that, that does look like a vagina to me. I'm sorry. Yes, it's a vagina. I would say, yes, it's a super unique trophy. But yes, it's a trophy of a vagina. And you can go to Amanda Botfeld's Twitter, Amanda, B-O-T-F-E-L-D, and look at her tweet on August 24th. And you can see this vagina here. And it's actually pink, I mean, by I've the way. I've never seen one that's purple like that before. Well, it's kind of like, it's kind of like mm. light purple or pink. It's hard to tell from the lighting here. But it's, uh, you ever seen one that looks that color, though? I don't know. Uh, no, I, but... I need to get uh, it checked out. But, I mean, the, really, the design here, there's no question. And it even has a hole in the middle, just in case there's any doubt. So you've mm. got a hole. I don't know. I, I, would, would anyone, whether you're male or female, would you really want a trophy of a vagina? Like... If there was a men's event, I wouldn't want like a giant penis as a trophy. I wouldn't want to display that in my house, the trophy of a giant penis. It would uh, be a weird thing to have on display that I've won. So is that really an appropriate trophy to have for a women's poker tournament, a vagina? But that, that's what it is. It's pretty clear. It doesn't say that's what it is, but that's what it is. The winner of the of one of the events, at least, actually has their fingers through the hole. <laughs> but yes, there's actually a vagina trophy that the WPA, I guess, designed. Like, well, what was the conversation there? Were they saying, well, we're kind of bored of these poker trophies. What would be something memorable we could give out that would be significant to women? Well, women have a vagina and men don't. And someone else will say, well, that's not true these days. And they go, well, okay, well, let's, let's, uh, let's say at least 10 years ago, women had a vagina and men don't. And I guess this could be something unique to women. Okay, let's do it. Let's have a vagina trophy. Like, it's, it's a weird idea. Like, if you don't think it's that weird, think about it. If you're a dude, which pro- you probably are. It's mostly dudes who listen to the show. We have some female listeners. But uh, if you're a dude, think about if you won a trophy that's just like a big penis. For playing poker. Would that be kind of embarrassing to have? Like, I could not put up a trophy that's a penis in my house. No matter how proud I was of winning the event, I could not put up a penis trophy in my house. Like, like Cal Watt, would you display a penis trophy in your house? An actual penis? Probably no, something not, that looks no. very similar to a penis. Not, not a hundred... Kind of like how this vagina looks so close to a vagina. Like, something that's... that's very, very close to looking like a penis to where someone who sees it will immediately think that. Would you display that? I, I, might, I might do it to make people intentionally uncomfortable. <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually, you might, is the truth. I might. Yeah, you might. It's true because Calwatt, at the, at the dinner we had, or the Poker Fraud Alert radio hosts, the dinner we had in July, he, he did tell a very gross story at the dinner to make everybody uncomfortable. So. Yeah, but that was nothing to do with uh, vaginas or penises. No, it didn't. Like it, it had nothing to do with that, but... Yeah. Uh, so I guess if he, he'd tell that story, maybe he would display a penis. People come over. But yeah, it's, it is a vagina. Danielle Anderson didn't quite know how to react to this. She quoted the tweet and wrote, I'm sorry, is that a dot, 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 vagina? 
yes, yes, Danielle, it is. That's that's what it is. I had the same disbelieving thoughts like you. A Twitter user named Doc, she's a female poker player from Canada, responded, you don't want to win the bedazzled vulva? And then Danielle said back, no, I absolutely fucking lutely want to win the bedazzled vulva. And then Randy Gordon, I don't know if he has any association with all this, but he said, yes, Danielle, it's a Vajaja sculpture and will become a prize for the winner of the tournament. And she said back, I think that's fucking great. And then Adam Schwartz, host of the Dat Poker podcast, said back, please don't ask male poker players this question. <laughs> Adam thinks that all the males are going to see a vagina no matter what. But it is. I mean, it's, it's a vagina. That's what it is. You can deny it, but that's what it is. At the Atlantis Poker Room in Reno. So I don't know if this is over yet. I know this was... Uh, on August 24th, and now it's the 30th, so maybe this series is over, maybe the vaginas are all spoken for at this point. It might be too late to win one. I don't know if this trophy's coming back. Maybe this will be the trophy again next year. Maybe if you missed out on a 2022 vagina, that you can come back in August of 2023 and take your shot at the vagina. I, I do believe you have to be female to enter these events, so that will probably be tough for most of you to win, but maybe there are some... Uh, events you can play to win this. This was for the ladies' event, so it probably isn't open to men. But I don't know. Maybe they should make this available to everybody. Maybe there should be a whole series where it's the, the vagina trophy is the award. But at that point, maybe there should be a penis trophy. In fact, maybe there should be a penis trophy that can interlock with the vagina trophy and you can put them together. I'm that, sure it exists somewhere. That would be interesting. If you could actually win a poker penis trophy and a poker vagina trophy, and then they're made to be put together. That I might display. That I might have in yeah. my house if I got them both. I might have to suggest that to the WPA. You're going to have all sorts of problems with, you know, it's not, uh, it's binary, it's cisgender. You're going to have to, you know, the polyamorous, you're going to have to have, you know what you would have to do? The vagina would have to be magnetic, and you'd have to be able to just stick as many dicks to it as you wanted to get the polyamory <laughs> crowd in there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, or you could, or you could be, uh, it could have attachments to where if the vagina decides it doesn't identify as a vagina anymore, that you could uh, turn it into a penis. That, and, and, and vice versa also. They should have penis trophies that you could kind of push in and tr- turn it into vagina. That would be the 2020s version of these type of trophies. So this way, uh, nobody would be accused of being transphobic in presenting these trophies like uh you know as you think about it a women's event that has a vagina trophy what about the women with penises this leaves them out this makes them feel humiliated because they're getting a trophy of a vagina that's assuming that women's have vaginas but the, some of them don't this is insensitive i got it Drew. i got it have an integrated trophy where the penis is coming out of the top and it curls around and it fucks the vagina oh boy it's perfect. Perfect. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, this is getting out of hand here. So I will move on to our next topic. Hustler Casino Live had some pretty amazing games this past week. And they were directly competing with Live at the Bike, by the way. Helmuth appeared on Live at the Bike. And they were trying to get attention over there. But Live at the Bike is just getting crushed 
by Hustler Casino Live, who seems to be doing everything right. There was a stream with uh, a lot of action players on it, so to speak, including Mickey Moss, who we had on the show, who somehow has money again and is shooting it off in rapid fashion on Hustler Casino Live. It but, doesn't matter. He'll win it back at the back rat table. He's yeah. got a system, man. It's no problem. <laughs> Hustler Casino Live has been broadcasting some very big games, and our own Bart Hansen has been commentating on some of them. Yeah. And I will say that these lineups are not the best poker players in the world. These are just entertaining slash well-funded players who are willing to put in action. So the, the criteria to get on Hustler Casino Live is... Do you add value to the stream from the standpoint of entertainment that people are going to want to watch, not are you the best player? So if you're someone people want to see playing, then you get on there. And if you're not, then you don't, with only it a few exceptions. it should be. <laughs> yeah, so, so as a result, they're getting these lineups that are very soft considering the stakes that are being played. Because these are people who have a lot of money to throw around and don't necessarily have a lot of top-rate poker skill. Now, some of the people on there have a lot of skill, but some of them don't at all. And there's a lot of action, and there's a lot of swings, and the stacks are very deep, and there's some gigantic pots. John Robert Balland, who doesn't come on that show very often, this may have even been his first time. I'm not sure if it's his first time or not, but uh, John Robert Balland is not someone who is on these streams all that often. He's been around in poker for a long time, but for whatever reason, the streams is it's just something that he hasn't been appearing on. Not just Hustler Casino Live, but you just don't really see him much. He's not a young guy. He's actually older than me. John Barabera is 52. For a long time, his gimmick was that he's always broke, but he's always living like a millionaire. That was actually what he'd tell people. And it was somewhat true. He was frequently broke. He did live an extravagant lifestyle. He did enter high-stakes tournaments. He did enter cash games with big buy-ins. He'd always find a way. He was very good at schmoozing people in the poker community to do what he wanted. <laughs> and, uh, as a result, no matter how broke he was, he always found a way to still have whatever lifestyle he wanted. It was very interesting. I watched it happen. I've talked about it several times on this show, on the Party Poker Cruise. The guy flew from Los Angeles to Fort Lauderdale overnight on a red-eye flight where there's going to be a bunch of poker players, including me. And then while they were waiting at the airport until you could board the cruise ship, which didn't start boarding till 11 a.m. and the flight landed at 7 his plan was to go around there and talk his way on the ship. He had no money with him. He was broke. He had no money with him. His plan was to talk his way on the ship and then to talk someone into letting him stay in their room and then to talk someone into staking him for the 10K tournament on the ship and to talk someone else into staking him for cash. And he was successful at all of it. And he also banged the only single girl on the entire ship. You gotta admire the the balls to go do that. You yeah, gotta admire that. I watched it. I watched it happen right in front of me. So this is not an urban legend. This is something I witnessed in 2006. So that was a perfect example of what he does. However, 
Today's John Robert is not the same as the 2006 John Robert. He doesn't need to do stuff like this anymore. He's not taking flights across the country without any plan how to get on the ship. That's not the present John Robert. The present John Robert has made enough rich and influential friends to where he has a lot of backing now. So he has been getting into a lot of these very lucrative private games where he is by far one of the best players in the game because it's got a lot of businessmen and other people who just aren't that good, and you have to be invited to these games. And he's getting into these games and getting backed for these games. In fact, someone that he was friends with for this was Dan Bilzerian. So he's been getting backed for a long time and then gets to keep a certain percentage of the profits. So these days he seems to have money. Now, he is a degenerate, and he does tend to chunk off money very fast, too. So you never know what bankroll he presently has, but he has the ability to make it back very fast these days because of his access to these high-stakes private games and people willing to back him in it. In fact, backing him in these games, provided you have the bankroll to do so, is positive EV because he is one of the better players in these games because he's a real poker player, and a lot of these people in the games are just wrecks. So I'm not even saying that he's tricking people into backing him. They're smart to back him. And he gets in the games because people like him. I was once uh, playing blackjack with him, and the guy next to us said, you know who you remind me of? It's going to sound weird, but you remind me of that John Robert guy from Survivor, because he was on Survivor. (laughs) He says, yeah, I get that sometimes. Sometimes people think I'm I'm kind of like him. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I wasn't sure if I should say anything, but you just kind of, you really just seem like him in, in some ways. And I'm uh, just wondering if people have said that to you before. And another time he went up to me when I was playing blackjack and announced out loud that he wants to sit next to me and <laughs> bet what I'm betting. Uh, uh, Eric Lindgren did the same thing. And I'm like, shh, don't, 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 don't. That's not so loud. Jean Robert also once uh, bought a piece of me in a cash game after a lot of pressure for me to let him do it and then just walked away. And I, I could have stiffed him big time. I didn't. I, I, I tracked him down later to give him his piece of what I won. But he didn't care. He just gave me money and said, okay, here, here's, here, here's some money. Once you've, once you've lost this, then that's it. And uh, then whatever you win, uh, you know, give me whatever percentage and... Uh, he just trusted me to do it. He didn't have anybody watching me. He just gave it to me and walked off. So anyway, he was on this Hustler Casino live stream this past week. It was a 200-400 no-limit game, which is huge. That's a 200 small, 400 big. And there was an optional $800 straddle from under the gun, which is like an automatic raise you're putting in under the gun, the first to act pre-flop. This wasn't something everybody had to do, but you were encouraged to do it. And you had to show up with $100,000 minimum in order to get in the game. So Mickey Moss, for example, the one of the times he was on the stream, he brought like 15K or something pathetic there and chunked it off, and that was it. They didn't let them do that this time. Even though Mickey was on the stream, they required everybody would have to bring 100000 At one point, there was more than $4 million on the table, which was the most money that had ever been on the table on one of these streamed games. But that wasn't the only record that was set. It was a 16-hour game, 
or a tiny bit shorter 16 hours, but it was the 16-hour game, which was the longest stream ever of any kind of streamed poker show. I'm sure Bart was thrilled. I think Bart left in the middle. I think Bart left in the middle and actually flew back to Boston, and it was still going. He was shocked. He he, he brings it up on his phone when he lands, and the thing's still going. He's like, what? How's this still going? That that makes more sense. (laughs) Jean-Robert Balland, the reason I'm bringing him up, is that he had the biggest win ever, not just on Hustler, but on any poker stream that has ever been shown. How much did Jean-Robert win? One million dollars. Close. He won $804,000 on that stream. They also, for the first time, had million-dollar stacks on the table in front of individual players. Jean-Robert had over a million on the table, as you might guess, since he was 804000 up. And Alan Keating, who's one of the just rich guys who plays in these games, he had over $1 million on the table as well. They also had the biggest single pot ever in $749,000. The stream, which began in the evening on August 26th, did not end until 9 a.m. Pacific time on August 27th. The biggest pot in question was actually shown on Twitter. Hustler Casino Live posted it. So here, I'm going to play this to you here, this little clip, and I'll describe what's going on. Uh, we would have well, a little action we here. Keating raises it with 10-9 suited. Flops open-ended, and JR here. That's an action flop, Bart. With an 8. So this is JR. Again, not uh, Jean-Robert Ballon. It's JR. Jean-Robert Ballon is JRB. So JR has uh, Jack-8 offsuit, and Keating has 10-9 of diamonds. So yeah, a Jack would be brutal for JR. That's Bart's view I see here. So right now on the turn, it is 8-7-queen-3 with two clubs. There were two clubs on the flop. The turn was a diamond, which is meaningless for the suits on the board. So it's an open-ender for Keating and middle pair for this JR. Now you'd think that this is not going to produce a giant pot because nobody has anything monstrous at this point. Our turns at three. Check. Keating's going to fire here again. So this is what happens is Keating, who again is not a professional player, just a rich guy, he continued firing with the open ender, which is bloating the pot. Full pot, 35,000. JR is a non-believer. He's going to call quickly at 104,000. Yeah, so JR then calls correctly, but then comes the killer card with a jack, which makes the straight for Keating and the two pair for JR, and that's where the fireworks start. And the river's a jack! Oh, wow. The river's a jack. So Keating makes the nuts, and JR sticks around and makes jacks up. An all-in here, so checking an all-in. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. 3x pot. He wants it all. JR has checked the river when he made jacks up in 3x all-in. Wow. So the problem here is that Keating, who's just known to fire off, has been firing the whole way, and then JR rivers 
two pair and thinks, well, if he's been firing the whole way and this guy's an aggressive player, I might be good. And Keating's thinking, well, I know they don't believe me, so I'm just going to go all in and see if I can get max value here. 322,000 effective. I mean, he's got only about 50K in this pot, right, Bart? And he makes the call. He makes the call. Wow. 700. And just like that. And 49,000. Oh, my gosh. That, Bart, I think that's one of the biggest pots we've had. I think that in, is in our in our uh, our time nice here. Nice hand, thank you. And a nice hand, a pat on the table, and just like that, a three hundred seventy-five thousand dollar profit, a seven hundred forty-nine thousand dollar pot goes to Alan Keating. Wow, Truff, can you do some improv improv here and uh, give me Vanessa Selp's reaction when she calls with uh, the jacks up there? <laughs> Oh my God! Oh, you, you're, you're just betting the whole way with the ten nine. You're just betting the whole way, and I saw it the whole way. I saw it the whole way that you didn't have it. Why do you think I'm calling with middle pair? Because I know you're a donkey. Because I know you're terrible. Because I know that's why you lose so much money in this game. Because you just keep betting with nothing, and then you, of course you get the jack and that the setup. So I I lose everything. But that's why I had to call but, but, because I know you. I'm, I'm, I'm a mother of two. I'm, I'm a girl in poker. Don't you want to promote me and be nice to me? <laughs> Don't you know who I am? How could you be betting against me like that? <laughs> How could you be betting against me with 10 high when you know that I'm going to call you because I know you're terrible? Why would you do that? Why would you just keep betting <laughs> where you have to make it to win? Why? When you're terrible like that, why would you do that? I would actually love to see. I would love to. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. I know it's like watching a train wreck, but I would be thoroughly entertained by watching Vanessa Selfs actually react to that actually happening to her. I know it's horrible, but it would be fucking hilarious. <laughs> this is a hand I would not have expected to produce the biggest pot in streamed poker history because up till the river, it was just very standard. It was just nothing that interesting. You have the straight draw betting against the guy with middle pair. It was just because they both made something at the end. Like, you really expect, like, set over set to be this, or where someone has a flush against this top set, and then they both get it all in, and then, you know, whatever happens on the river, one of them gets it. That's what I'd expect. Yeah, someone with like a, a set against a straight, not this. The ass end of the straight versus the nut straight or something, yeah. you know. Yeah. Or even some weird thing with a straight flush that, that beats the nut flush, like... Something you don't really either see coming or just a huge cooler. Not not when you've got middle pair on the turn and you're check calling, but that's what happened because the river produced Doesn't all this money. Doesn't take big hands, Druff. Just takes big balls. <laughs> that was the ballsy call at the end. That's oh, what you got, you got to have I mean, such a deep bankroll in this game here, with the way it plays. Not just the limits, but yeah. just it's it also has things like this where you've got to have the balls to make big calls. Yeah, and then you may lose some of them, and then now I'm not saying the the guy should have called the two pair there. There's so many ways he could be beat, but I see the thinking because of who it was against. And if it's a guy oh, known yeah. for just I've, firing off, he's going just have to. I've played in games like that where I've lost some pretty big pots, and not nothing like this, obviously, but I've lost some pretty big pots against people that you know. I, I talked to some friends of mine later, and they're like, yeah, you know, I mean, him being him, you got to call there. I'm like, yeah, I know. It just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So that, that had to be painful for that to happen. And biggest pot in history. So people loved this particular broadcast. Uh, a lot of people were saying this was the best streamed poker they've ever seen. Best meaning most entertaining, most interesting. Uh, there were rave reviews for this particular broadcast, not just the length of the broadcast and how long it went, but just all the action and the entertainment yeah. value of the whole thing. Just people loved this, and there was nothing but praise for the entire thing. So they're they're really killing it over there on Hustler Casino Live. Well, you you know I'm a fan of MMA, right? And the the game, the fights that people really cheer for aren't necessarily the the most technically awesome fights. They're, they're bloodbaths, man. I can totally understand why this would get really good ratings. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. Live at the Bike is now very much the second-class citizen and has been for a while of the poker streams after being dominant for so long. And, you know, that's what happens when you lose Ryan Feldman and he goes over and uh, recreates it even better over down the road. So this yeah, was it a, went downhill as soon as Bart and Tuckman weren't there anymore. Come on, let's be honest. Yeah, that was they were, def- the, heart, they were the heart and soul. Well, that that's true too. That was a big loss as well. There was there was a, a number of factors here that uh, contributed to the decline. But then Hustler Casino Live, it basically a lot of what was good of Live of the Bike it moved over there, and then they improved some things anyway. So that looks like it's going to be the stream everybody watches. Now, just think how many times on this show we've talked about in the past year. It's only been around a year. Think how many times over the past year we have talked about stuff that happened on Hustler Casino Live. Now, I know the last show we had a negative story about Hustler itself, not Hustler Casino Live, but the Hustler itself and the, their shenanigans of the tournament, but that had nothing to do with Hustler Casino Live. But anyway... Much, I didn't watch any of that. I actually, when I saw who was playing in it, I actually wanted to watch it, but I never got around to it. How much did uh, Mickey end up dusting off? I'm not even sure. I, and he played back-to-back nights, and he, I know he lost both nights, and it was in the six figures. It wasn't pretty. And there's been some yeah. discussion, like, where is this money coming from? Is he being backed? <laughs> is this really his money? And nobody believes it's, it's money he's winning in Baccarat. But I, b- I believe it, Drew. <laughs> I My working theory on him, and it's only a theory, and remember, he, he never met with me to show me these win-loss statements, as he promised, which didn't surprise me. But my theory is that there is some kind of trust fund that is distributing money every so often, and that whenever he gets it, he goes and takes it to gamble with. And then when that gets chunked off, he waits for the next distribution and comes back again. And that's why we see spurts where he appears and has a lot of money, and then spurts where you really don't see much of him. If I were a live druff and I, I had worked my ass off, gotten lucky, and won you know, made tons of money and was able to provide it for my kids in a trust fund. If I saw one of my kids doing that, I would revoke that trust immediately. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> Just pull it immediately. Yes. I don't think that this is money that he's embezzling or scamming. I, I just don't think it. I'm not getting that feeling from this whole thing. I, I believe this is his money in some way that is being chunked off here, that is being gambled here. I do believe he has access to large sums of money. I'm not exactly sure where it's coming from, but I think it's actually his. I guess there's a chance he's backed, but I just don't think so. I don't think he has a backer here, and why would he? Like, you understand why Poker Bunny 
gets backers. But why would he get backers, especially at this point? So I maybe he gives a better head. You don't no, know. I, yeah, I didn't think of that part. Yeah, right, it might be. No, but I really do believe that it's probably his money that's being risked here. I just think he's getting it in some way. I don't think he's making it. I think he's getting it. I think it's something that is being distributed to him. Possibly he's gotten someone to believe he's a winning gambler and poker player and to keep backing him and the wins will come soon, or maybe he had a few lucky wins at the beginning that made them believe in him. That's possible too. But I think that's kind of more of a secondary explanation. My top explanation is some kind of trust fund. I mean, the money's coming from somewhere. It's real money. We're seeing it at Hustler Casino Live, and we're not seeing any evidence that this is being... uh, stolen in any way and yeah yes there's embezzlement situations we had that with that uh, rob gorodetsky guy who was embezzling and pretending he had all this money from winning in sports it could be something like that you never know but i just i'm not really getting that vibe i think it's his money i think it's money he's receiving in some way and of course after some time it's going to be gone so we'll see very weird situation with him for sure Ryan Feldman tweeted on August 27th, shortly after the stream was over. Huge thank you to everyone involved, the players, the production staff, etc. What an epic night of poker we had. What an epic week we had. Not sure if I should celebrate, laugh, or cry, but at first I'm going to try to sleep. I can't believe what just happened. How did we do that? Referring to the very large game, the huge pots, the huge win for JRB, and the 16-hour live stream. I was actually... uh, playing live myself when this was going on. Not at Hustler. But I was playing live myself in a pretty wild game of what I was playing. Though not anywhere near those stakes. But I was in kind of a, an unusual game myself, let me just say that. Something I hadn't seen in a long time. And it was not Limit Hold'em. I'll give you that hint. It was not Limit Hold'em. And I played a very long session. I played a 22-hour session. Which was my third longest session in my life. My three longest sessions were 26 hours in 2003, 24 hours in 2007, and now 22 hours in 2022. These were all live poker. Now, this recent long session, to be honest, was it because you got stuck early, or was it because the game was good, or was it both? It was both. Now I'll say that, that I would have played I would have played long no matter what, but But not twenty two hours, come on. My time to leave was when I finally breached the even mark and won a little bit. And I said, All right, number one, the game's not quite as good as it was before, and number two, it's been twenty two hours, and number three, if I chunk this off again because in this game I was down a lot. First, I was kind of even for a while. Then I was down a whole lot. But because the game was so good, I got almost all of it back. And I was like a hair under even. And then I chunked off uh, 60% back of what I'd won back. Then I got that all back. And then I got above even. So I won a little bit. And then the blind came around and I quit. So yes, that did have an impact. I mean, even if the game was super good. If you ran on the positive side of expectation and you just crushed it, you know you probably would happily cash out after a nice ten-hour session and uh, go enjoy yourself. Right? Yes, that is true. Is that uh, yeah. 
at some point you're there long enough and you say, okay, I'm satisfied with this. And there's also the emotional aspect of if you've played 10 hours and you've won a whole lot of money, then to continue playing past that and then chunk it back off, even if it's just through bad luck, really sucks. Cause well, I'd, I'd also just feel like I put in a good solid day's work and it's time to yeah, go home. Yeah, it's know? both. But it's, it's also the regret of like, I, I was there so long already, why, why couldn't I have just left yeah. with this? Yeah. But here, since I was trying to get back what I had lost through, through a lot of just really brutal beats. Well, you know, in the, in the long run, it's all one long session, yeah. right? So if you're plus EV, you're plus EV, no matter how you slice it up or whatever. But also, you're probably not going to play as well, if you're sitting there for 10 hours, too. I mean, maybe you will. I don't know. Well, and this was, an, uh, this was a unique game that I'm not sure I'm going to see again. So uh, that was the other thing. Sometimes okay, you have that, yeah, I might extend it a so, little yeah, bit. Sometimes you have that factor, too. too long, yeah, if I knew if I could come back uh, in a few days and play the same thing, that's a different story. This was a, sometimes you're in a unique situation that's unlikely to be that way again. Yeah. And that, this yeah, was one of I them. Get it. This was one of them. So that was another reason I didn't want to leave. But, boy, that one had big swings at least for what I play. But at least it ended up okay. Pretty depressing at one point, though. I mean, just every time the pot was really big, I it was guaranteed I'd take some kind of uh, unlikely beat on the river. And I so did. You, you managed to get back to even. Who had a better hourly, you or the cocktail waitress? So, <laughs> so. <laughs> no, I did. I ended up uh, beating the cocktail waitress by the end because I, I had nice. a, a decent-sized pot. After I broke even, the, then I was playing to the blind and i had the second to last hand i had a decent pot also so that that's what helped there i still never won the absolute like monster pot there were some a few monster pots that i was very much a favorite to win that i did not and i never got one of those in the whole 22 hours anytime i was in one and in line to win one i didn't get it and anytime i needed to put a bad beat on someone else to win it i didn't get it so that that's what was killing me there but i i knew the game was so good that I, even being way down as I was at one point, I thought, I'm not out of this one. I could easily come back and win here. And and I did. So it wasn't even by, like, winning, like, huge pots or, or, or just getting unusually lucky. I mean, yes, I got luckier than average from that point to win it back, but uh, not as much as you think. It was just a very, very action and, and good game. So i definitely play that one again. Anyway, so uh, moving on here, sticking with the Hustler Casino Live theme, this, this isn't directly about Hustler Casino Live, Nick Vertucci, who's one of the two owners of Hustler Casino Live, along with Ryan Feldman, he has a new show called the Nick Vertucci Show, and you can find it on YouTube. It's a video show, and there's actually a, a studio he set up. I don't know if it's in the Hustler, I don't know where it is, but there's actually a studio set up where it has in the background, it says the Nick Vertucci show. He even has a little uh, logo, and he has a studio where he and his co-hosts sit. I mean, it's a it's a much more elaborate setup than anything I have here. I don't have a, a poker fraudler radio placard here in the uh, place where I broadcast. But nevertheless, that's what he's got here, and this is a, a new thing he's put together. It's getting a lot of views already, probably or- because he's, he's parlaying the success of hustler casino live to bring people to want to watch his show here so i guess he's wanted to have something like this for a while and now he's got the audience so here it is it already has 4600 subscribers and they're getting views ranging from like 8000 to 20000 
So they're getting a very nice audience here, just starting out. And I wouldn't normally be talking about this show, this Nick Fertucci show, but there was an interesting segment on it, and it featured his co-host on a lot of these shows, Veronica Brill. Now, this is the same Veronica Brill, who was the whistleblower in the Mike Postle situation. At the time she was the whistleblower, she was only locally known to the Northern California poker scene. Other than that, people didn't know her very well. I knew her a little bit at the time, but I didn't know her very well either. But she's really grown in notoriety in poker ever since that situation. And she seems to be the co-host on a lot of these shows. And she was on this one. And I knew that she and Vanessa Cade never got along. And I knew this because when there was a situation where the ACR CEO was being called out for alleged sexual harassment, and Vanessa Cade was an ACR pro, Veronica and Vanessa were going back and forth here. And again, this is Vanessa Cade and not Vanessa Selps. We have two Vanessas we're talking about on the show here. But Vanessa Cade and Veronica were arguing back and forth. And Veronica, who had become a little friendly with Dan Bilzerian, with whom Vanessa Cade had a big beef earlier that year. So she was, she and Vanessa were going at it somewhat on Twitter. So I knew they didn't care for each other. But beyond that, I didn't know much about the two of them and how they felt about each other and any further interaction they may have had other than just they didn't seem to like each other. Now, both of them are blonde women in poker. Both of them are over 35 and under 45. Both of them have increased greatly in notoriety in the last three years. So there's a number of similarities between them but there's also a number of differences. From the poker standpoint, Vanessa Cade has had a lot more success than Veronica has had. Veronica is more of a, a casual player and just kind of a, a community member more than a, a pro player. She actually has a regular job. And Vanessa is a pro player and has had some impressive tournament scores recently, most notably that uh, $1.5 million score on PokerStars. And she's also, she ran deep in a, high-stakes event at the World Series and got a pretty big score there, too. So, Vanessa... So out of the three, Druff, Vanessa Selps, Vanessa Cade, <laughs> or Veronica, who do you think should get into the Women's Poker Hall of Fame? Oh, boy. Uh, it sounds like Veronica's done lots to promote poker, but hasn't done anything in it, you know? Yeah, that's that's true. They uh, Well, the thing with Vanessa Cade, she hasn't been there long enough, though. I don't think she's been around long enough to qualify. Vanessa Selps, you know my issues here, but uh, I, I'm not even sure. But let's, let's go back to this All here. Right, sorry, 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 sorry. We got to hear in more detail from Veronica on this particular Nick Fertucci show, the one he entitled Poker Beefs, about the situation between the two of them, and it's, it's not a very good one. <laughs> they, they really don't get along, and there's been a lot of shit going on behind the scenes. Now, we only get to hear... Veronica's side. Now, before I play this whole thing, I, I want to tell you my impression of these two women. I'm much higher on Veronica for various reasons. Uh, first of all, personally, I just get along with her better. She's not my friend, but uh, I get along with her. Uh, we were both co-defendants in the whole Mike Postle situation. 
we were the only two who did anti-slap motions against Postle, where everybody else just waited to get served, which never happened. So we had that we would talk about back and forth. And she's been on this show before. I think we've had her on twice. And I've never had any kind of argument or beef with Veronica. As I said, we're not friends or anything, but we've never had any issues with one another. However, I have not been afraid to say when I think she's in the wrong. And Veronica does sometimes get dramatic. But overall, I like her. And I think she enjoys attention. But I overall, I like her, and I think positive things about her. Vanessa Cade, while I respect her poker accomplishments, and clearly she has upped her game in recent times to where she's a strong competitor at, at some of these tough tournaments. So I, I have to respect that, male or female. I feel that she is constantly full of drama. She's one of these people who like brings drama wherever she goes. And a lot of times the drama is unnecessary. And sometimes even when she's in the right, such as with that Dan Bilzerian situation where he told her, shut up, ho, nobody knows who you are, which he shouldn't have done, uh, even that she milked and became kind of irritating with how much she was milking it. And she was somewhat hypocritical with constantly bashing Gigi Poker for having Bilzerian as an ambassador while she was quietly drawing a 2K check from them every month for being a past affiliate of theirs. So she was happy to bash them all the time and say how sexist they were, but has no issue taking their money, even though she wasn't actively representing them anymore. Basically, she's, quote, an affiliate, but bashing them and trying to keep people away from there. And then when they pulled that 2K, rightfully so, then she cried foul about it on Twitter, which is the only reason that we knew about it. And she had the nerve to say that they shouldn't have pulled this 2K away on International Women's Day because that's inappropriate. come on like these were things she's done and i've had some arguments with her on social media over time nothing that serious but i i've had some arguments with her over things they're not going to rehash them all but as time has passed my opinion of her has declined i i used to somewhat like her I used to think highly of her from what I knew of her. But then over time, I just kept thinking, you know, this girl is just kind of drama. This girl just always is creating controversy where it doesn't really need to be. And then often plays victim and then often acts persecuted. And I'm just kind of getting tired of this whole act. I didn't like it. So she doesn't like me. I don't like her. But as I said earlier, involving the other Vanessa, Vanessa Selbst, I try to be fair to everybody, and I try to honestly evaluate all situations, even if it involves people that I don't care for. And I'm going to do it here as well, even though I will say right away, and the reason I'm giving this little speech beforehand is I'm not going to pretend to be neutral. I'm not going to pretend that I think equally of these two women, and I'm going to be judging upon that basis with no preconceived notion about each of them. I do have beliefs about each of them, and one is pretty negative, and the other one is is fairly positive. So I I do want to put that out there for fairness when you hear what I have to say about this. And there's no way I can verify any of this stuff, because this is just 
stuff Veronica is saying, and I have no way to tell if this is all true, partially true, mostly true, false. It could be any of this. I, I don't think it's all false. I think it's unlikely that Veronica is just making all this up. But uh, we haven't seen a rebuttal from Vanessa Cade about this, which, by the way, is telling in itself because uh, I think if Veronica was just coming out of here and just outright lying, I think that Vanessa would call it out. So the fact that we haven't seen anything in response means there's at least some validity to this. And if I had to guess, I would say that this is uh, mostly or all true. But let's listen to what Veronica has to say. If you want to go watch it yourself, it's at the 26 minute, 11 second mark on the Nick Vertucci show called Poker Beefs. And I'll play it and then we can discuss it. I just recently heard from you that you had a pretty big beef with Vanessa Cade. Yeah. I don't follow that shit. So, yeah, tell me about it. I mean, it. I'm blocked. You're Shout blocked? Okay. So, you're, I can't really lead you other than that because I really don't know anything about it besides you said you had a beef with her and that she's a psycho bitch. Oh, my God. I didn't say that. Shut up. Don't oh. say that live. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I forget exactly how you put it, but go on. What's the beef? I think she probably did say that privately. <laughs> kind of like what nick don't say that out loud (laughs) no i mean like you know vanessa cade was a gg poker ambassador no and i've always had a good standing relationship with gg poker i've done content for gg poker let me stop for a second that is incorrect she wasn't a gg poker ambassador she was an acr ambassador she was a gg poker affiliate and she didn't disclose that at the time she was going off on gg like seemingly every day for having hired Dan Bilzerian as an ambassador and I thought it was incredibly hypocritical to be bashing 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 them and then taking a paycheck from them as an affiliate and not telling people that you're an affiliate taking a paycheck and then crying when the GG rightfully says you know what you're an affiliate you're supposed to promote us not bash us so that's the end of your deal and she's like oh my god unfair I'm like no not unfair you you made this choice but anyway back to this they have always treated me great. They have always, uh, I did an interview with Dan Bilzerian. I went to Dan Bilzerian's house. I did content for their Polish uh, Polish uh, GG poker. They have Polish GG yeah, poker? Yeah, yeah. They have a Does big. Both sides just lose? That's <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> kind of funny. Uh, the reason she did commentary with the Polish part is she is Polish. <laughs> yeah. How does that work? Everybody loses in the hand <laughs> except for the casino. Happy. Except for the Russian dealer. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. The only one that wins is the Russian dealer. <laughs> wow, that's pretty you good. You lose. Yeah, you Scoop pot. You lose. Communist Russia number one. Wow, I wasn't expecting that. That's pretty funny. Uh, for most people don't even know that Russia invades Poland and that um, I mean, we protect like, them. No, if you don't know so that, like, then. I know it, but... You know, I'm, I'm glad that, that you made it through at least the 12th grade. I'm very K proud through of 12. you. K yeah. through 12. K through 12. You number one big shoot. I number one. Very proud of you. You make, you bring joy to family. I number one big smart guy. Go. So yeah, what's so, your beef? So, I really don't even know what it is. We never talked I, you about know, it's it. A, it's kind of weird to me because I don't really know. She kind of went off on me. Uh, she started, and, and like I said, I, I'm a woman dealing with GG Poker. They've been good to me. And I'm not... I don't fucking work for GG Poker right now. Mm-hmm. They bought Poker After Dark. I still don't know what's happening with Poker After Dark. I'm in limbo. I may not go back on the show. 
But that being said, I can honestly say, and you know, I call out people online all the fucking time. Yeah, I, I watch. Them. I would call them up, but I've had nothing but good experiences with GG Poker. That's good. Steve has always been. Well, shout out to Steve. What's up, Steve? Steve's always been fucking cool to deal with. But okay, so uh, she gets on GG Poker mm-hmm. for hiring Dan Bulzarian as an ambassador. Okay, so she got on GG Poker because she was able to get them to hire Dan Blizzard. She was the conduit. No, no, no. She was mad that they hired him, and she fucking went on a tirade. Why would online. she care? Because she's a feminist, and she doesn't. Oh, she, and she doesn't because like, of him and the girls and all that. She thinks she, he's a douchebag. Yeah, and she didn't want GG Poker to okay. be represented by by Dan Bilzerian. Got and it. You know what? That's a different story. Like. Isn't it I, Gigi's poker decision since they're, it's their company? Sure, but she thought it was a bad look. I don't think it's a great look either. But look here. Here's what I think. Like with anything, with uh-huh. politics, with like ideas or anything, you going on a fucking rampage online is not going to change anyone's mind or make you look better. You just look like someone angry and then eventually becomes noise that no one wants to hear. If you- Exactly. 100% agree with her there. That, that was my first thought when I started to get a little bit negative on how I thought about Vanessa Cade. At first, I thought, oh, she's handling this great. You know, she was called a hoe. She changed her profile picture to that of a picture of an actual hoe, you know, like the gardening tool, and kind of laughed along with it, but also was highlighting how Dan Bilzerian was acting inappropriately. She, she was handling it perfectly at first, and then she just was going on and on and on and every day hassling GG about it. Every day. Okay, when are you going to fire Dan Bilzerian? Why are you guys such sexist? Why are you guys such misogynist? Why is Dan Bilzerian still there? Hey, GG Poker. Hey, hey, why are we getting no answer? Hey, guys, come on. Why is Dan still there? Like, it really, really got grading and people got tired of it. She made her point. They're not going to fire him. Let it go. That's it. He wasn't doing anything new. He moved past it also. So, okay, you said your piece. People were on your side. Great. Move on. She just kept on and on and on and was still quietly getting money from them. And Veronica's right. This just became noise. Whatever point she was making with it that people agreed with, they were starting to disagree because they were getting sick of reading it. If you're yelling a lot. You know what I mean? Even if your message is right. And when we're done with this, can we circle back to the Dan thing? I don't want to interrupt yeah, your yeah, story. No, okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, so I, don't get me wrong. I didn't think Dan was a great choice, but... Uh, Gigi's like, hey, you know what? You you like you seem like you're a good interviewer. You know, can you interview Dan uh, right after they hired him? Can you interview Dan at his house? And so I got to know him. Like, I think he's okay. I think he's had a lot of growth. Uh, anyway, so she fucking lost her shit on Gigi Poker. They parted ways. I kind of defended Gigi. Like, I was I stayed on. Like, I wasn't saying go Dan Bilzerian, but I was like, look, I'm working with Gigi. I don't have a problem with Gigi. Like, they've always been good with me. And so she just kind of lost her shit and like blocked me. And I heard she talked a lot of shit about me to my friends. Like okay. my friends told me. She didn't like that you didn't take the same stance and you're a woman and woman and she didn't like that. I'm a feminist, man. I but got it. I but also, she didn't like that because she thought that you should have carried the cross with her. I don't believe in that shit. This was interesting. This was the beginning of Vanessa not caring for Veronica very much because what had happened was Veronica met with Dan Bilzerian. I forgot the exact circumstances, but she spent some time with him in person and then came back and said that despite everything that's been said about him recently, because this was shortly after the whole thing with him calling Vanessa Kate a hoe, 
Vanessa or sorry, Veronica was saying that Dan wasn't a bad guy. That once you get to know him, once you spend some time with him, he seems okay. That there's a lot that's misunderstood about him. So she put out a lot of fairly positive things about her time that she spent with Bilzerian. And Vanessa Cade got really pissed off about this because this was somewhat invalidating her message that Bilzerian's this awful person who should never, ever, ever be representing any poker site because he's this awful, misogynistic, sexist jerk. So she kind of felt like, of all people, to put this message out that Bilzerian is okay is another female who has previously claimed that she's a feminist, which, by the way, I have seen feminist-type tweets from Veronica. So she's not lying about this. She's just much less of a radical feminist than Vanessa Cade was putting herself out to be. But the weird thing was that prior to that whole thing, Vanessa Cade wasn't like a radical feminist. She wasn't always waving that left-wing hyper-feminist flag. She just adopted that cause, it seemed, because it was convenient, in my opinion. So anyway, let's go on. I know that. I'm asking yeah, she, you that's yeah. why, correct? I Yes, I agree. And I also think, like, you know, I... I so there's, like... So, oh, I hate fucking using the word caddy. But there are, you know, there's like a rule, and Melissa talked about this on the Solve for Why podcast, that mm -hmm. women in poker, there's kind of a, a rule where we just support each other, especially publicly. Like, even if, if Jamie, you guys even support each other, even if someone's wrong or even if someone's No, a if someone's dick. wrong, I'm not going to support them. But like, what I'm saying is professionally, like, if Jamie's like, hey, I'm doing this, can you retweet oh. it? I'm like, oh, Jamie, sure, sure. for sure. Ebony calls me and she's like, hey, can you help me with this? 100%. Hey, can you publicly support this that it. I'm doing? I understand I'm there. what you mean. Yeah. And so, even if you kind of don't love someone or like are not the greatest fan of theirs, you still like don't say anything bad because there's so few of us in the space and it, it gets fucking stupid when we're all arguing. Mm -hmm. And so, I just thought like she kind of came across that way. She came across kind of like catty in that way right. and i'm like super happy for her i'm glad she won that 1.5 million dollars in that uh acr tournament and i think her and acr have parted ways i don't know she's fucking blocked me and i don't really because she sure is pretty i, I <laughs> okay uh i don't think that veronica is happy for her but putting that aside yeah she was with acr and then yeah she and acr did part ways and then she bashed acr on the way out Notice that Vanessa Cade is not currently representing any site, which, if you think about it, is a little bit weird. Because, let's look. Has Vanessa Cade had a lot of poker results in tournaments lately? Answer, yes. She's done great in tournaments lately. She's had some very large, high-profile scores. And she is female. And she's under 40. And she's relatively attractive. So all of this together should make her incredibly marketable as someone who would represent a site. But she's not. Ever since parting ways with ACR and not very amicably, she has not signed anywhere and notably not with PokerStars, which is where she won that big tournament where you think that would be a natural fit for her to be signed. And she's Canadian too. She's even someone who is in the market that they're trying to get players from. 
yet she hasn't signed anywhere. Why? Shouldn't there be a million offers on her desk to represent these sites? How, how come? How come there's none? Or at least none that are good enough that she wants to take. And I have to guess it's because of all the drama that follows her and the way she wrote about ACR after she represented them and the way she attacked GG Poker while she was an affiliate there. And other sites take note of this and go, we don't want this. For whatever positive she can bring from her poker results and the fact that she's a fairly attractive female under 40, we just don't want the baggage. We don't want the drama. We don't want to eventually be bashed later when she decides for some arbitrary reason she doesn't like us anymore. That speaks volumes that someone with her current stats and results and even looks has no sponsorship at the moment. That means that there's reasons they're staying away. It's just common sense. Because most females with those type of results who are under 40 and at least somewhat attractive will have a lot of offers to be an ambassador of the site for obvious reasons. And we've seen this since the very beginning when these online poker sites were having ambassadors. Now, yeah, those jobs are not as plentiful as they used to be, but believe me, she would be one they'd be after if it was not for all of the drama and all of the baggage. So that's very notable. Think about it. I saw her at the GPI Awards sitting in the corner by herself. Like, whatever. I don't care. Uh, and sorry, that was oh a little God. bit of a shot. That was just- <laughs> Wow. I think how she just says that. Yeah, so I saw her at the GPI Awards. She's sitting in the corner by herself. And anyway, like she's just saying it casually like she's describing it. When it, obviously that's a, a swipe at her that trying to say that nobody liked her there and she's sitting by herself. All right, let's go on. Not, that was catty. I'm just, look, I'm just not a huge fan. <laughs> that was I, like, it's fine. I'm happy for her. I, I think I saw her at a final table at a high stakes event at the win at the at Encore, and I was like really happy that she was there. But it doesn't mean I'm a fan of hers. You know, like I'm happy for her. Good for her. Good for okay. you. Okay. You go. I and guess that's gets, a that's a good way to be. Her friends told me she gets so fucking mad. I I had a video uh, on my YouTube channel, and someone referenced her in the video, and I put like the nicest picture of her up, and I tried to say like really nice things, and her friends messaged me. They're like, she's so fucking mad about that video. I'm like, why? She's just like doesn't fucking like anything I do, so like I don't fucking care. Like, good for you. I want you to have success. Like, you know, keep me blocked. This is really a tender spot ish. Kinda. Like you have passion. There's only you room have pa- for one blonde. <laughs> yes, I have a feeling it's more about that because there's. No, I'm joking. No, no, I know I'm joking. There's there's passion in your voice when you speak of it. I just don't. You know what? Like I like a relationship. Like Jamie Kerstetter and I are friends, and we don't talk all the time. We don't. We're not like super duper close. But if she fucking calls me, and needs something, I'm fucking there. If she's like, I'm in town, I need somewhere to stay. Stay with me. I'm here for you. You need a retweet. I'm there. You want me to show up to the meetup game and promote it? I'll fucking do it. And like that's what it is. That's what I think it should be like. And there's no. There's no like jealousy like I want her to succeed and if I fucking never show up on another podcast or TV show again great I don't fucking care I got other shit going on I'm happy for whoever succeeds that's what I'm saying I just like I don't like jealousy in my life I don't like yeah. jealous people hmm. yeah I, Maybe some I, people have a jealousy I, this problem is, I just know. so you know and you know this this is all news to me 
All right. I don't track any of this. I don't even know. I I didn't know anything you were going to tell me until you just spit it. I was on in the comments in Doug Polk's uh, podcast when he went live on one of his shows. And I swear to God, and this is like such a crazy thing that someone would do, but I don't know who else would do this. There was a girl named Sarah in the comments and li- oh no it was joey's it was joey's podcast there's a girl named sarah in the comments who was like veronica you ruined vanessa cade's career veronica vanessa cade isn't on poker after dark because of you i'm like i don't control who's on poker after dark that's brent i have no say in in like who gets to go on anything in poker after dark i literally they're like go on stage left i go to stage left you're going to interview daniel negrano now okay i interview daniel negrano there's no like i have no control over anything at poker go your interviews were boring shut the fuck up <laughs> uh poker after dark is a historic iconic show okay. anyway let me finish this you but did not have some, the latitude you have here go there was some uh, compared to this they probably are but there were there was some woman named sarah that was like harping on me that i have destroyed vanessa cade's existence by doing i don't know what i fucking did and i'm like who would do this is there some woman out there dedicating her life to saving vanessa cade or is it vanessa cade in her burner account well, it bothered you because you're still talking it's about stupid. it. It's stupid. Yeah, because no, it's stupid. I'm, I'm talking about it because I'm on a fucking podcast because we're talking about shit. <laughs> but it's not like I bring this up when every you, Monday. Oh, time out. Time out. Okay. So I need some tequila. I uh, I baited you. That's what you do to me when you bring up a subject like VPIP and I say something and you go, you're awfully defensive about it. I'm like, you fucking <laughs> asked. <laughs> you brought it up. What do you want me to do? Shut up. I'm not mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jeez. No, I mean like it it was it was just funny. I don't I don't know if it was Vanessa, I don't think it was you. I don't think so. I she think sure is that. pretty though. <laughs> I'm just saying she's you're not such, she's not bad looking. You're such can I ask you, go a ahead, sexist. All right. So you can go listen to the rest if you want. But you get the gist of this. You get the gist that Veronica does not care for Vanessa. Vanessa does not care for Veronica. I also get the impression from listening to this, and, and I don't know any of this for a fact or anything. This is just my impression. And I, I'm not friends with any of these people, so no one's told me anything. But I kind of get the impression that there kind of is like a girl group in poker, even ones that aren't really close friends, kind of as she described, that at least think enough of each other to stay out of each other's way, not bash each other, maybe promote what each other are doing. And I, I think that Vanessa Cade might be on the outside of all of this. I think that there's this group that they are all kind of at least somewhat supporting one another and somewhat friendly with one another. And then there's kind of Vanessa, like, we don't like you. You you go sit at the uh, table by yourself and we're going to sit at the cool kids table. And this this isn't really a criticism of of the girls who are like friendly with one another. I, I think that on the other end of this, that, Vanessa has pissed enough people off to where I think there's enough people who don't like her, and I'm talking about other girls, that they just kind of quietly stay away from her. And I think that's what Veronica was trying to say, is that she's not in this group here, that she's not someone that anyone really wants to be that close with, except for uh, some select people who, who like uh, Vanessa. Now, Vanessa does have a, uh, a fan base I've seen, and I've seen it whenever I've argued with her that I have these people jumping on me, male and female, 
that, that really give it to me hard. So Vanessa definitely has people that like her, and she has friends within the community, and she has fans within the community of both genders. But it looks like of a lot of these prominent women in poker that, according to Veronica here, they, they don't seem to care for her very much. That's kind of interesting. It's interesting to think about. I don't know, Druff. I don't think either of these women are going to pass that criteria for supporting other women in poker. <laughs> Just the, the way they're going back and forth with each other. I, I don't know. Well, I'll also say this, that when it comes to, I should say, uh, social ability and relating to other people and being able to kind of connect with others and be liked from a social standpoint. Uh, clearly, Veronica seems to have more skills in that area that uh, when I've seen Vanessa, she kind of comes off a bit awkward. Uh, now, before that, I, I thought that was in, in some ways an endearing quality that she was just kind of a regular girl that was just kind of keeping her head down and playing poker. And at the time, I, I said she was always positive. She was always... Uh, I said sunshine and rainbow is what I said at one point, but that, that very much changed. It seemed like she very much changed. And now, though, it, it seems more like that a lot of people just see that whatever she does, wherever she goes, drama follows, and people are sick of it. That, that's what I'm seeing here. And this can happen to you if your presence makes enough people uncomfortable and frustrated and especially if they feel that if they call it out that they're going to be attacked and that the Twitter mob's going to come after them and whatever, they, they, they just start wanting to push you away. And that might be why Vanessa had the impression that Veronica kept her off uh, Poker After Dark. And I don't know how much influence Veronica actually had there. She may have had more than she's claiming. She may not have had any influence at all. It's hard to tell. But the truth is, on a show like Poker After Dark, all it takes is one or two people to say, yeah, I don't like this person, I don't want him here, and they'll tend to respect that request and keep them away, unless it's like a very big name. Like You can say that about uh, Phil Helmuth, they're not going to keep him out because he's a huge draw. But someone who's kind of a marginal person to be on there in the first place, all it takes is a few of the prominent people there to say, we really don't want this person, we don't like them, we don't want to have them at the table with us, it's going to ruin the vibe, then they'll probably say, okay. So who knows? I do think it's possible that Poker After Dark chose not to invite Vanessa Cade because some people said they didn't like her, but that's kind of on Vanessa Cade for making people not like her. And I've, I've seen it. I've seen reasons why people wouldn't, I, and I've seen it personally. I've seen it where I have been vilified, when I haven't uh, really done anything to deserve that, where I, I will criticize something i may say i disagree with something or criticize something but boy i've come i've been come at very hard in response like i'm not allowed to have an opinion that i don't agree with something she's doing or saying and honestly uh, eventually i just kind of stopped mentioning her at all on twitter because i got tired of of the reaction unless it's something really important I've decided I'm just going to pretty much not mention her there because people just go so nuts. And I think that a number of people probably have that impression. So, yeah, I, I didn't know it was this deep between the two of them. But, boy, you can you can tell that these two uh, really don't care for one another. Enough to where Veronica went and did this whole long segment. Wait, this is like a 10-minute long segment already with a lot of 
pretty unflattering things and allegations being said. I've been checking Vanessa Cade's Twitter, which I have to do without logging in because I'm blocked. I haven't seen a response to any of this, which is a little surprising because Vanessa Cade does like drama and does like to respond to these sort of things, but she hasn't responded from what I've seen. So it makes me think that these stories have to have some validity. Otherwise, she would say, hey, look, uh, this is being made up. I never did or said any of this stuff. Veronica's just making it all up. There's just nothing from her about this. 100% she knows. 100% she watched that. It's not even in question, especially because Nick Fertucci actually did at Vanessa Cade when he was promoting this show. So 100%, she gets this mention that she's being talked about. 100% she's going to go watch it, as would I if I were being talked about. So 100% she's seen it, unless she's in a coma somewhere. But we've seen no response, which makes it look like she didn't realize that Veronica knew all this stuff that was said behind her back and doesn't want to get into it. She also just may be worried that she'll be on the other side of the Twitter mob, that maybe more people will take Veronica's side and people will be really nasty to her and mean to her and she doesn't want anyone, like, even want to do it. It could be one of many reasons. But I'm a little surprised she hasn't defended herself here, especially because this is a well-watched show now. This is not some niche thing that 30 people have watched. This has 8,000 views already. But the lack of response at least means there's some validity here. Because as I said, there's no way Vanessa K to stay quiet if this is just like all made up or all so off base that Vanessa sitting there going, wait, this is totally all not true. This all never happened or mostly never happened. I, I've got to say something like there's no way she keeps quiet if this is all made up. Definitely some drama. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, this is Tyrone Chan. How are you? Tyrone, hello. So uh, what, what do you have to say here tonight before we go on with the segment? Oh, yeah, I appreciate that. First of all, uh, I I thank you very much for giving me all this time of entertainment, especially when you talk about different subjects and uh, most of the book about the poker uh, poker is something I dearly love. And second of all, I want to say thank you to Kawa about the Vegas scene, all those things I find very, very interesting. I do agree that uh, Vegas is killing the, the nickel and dime and killing the, killing the tourist industry eventually because uh, not too many people are going to come eventually, you know. So uh, that's the second thing. And first thing I'm going to say about is that uh, JRB is basically is a very, very interesting guy. And he's, he basically is uh, uh, able to angle and angle I'm not quite sure it's angle or unethical, but uh, it basically uh, is very interesting to able to get people uh, give him money. That's that's why I basically say on on this thing. That's all. I'm, that's all. 
Okay, that's well, no, that, that's definitely true. I, I, I've always been fascinated with the whole thing that uh, of what he's been able to do and how long he's been able to do it. And eventually he was able to parlay this into some real success because of the access to those private games and the funding to play them. And uh, you know, it's, it's a real talent he has there. And uh, it's, it's paid off, and it definitely paid off in this uh, Hustler Casino Live that he got in there. And uh, he was invited to the game because he's seen as a personality they like to have there as well. So that... Uh, also helped him, but anyway, yeah. Th- thank you, Tyrone. I appreciate you as a listener. I appreciate the uh, the emails you send me. He sends uh, very encouraging and nice emails to me sometimes. I appreciate that. Uh, and uh, so, anyway, Tyrone, uh, appreciate the college. Anything else you wanted to bring up, or is that it? Oh yeah, that's uh, that's about it. Uh, that's that's about it. And, uh, uh, by the way, Kawa, I really, really uh, enjoy your Vegas. Vegas story and everything else, especially I spend most of my time living in Vegas. I well, hold on. I think I think you're confused. It's actually uh, Brandon Drexel Gerson who does the Vegas stuff usually. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, Brandon's going to be on, sad here. Yeah, let me take the credit for it. Come on. <laughs> well, I'm trying. I'm hoping Brandon comes in tonight. He said he, he might uh, join the show tonight as he was here last uh, week. And if he hears that... Uh, his contributions here are being uh, credited to someone else. That might be the end of him. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It, it's okay. Cal, Cal uh, Watt uh, contributes often. in other ways here, many other ways. Yeah, it's not too often you got so many co-hosts on, on the show at the same time. That, that is true. That, that they all kind of take their shifts. I'm the I'm the one fool who does it for all, <laughs> all eight hours. Okay, so, uh, so thank you, Tyrone, and... Uh, Always uh, happy to hear from you. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye, Tyrone, who's is one of our uh, older listeners for sure, living in Las Vegas, and an Asian man named Tyrone. That's his real name. He's in his mid seventies, and he listens to every show. Okay, now we're going to go a completely different direction. Calwatt, I know it's very late for you, but I've got a question for you. Yes. Were you on computer bulletin boards in the 1980s? 1980s. Um, Anytime, even 89. Y- yeah, sort of, yeah. Okay, so you'll be able to... Yeah, no, I, I was. I actually, uh, what am I saying? I actually ran one. <laughs> how, can you, how could you not know if you were on them and you ran one? What the heck? You remember something called Red Rider? Yes. A- anyway, whatever. Yeah, I, I, I was just fucking around with it. But it wasn't like a, a public thing or anything. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what you consider a bulletin board, but I remember CompuServe, I remember GE-Ne. Do you remember that? Yeah, remember yeah, yeah. GE-Ne in it? Yes. I, that kind General of counts, Electric too. Electric actually ran their own online service yes. back in the day. Yes, I remember Crazy. all of that. So anyway, the reason yeah. I'm bringing all this up is because it's a certain time of the evening. Oh, boy. Hello, Ken and Nigel Fabersham here. <laughs> it is time for Druffy Time Theater. Uh... Usually there's some sort of story that uh, Dandruff wants to tell you. Sometimes a customer service matter. Sometimes some situation with a woman he was dating in the past. This is none of this. Uh, For some reason tonight, he just wants to speak about a decade. He says, I was alive in the 1980s, and this is what I was doing with myself. And that's all. That's all he's going to do tonight. To just sit and ramble about what he did on his computer in the 1980s. I kid you not, this is the subject we're going to have this evening. But on with it. Thank you, Colonel Fabersham. 
who's been reduced to a introductory character here on the show and nothing else these days. This is Druffy Time Theater. It's been a little while. I'm starting to run out of things to talk about. I need more things to happen that are entertaining so I have some current stories to bring to you. I, I run out of past stories because the past is the past. It's finite. You never know what the future will bring, though. So this week, I decided that instead of talking about a particular story, I'm just going to tell you about what life was like online in the 1980s. Because I was online in the second half of the 1980s. I obviously was quite young at that point. I wasn't a little kid, but I was not an adult through any of it. I didn't turn 18 until early 1990. So I was a minor through all of it. But I was online in the second half of the 1980s. And I want to tell you what that was like because most of you were not alive. Not alive. Most of you were not online then. Most of you were alive then. In fact, we have a pretty old audience here. A lot of the audience is older than me. But still, most of you probably were not online. I know some of you were, but most of you weren't. And there's a lot of people who are not even aware that there was an online community in the 1980s. A lot of people think it began in the mid-90s when you could go on the web and when most people found some sort of internet access that they would purchase. That's when they remember it began. So what was going on in the 80s? Was the internet there? Well, actually, yes. The internet actually has been here since before I was born. In fact, before Kawa was born. In 1969 is not when that the, big of a difference. Come on, Druff. What? Well, between us, <laughs> I, I'm I'm trying yeah, to feel young on. here. I'm trying to feel like the youngster. But oh, yeah, yeah it, right. there is only yeah. two years though. That's true. 1969, though, before either of us were born, is when the internet began. It was called ARPANET, and it was actually meant to be a defense system, a communication system that could be used in the case that the U.S. homeland is attacked and telephone lines go down. That was the original point of the internet we know today. And there were only eight systems connected to the internet. So very, very tiny. Obviously, uh, people weren't getting on there and talking to each other. And until the mid-1990s, the internet was not really a major place where people got online to communicate socially. Now, it became more than just ARPANET, and eventually what it morphed into was something where people had access to it from certain large businesses and colleges. And then you could get on there and communicate in various ways, like uh, email, the email you know of today, you know, something at whatever.com. Uh, that existed back then, and you could email one another. There were ways, though they were kind of a pain in the ass. You could chat directly one-on-one -on -one with people. And uh, the main way people communicated socially was through something called news groups, where you could, it was kind of similar to forums, except it had no central storage. It was very strange. It was that you'd post a message and it would propagate through all other systems that carried news groups and eventually appear everywhere. So Basically, everybody who connected to their local news group server could see these messages, and then they'd post, and then that would propagate to all the other servers, and everybody would see it, and that's how it would work. So that was the way people 
really communicated socially for the most part on the internet was through email and through these news groups where they would, uh, that was kind of the public meeting place on the internet until the mid-1990s when public internet access was something that was a thing where you could just buy access to the internet. At first it was dial-up for most people, but at least you could dial into the internet. And then there was also the web. The web itself was invented in 1993, which was the graphical interface to the internet. Prior to that, it was all text. There was no such thing as a World Wide Web prior to 93. So the years I'm talking about, the 80s, of course, there was no World Wide Web. And aside from the people who were going on these news groups and uh, then getting to know each other and emailing each other occasionally, uh, really, there was not that much social interaction on the internet at all. In fact, you really didn't hear much about the internet outside of these uh, particular circles. So mostly if you wanted to get online and communicate with other people, you would do something known as calling into either computer bulletin boards or large services like uh, CalWatt mentioned, such as CompuServe. What you would do is you would have a modem that would be either external to your computer or actually built into your computer with like a, a circuit board that would plug into your computer and uh, into an expansion slot. But either way, you would hook up a physical phone line into it, you know, the same way you'd plug a regular telephone. You would then plug a phone jack into the modem. And you may remember this from the way you were connecting to the internet back in the 90s and maybe early 2000s. And you would dial into whatever system you want to use. So this was not like dial-up internet where you would just be dialing in to connect to the internet itself, and then you could go on whatever website you wanted around the world. That wasn't what was going on here. You were dialing directly into whatever system, large or small, that you wanted to use. So if you wanted to go on a large system like CompuServe, which is a subscription system, you'd actually have to pay monthly to be a member of CompuServe. Uh, you would dial a phone number, a local phone number that CompuServe would give you. Because remember, back in those days, you couldn't just call up any phone number you wanted for free. You could only call within a small area like within 12 miles or so from your house. And if CompuServe's only phone number was, say, in uh, Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco, then if you didn't live local to that, then you would be spending a lot of money per minute to call into CompuServe. So they had phone numbers all over the place that you could call into locally. But That's something that may be a foreign concept to people too, Druff, is that you actually had to pay... For long-distance calls. Yes, right? yes. And, and by the yeah. way, I'm, I'm going to get into something where people were avoiding paying for long-distance calls illegally. But yeah. uh, right. <laughs> that's also a big part of the 80s uh, computer bulletin board scene. But So there were big services like that. And then there actually were local computer bulletin boards that people would set up in their home. That they, just with their regular home computer, would run software that usually they bought or got for free, uh, uh, it was distributed for free. Some was free, some was, uh, you had to pay for it once and then you could use it. But uh, they would run this computer bulletin board software out of their home. They would dedicate a phone line to it. They'd have to pay for a phone line just for this for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's all it would be used for. And then you would dial into their system and their system would automatically answer and you would connect to it, and then you would directly use their bulletin board software. And most of these were only one line. So what would happen if you tried to call up 
and somebody else is on it, you would get a busy signal. Remember the busy signal? Probably haven't heard one in a long time. I still occasionally reach them, like calling local businesses. Once in a while, I will still give, get uh, busy signals. When was the last time you heard a busy signal when you've made a call, Calwatt? It happened relatively recently, and I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> you're like, you're like is this 1985? What the hell? Yeah, yeah it's, it's bizarre. Yeah, this is what it sounds like. That was a very familiar sound back in the 80s. And yeah, what, what you're talking about is exactly what I was running out of my house. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you would try to call into a bulletin board, you'd have to call in when other people were not on there, if it's a one-line system. Now, some of the more expensive systems were not one line. Some of them had several lines. Some of them had as many as 16 lines into them. But obviously, these got more and more expensive to run. Not only was the software more expensive that would support this, but also you'd have to pay for each phone line. And this got quite expensive to run. So most of these multi-line systems tended to be subscription systems. Even if they were run out of somebody's house, you would typically have to pay them every month to be a member there. And the one-line systems almost never were subscription systems. These would just be hobbyists that would run it out of their home. And they were just happy to have anyone call up and be part of it. And what would you get when you'd be on these things? Because you may wonder, what would be the point? Why would you call up to connect to a system where nobody else can be on at the same time? Because that's only one line. Well, you wouldn't be able to chat live with anyone except the guy running it, which, by the way, it could be annoying. You could be just like going about your business and doing you know, whatever the bulletin board offers, and then you get interrupted. And the person who runs it, who is known as the SysOp, which stands for a system operator, would just interrupt you and say, hey, what's up? Hey, what's going on? And like, you don't want to say, hey, leave me alone. I'm using your system. I don't want to talk to you because then they'll get pissed and throw you off. So you, you have to be polite to them and just uh, make small talk and whatever until they, they go away and then let you go on your way. But that's the only person you could chat with live. And what you'd really be doing there was you could go through the uh, message boards on there where uh, – they're sometimes referred to as pubs, meaning public boards, where you could uh, post messages, very much like the Poker Fraud Alert Forum, except unlike the Poker Fraud Alert Forum, where everybody can be connected at once, and uh, they, 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 they're not all waiting for one person to leave for the next person to connect, it's still the same concept where you're posting messages and then waiting for others to respond with their messages, and then you respond back later to their messages, and, and this can all occur over periods of days or weeks. So that's how these conversations went. It was very much like a modern forum. And then there was also two other things people would typically do on these computer bulletin boards. One of them would be play online games. And you may wonder again, how can you play an online game with nobody else online? Well, what you would do is you would be making some kind of progress in the game. It's like a one-player game where you make some kind of progress, you earn a certain number of points, you you get certain types of uh, equipment or whatever it is in the game, and you get to play for a certain amount of time, and then you have to stop for the day, and then others can play also and catch up to you. And there are also ways that people could play against your character without you being there, where the computer kind of plays for you, uh, kind of like in, in role-playing game format. So I actually wrote two games like this as a teenager, one of which was fairly successful, not financially successful, but was fairly popular. And I did both of these when I was 15. 
1987. And really the second one was a spin-off of the first where basically it was the same game but with a different theme that was more popular. So do you remember the show uh, Max Hedrum from 1987? Of course. Yeah, it was a good show. It was uh, kind of ahead of its time, uh, kind of a dystopian show. Uh, it was, was when MTV still played music, right? Yeah, it was actually wasn't on MTV, though. It was... Uh, it was first on Cinemax, of all things, and not many people saw that. But then uh, th- the main show people did get to see was on ABC. It didn't do very well, but it was on ABC, and that's probably what you remember seeing. And also there were a series of commercials in Max Hedrum, mostly promoting uh, Coke and making fun of Pepsi. Uh, Max Hedrum, the, the backstory behind the character was that the it, there was a reporter – whose name was Edison Carter, a fictional reporter, that when he was uh, fleeing some criminals chasing him, when he was trying to get away, banged his head on the top of a garage, of of a business's garage that said, max headroom, 10 feet, meaning like maximum room for your head. And uh, he slammed his head into it, and that was the last thing he saw was max headroom. So then... uh, uh, being unsure he was going to survive, they took a scan of his brain, and then somehow it created this character that was based on him, this virtual character that called itself Max Hedrum because it was the last thing that uh, he saw. But then Edison Carter ended up surviving, so there ended up being him and Max Hedrum. And then they would uh, have... It was kind of like uh, they didn't, they couldn't do anything together because Max Hedrum was a virtual character, but Max Hedrum was kind of... Uh, character kind of in the background who would make uh, witty comments about things. It was a pretty good series. Uh, it didn't really catch on with the public because I think it was kind of too complicated for a lot of people to understand. But I liked it as a 15-year-old. And I think it's one of these things if I saw today, I'd probably still like. It wasn't even thing like one of those things you'd like as a teenager but sucks when you're an adult. I think I would actually probably still like it if I saw it again. So anyway, uh, I really liked that character and the whole thing. So I actually made one of these games called Max Headroom. And it was based upon that show. Uh, the problem was the game uh, wasn't that great. The theme of it wasn't that great. It was a role-playing game, but the theme wasn't that great. You basically had to go up uh, 30 floors in this uh, uh, network that was center- central to the show. And when you get to the top, you fight like a boss character and you win and you're kind of competing with the other people on the BBS as, as what floor you're going to get up to. And whoever gets to 30 and beats the boss character wins. That was basically the game. And then I'd have uh, Max Hedrum himself appear in text format only. He wasn't a, it was a text game uh, that would make kind of witty comments along the way. So that, that was the point of Max Hedrum. It didn't do all that great. People weren't all that interested in it. So what I decided to do is rather than just say, all right, well, I tried and this wasn't very successful. Oh, well, I said, you know what? What if I just basically take the same game and make a different theme out of it. Just almost made like a different skin for it. And pick something that's maybe more fun. So I that's exactly what I did, and it worked. And what happened, the reason I uh, came up with the concept I did, which I'll tell you about in a second, was that, remember, when you're on these computer bulletin boards, you're connected to somebody's computer. And you're using a piece of software they have installed on that computer. And I had always wondered, like, what would happen if something went wrong and it just dropped me 
in the command prompt where I could access everything on their own computer. Like I used to think like, oh, could I poke around and see all their stuff? Like I kind of had this fantasy, like what if this ever happened and what would I do? Well, believe it or not, it actually did happen one time. And on a BBS I was on, I actually was dropped to a command prompt. And I, I was able to look around, but I liked the guy who's, who ran it, so I didn't want to be a dick and look through all his stuff, so I actually just uh, hung up and then told him about it. But it, I thought back to that, and I said, you know what would be funny? What if instead of this Max Hedrum game, which is kind of you know, generic like all these other sort of uh, role-playing online games that are connected to these BBSs, what if I made it look like that the user of the game, like that every player is just dropped at the command prompt, which was called a C prompt then. What if it makes it look like you just dropped into that, like I was that time in reality? And then they would probably type DIR for directory. And uh, people knew that back then, because that was very common. And then they would see the instructions for the game, but they would see instructions as if they are looking at a an actual directory of files. And by the time they actually try to execute one of these uh, programs, then they realize they're in a game. So that was the theme that I came up with. And I even made it to where it would detect if the person was connecting either with an IBM PC or clone type computer or with an Apple II type computer. So if they were on an Apple, it would give them an AppleSoft basic prompt. And then if they typed catalog, it would do the same thing. So I even accounted for that, which are the two really systems that anyone would be using in those days for the most part. So that was the theme I made. And the game itself was called Leech. And the reason it was called Leech is not about the uh, the creature that you'll find uh, attaching to your skin in the water, but this was a term at the time for people who go on bulletin boards and are just kind of a drain on their resources but don't really contribute anything of value. Because uh, the third thing you can do on bulletin boards, which I'll talk about more a little bit later, but the third thing you could do is you could uh, down- upload and download files. A lot of times it was pirated software. Sometimes it was like shareware and freeware, but sometimes it was pirated software that people would uh, trade on these boards. And the common allegation for people leeching was that they would come on there and do nothing but just tie up the phone line downloading pirated software they want and contribute nothing. So they wouldn't upload anything. They wouldn't post any messages. They wouldn't do anything that would help the community on that system. All they would do is just tie up the line downloading software they want and leave. That was known as a leech, and if you were accused of leeching, you usually uh, thrown off the system and not allowed to come back, kind of the equivalent of being banned. So I called it leech, and the whole concept was that you were a leech and that you were someone who uh, was a leech that, that found access into the system, and then you're att- attempting to hack other bulletin boards and take control of those as well. And you're basically in a competition with other leeches that are trying to do the same thing. And then when you get to the end, you keep moving up in levels as you uh, do more and more of this. When you get to the end, then the boss character you kind of fight is this uh, fictional group of, of leeches that has been supporting you the whole way that now you're trying to take them over and be the leader of it yourself. That was the theme. Very popular. People loved it. That was way better than Max Hedrum. People really enjoyed Leech. So it became a popular game. However, I made one big mistake. The big mistake I made was that I felt that people didn't trust me because I was a 15-year-old kid. And 
I also was kind of outspoken and pissed people off sometimes. I know that's hard to believe, but uh, uh, I I had some detractors on there, people who didn't like me, people who didn't trust me. So, like, I thought, okay, if I release a game like this, especially one with a hacking theme to it, even though it, it was just all part of the game, there's no real uh, danger to the systems that ran it, I was afraid that people would think I'm inserting backdoors in there that would allow me to really take over these systems. And by the way, this was very easy to do and very possible. So this was something I could have done. And I was afraid that no one would want to run Leech if uh, I didn't make it to where they could see that it's totally safe. And the only way I could make it see that it's totally safe, what do you think it is, Calwad? What was the only thing I could do to make it see, the, make the people running the bulletin board see that it's safe? I have no idea. Distribute the source code. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I distributed the source code, meaning the actual program I wrote, and uh, they could inspect it, and then they could actually compile it themselves, meaning make it into something that could run on their computer, and then they could be... What was that? What was it written in? It was written in Pascal. Pascal. Yes, this is the 80s. Yeah, I got you. So, uh, and I distributed it that way, so people, anyone who was skeptical or didn't trust me, could look through it and say, "Okay, look, I, I looked through the whole thing, and it, it you know it sounds c- like a complicated program, and you couldn't just go through it in ten minutes, but it wasn't something that was going to be a tremendous effort to quickly scan through and see if there's anything in there that would be malicious." So, this gave everybody the opportunity who doubted anything to see it was safe. Well, on the plus side, that worked, and it became very popular, and nobody was afraid to run it. On the minus side. When you distribute the source code, this allows anybody to copy the game and make their own version of it. And that's what people started doing. They stole my game, slightly changed the theme, and released their own version of the game. And this was so rampant in the late 80s that there started to become a term on these bulletin boards as a leech clone, referring to the online games that were released for these bulletin boards. It's it's just another game that was directly copied from mine. Someone who really liked Leech in the 80s actually recreated it for an internet BBS system that he wrote in the 2000s. And he actually called it Leech 2000, and you can still find it if you Google it. You can't play it, but uh, you can still see the guy talking about it. That was my game. So you can see proof that someone... uh, This is popular enough that in the 2000s, someone actually remembered having played it in the late 80s and made their... uh, And basically ported it over to their system that they wrote, like an internet bulletin board system. And I even contacted the guy and uh, just kind of told him, hey, I I have no problem with you doing this. I just want to let you know I'm the one who originally wrote the game as a 15-year-old. When I went to college and uh, I met my college roommate... He was also a computer guy, and I asked him, have you heard of Leech? And he said, yes, I've heard of Leech, and I used to play Leech. So I thought, oh, that's cool. My roommate <laughs> played my game before meeting me. So that, uh, unfortunately, I didn't make any money from this, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of people ripped it off, and I got really pissed off. I, this really got me angry that it was getting ripped off like this, and, and I was getting no credit. So anyway, back to, back to the uh, main story here. I, I kind of got sidetracked with my anger at people ripping off my game as a teenager. But those are the three things you could do. You could post messages, you could play online games, and you could download or upload software. Yeah, that's the big one, is 
a lot of those BBSs were used for sharing files, shall we say. Yes, and this was very, very common. It was much more common for teenagers and uh, I guess even young people that aren't teenagers uh, in the 1980s to get their games on whatever type of computer they had through downloading them illegally, pirating them basically, rather than buying them. Uh, if someone had such and such game you know, that you wanted to play, there's a high chance that they got it via piracy rather than buying it in those days. And there were some BBSs out there that the sole purpose of them was pirating software. And in fact, a kind of subculture evolved to where they talked about zero to one day wares. And what that meant was that once a game was more than one day old, it wasn't worth getting anymore. And you might wonder, what? Why Why would anyone not want a game that's more than one day old? Why does that matter if a game's two days old if you haven't even played it yet? Well, it became more of like a game just to get the newest stuff that drops rather than actually use it. And I, I never felt that way. I thought that was stupid, even as a kid. But some of those bulletin boards would only allow zero to one day wears on them and if you uploaded anything that was over one day they'd throw you off so yeah, that there were people that made it there they were kind of making names for themselves by trying to hack games first as soon as they came out to remove whatever copy protection was on them right and there was there so was you'd so boot up the games and they'd have cracked by you know whatever whatever the person was yes that's that's exactly yeah. true that's that's what happened in those days that they the software companies that made these games were tired of this happening and they tried to prevent these <laughs> games from being pirated in this way and, the, and the, it was a fool's errand because it, within a short time someone would figure out how to break the protection and the game would and, be pirated and a lot of times anyway. the people that were doing it like i knew some people that did it that they weren't even necessarily doing it because they cared about the game. They just enjoyed the challenge of trying to crack whatever protection was. Right, it was. And, and there, there was yeah. there was always like a screen cracked by whatever, yeah. and there were certain names you saw over and over. It was always like screen names, yep. kind of like on Poker Fraud Alert where most people are not using yep. their real names. It's always some screen name. and So that that was uh, a big thing then in the 80s uh, on these uh, but it, it wasn't just software, though. Like on some of these bulletin board systems, they, they would be themed with different things and it, it sometimes would be music or pictures or, you know, a whole bunch of different stuff. Yes. Yes, there was, there was a lot of different uh, type of boards out there. And something else... The kids these days don't know how how easy they have it. You know, they want to see porn, it just pops right up. We had to wait, Drove. We had to slowly watch the line come down line by line <laughs> by line, right? <laughs> it was worse. In those days, you couldn't even download any graphics like that. Like, it was even hard to get any kind of picture. And in fact, the and, and of course, the resolution was so terrible that it wasn't yep. even worth downloading. Uh, the, the funny things were actually like uh, ASCII porn ASCII pictures. Porn, where, yeah, yes, yeah. where they would actually, yeah. with just using letters from the keyboard, you, you, would, you would print it out and then you'd kind of back up and you'd see what looks like an image of a naked woman. I'm not even kidding. Like They really had that. Yeah. No, for real. <laughs> and Life was tough back then, man. It was tough. It was, but I'm going to tell you in one way it wasn't tougher. And that was, these were local systems. And I'm not talking about the ones that are about the pirate the pirated software, but the ones where people would actually talk on the on the forum equivalent there, the message boards. Just about everybody calling in was from the local area. So where the advantage came in here is if you made friends on these systems, they didn't live across the country. And you could all get together and meet up. And you could actually make real-life friends that you hung up with 
uh, through these bulletin boards. Whereas today on the internet, you could make a friend, but they can be very, hard, be very, very far away and it'd be tough to see them. And they would have get-togethers every so often for some of these computer bulletin boards where you'd meet up at a pizza place or whatever and everybody would meet each other in person for the first time. Or sometimes not for the first time, but they'd have get-togethers every so often where anyone can show up and everybody's encouraged to show up and meet each other. So those took place. You may wonder, what about girls? Is it possible there are any girls on these things? The answer is yes. Not many, but yes. Now, these single-line bulletin boards, there were very, very few girls. Once in a while... Worse than poker, Druff. Yeah, it was worse than poker, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) On the single line, it was almost all dudes. But I'll tell you where you could find some girls. And I stumbled into this. Actually, uh, the first year I got a uh, a modem for my computer, which was in 1986, I stumbled onto one of these within a few months. And it was called DYM. And that stood for Dial Your Match. And there were a lot of these. This wasn't the only Dial Your Match. It was like Dial Your Match number 191 or whatever. And uh, this was some kind of proprietary software that someone would buy and then they'd start a system. I forgot if it was even multi-line or not, but you had to be a member. And you, I think you had to pay for it, but I did. I know I didn't pay. Maybe you had limited access without paying. I, I know I never paid, but this was the first computer bull, This is the first one I ever went on that had like a dating theme to it where, where there actually were women. But of course, I was 14 in 1986. So were there really any other 14-year-olds on there that were female? Actually, yes. And the weirdest thing was uh, there weren't many. But I remember I was talking to the guy who ran it. I was chatting with the guy who ran it. He was like in his 20s. And I don't know if this guy was a pervert or what, but he's like, he's telling me about this girl on there that was from uh, Long Beach, which is about like 20 miles away from where I lived. And that, oh, she's so nice. And oh, she's so pretty. You should get to meet her. He's like really trying to hook us up. And he just kept going on about how pretty she is. I kind of, even at the time, I thought the guy might be some pervert who likes teenage girls. But uh, anyway, I was 14 and she was 14. And he really kept encouraging me to message her. So, so I did. And, and she was very nice. Uh, the problem was uh, we, we had uh, no way to see each other. So it never even really got there. Like, I couldn't drive to her. She couldn't drive to me. We're 20 miles away. Like, it just kind of felt weird to have uh, my mom drive me down there. 20 miles rough. Ride your bike. Come on. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, we never got that far. We never even got to the point where we talked on the phone. But And also, I, I had no experience with girls at that point at all. So I didn't even really know how to talk to her very well. But it, it didn't even get that far. That was the first exposure I had to that sort of thing. But then I, after I left that thing... I kind of was just back on those uh, regular bulletin boards with all dudes. But then I found these multi-line systems, these big multi-line systems that had like 16 lines and people there could chat live. They could go into a group chat, kind of like what we have on Poker Fraud Alert. In fact, the, the, the funny thing is the, the Poker Fraud Alert chat room is probably even older than the group chat that I used in 1988. <laughs> I remember some of those group chat things even, you know, later on than you're talking about. I <laughs> I always believed that there were more dudes pretending to be girls than there were girls on there. Well, okay. You know what I, mean? there, there I, was, I was always very skeptical. There was some of that, and there was uh, skepticism. I was one of the leading skeptics of this. Like, I, I would start to get suspicion that some of these girls were dudes. But, but believe it or not, most of them on there really were girls. And I know because I 
would meet them because they would have meetups and they'd show up there and they were real girls. Uh, what was a mystery to me then, and especially now thinking back to it, is like, how did the girls even find their way there? <laughs> like, how, how did, I, they could, but it's just not something you expect girls to do because not many people were on these overall. Like the average teenager then had no idea this stuff even existed. So yeah, some geeky guys could find this, but do you really expect girls to find it? But somehow some did, and, and they gravitated to these multi-line systems. And yes, they were very much outnumbered by the guys, but there were girls on there, and you could chat with them both in the group setting and also... Maybe if, they like their odds, Jeff. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe and, they were smart. And, and you could chat with them both in the group setting, and also, if they're willing, you could chat with them directly one-on-one. And I thought, wow, this is sweet. But I, I, I wondered what they looked like. I was wondering, you know, these girls that come on something like this, maybe these are like the ugliest of the ugly girls. And when I meet them in person, that I'm going to not be the slightest bit attractive. And I was being realistic. I wasn't expecting uh, uh, like nines or tens to show up there. And if they didn't, I was going to reject them. I, like that's, that, that wasn't what I was uh, thinking there. I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't uh, demanding that. But uh, I, I was wondering, like, were these even okay looking girls well surprisingly yes not all of them but there were a lot more attractive girls than you would have expected from hearing this described i don't know how this happened it it still kind of surprises me thinking back but yes there actually were some girls on there that were teenagers that were uh above average looking and in some cases uh way above average looking now obviously there was a lot of competition for them the good news was the competition was not very fierce. <laughs> There's a lot of it, but it wasn't very uh, tough competition. Because you know, a lot of the guys on there, they, they had absolutely no game, or they, they were uh, they were very unattractive. So if you were just like, like a normal-looking teenager, and uh, and you can talk to girls normally and, and not come off like a, like a weirdo, uh, you already had a big leg up. You already had a, a big advantage. So... I actually found that despite the numbers not being in my favor with meeting girls on there, that it was still a good place to meet girls because the competition was typically not very good. The, the competition to meet girls on there was much, much, much less than like getting, to gr- getting girls to like me in, in other settings where it's just normal teenagers, like at school or, or other social things where it's just me and regular teenagers. And sometimes there's a lot to compete with, even though that it's, maybe equal guys and girls there's you know a lot of guys who uh the girls really like and i have to compete with them but but on this on these things there were a lot of guys the girls did not like so if there's a whole lot of them it still doesn't matter because the competition is, is is not very strong it's kind of like being in a poker game where where everyone's a fish even if you're not the greatest player in the world so uh so i i like that i finally uh started meeting some girls from it took it took some time it took several months till I actually did it, even though I could drive at that point. But I just wasn't used to driving out of my immediate area. And I I, I don't know why. I just, for some reason, didn't want to drive anything beyond like 15 miles or so. So anything that was like 40 miles away, 30 miles away, it just seemed a big deal to go down there, which is funny because now I'll just go, hey, you know, uh, I'm going to go to Commerce. And I'm like, like, that, like, that takes an hour to get to even if there isn't much traffic from where I am. But I'll go there now. It's like no big deal. But then it was like, uh, oh, what a pain in the ass. I got to go 35 miles. I, I got to prepare for this for a long time to make a trip like this. So anyway, I, I eventually 
did meet some girls on there and did go out with some girls on there. And uh, the funny thing was, the one that uh, was probably the most significant was I lost my virginity to a girl that I met on one of these bulletin boards when I was 17 in 1989. And it's very possible that a broken arm was the original reason for it. The original reason it happened, because I had broke my arm skiing just before I turned 17. And I noticed something, that with a broken arm, typing one-handed was very difficult, and I hated it, and it was like a chore. So I'm sitting on there, and I want to be on there, but I hate the fact that I have to type one-handed. And it's very irritating. So I talked with a girl on there one-on-one, someone I didn't even know, someone was new there, and we talked for about five minutes, and I, I couldn't get much of an impression of her in that short of a time. But I said, look, I want to continue talking to you, but I'm going to be honest. I broke my arm recently. I can only type one-handed. This is very irritating. So I usually don't ask for this so quickly, but can you please give me your phone number so I can call you and we can talk on the phone? And if you don't feel comfortable, that's fine too. I understand, but I just can't continue typing this way. And she's like, okay, here's the number. So she gave me her number And that's what eventually led to months later when I lost my virginity. So maybe if I didn't have that broken arm, it wouldn't have gone this way. Maybe I wouldn't have liked her in chat. Who knows what would have happened? Maybe she wouldn't have liked me in chat. Who knows? But uh, it was funny that the broken arm is the only reason I got her phone number so quickly. Because I was telling the truth. I, I wouldn't usually ask for a phone number after five minutes. But that was the progression, though, is you would talk first on there. If you liked each other on there you'd trade phone numbers, then you'd talk on the phone, and if you liked each other on the phone, then you'd go meet in person. So uh, I I did that a number of times over the years, not even just as a teenager, even as I got older. And I liked that way of meeting girls because I'd get to talk to them, I'd get to know their personality, and I'd get to feel if I had personality chemistry with them before we actually went on a date or met. And while that would sometimes waste time, because then we'd meet in person and it still wouldn't work out sometimes. And I'd feel like, well, why did I spend all these hours talking to her? Uh, Sometimes it would also establish a connection already before we even meet in person, which I felt was a big advantage going in. So I I like doing it that way. Uh, I don't don't want to downplay your conquest, okay? mm -hmm. But if whatever you type to this girl with one hand (laughs) in a couple of minutes and she was uh, eager to give you her phone number, you know, it sounds like she was pretty receptive. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what, though? Like, she I, was... I, I'm, not, I'm not saying you weren't suave and everything, but how suave can you be in a couple of minutes with one hand? I well, mean, on. no, to get the phone number, I wasn't. To get the phone number, I wasn't at all. It was just like a rush, like, give me this. Right. Like, it's going to be this or nothing, so what do you want, girl? It was kind of like that. Right. But, uh, right. uh, this, but I'm just I, saying I, she, was open, she was open to exploring, let's put it that way. I, I think she just didn't give a crap. Like, she didn't think, like, giving her phone number was a big deal. Other girls were like, no, I don't want to give my number unless I get to know you. Like, this. And I thought that might be her answer. But some of them just had the attitude, like, okay, whatever. Talk here. Talk to the phone. Who gives a crap? You know, <laughs> yeah. I'll give you my number. So that seemed to be her attitude. And uh, I made a mistake with her, though. I won't go into the whole story with her. I got the whole story by itself. But uh, I did make a mistake that kind of delayed me even meeting her in person, aside from the fact that she was, like, 55 miles away. But I stupidly told her that so now we have our answer for how far you'll drive to get laid. Okay, yeah, you told her what? I, I stupidly told her that I was a virgin. <laughs> Which, it was true, but I shouldn't have said that. I didn't realize at the time that that's not something you say even as a 17-year-old. You, there's the, 
like she didn't even ask. I, 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 I don't know how yeah, I brought it some, up. Some girls would be thrilled, though. It would be like, oh, you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. Well, the, the problem was like it, it made her think that I was going to be unattractive, and you, you couldn't send pictures that then back then. So, oh, right. Yeah. So yeah. she she's like, I, I like I, I could only describe myself. I'm this tall. I, I weigh this much. I have brown hair. But what does that mean? That could mean a lot of things. So she's just like totally assuming that I'm ugly and she's never going to like me. And she told me this when we actually met. And then when we met yeah. in person, I guess the only way it worked in my favor is when we met in person, she just kept repeating over and over and over how I was way better looking than she expected. And I'm like, is that an insult or a compliment? I can't tell. Well, that's a good sign. See, well, if, I, if I were in your shoes and I showed up there, I would be expecting her to be a dude at some point. You know what I mean? <laughs> I really would. Well, actually, the, Although you talked to her on the phone. Okay. Yeah, I talked to her on the phone. It definitely wasn't yeah, a dude. Never, yeah. never mind. Yeah, never mind. so... Anyway, we didn't have sex that night or anything. It, it took a while. That's a whole story I won't get into now. But uh, you know what's also weird? Uh, before I move on from her, many, many years later, I couldn't believe it. Uh, she was in poker for a little bit. I didn't encounter her, but she was in. She actually was in poker for a little bit and, ha- and has hinted mob results and actually has uh, mutual friends on, on Facebook. I'm not Facebook friends with her at this point. I just uh, looked her up to see what she was doing, and I saw there were some mutual friends with me in poker. That, uh, Isn't that one of the criteria for the Women's Hall of Fame? Deflowering, druff? Yeah, I right guess. There, yeah. I, I wondered if she would even recognize me if we ended up at the same table. Or at that point, not, not even now where I'm 50. I'm like back when I was in my 30s and noticed this, I wondered if she'd recognize me. It's a good chance not because it had been so many years. I'm not sure if I would have recognized her. But anyway, yeah, let, exactly. let's, let's move on from, from her. And uh, so the, the way these. Uh, all of this worked basically was that it was still things that you dialed into and whether it was a an individual bulletin board system or one of these 16 line like systems where i talked about just now like the which had kind of a dating theme or a, so- a social theme or one of these giant systems like uh, CompuServe and then later prodigy uh, you were still always dr- dialing directly into systems and this was the way it remained until the mid-90s. This was the way you would get online. This was your online experience. There were also different speeds of modems you could get, and that would also greatly influence uh, the quality of your experience because uh, the faster your modem was, the faster that that system could send you whatever it's trying to send you and vice versa. Now, the system has to have a high speed also because it's basically the whatever is the lower of the two speeds of the bulletin board system and your system that it's going to be transmitting at. So if it, it was called BAUD, which was actually for a bits per second, and a, a bit is one-eighth of a byte. So basically to understand how fast it would transmit, it would be actually 300 divided by 9 if it was 300 BAUD, 9 because it would ha- also have a, like a control bit or something on there. So uh, a byte is like one character. So if it was 300 baud, you would get 300 divided by 9 characters per second, which is very slow. Yeah, 1,200 would be four times as fast as that. It would be 1,200 divided by 9, so a little more than uh, 100 characters per second. If it was 2,400, then double of that, 2,400 divided by 9. So when you're just reading, then it's not that terrible, even at the slowest speed of 300 baud. But when you're trying to download something, can you imagine downloading something where you're getting like 30 bytes per second, even back then when everything was much smaller. So like oh, even, yes. even transferring something would be like 10K 
would be it would take forever. So people you'd be, you'd be trying to download something big and someone else in the house would pick up the phone and knock you offline and and ruin it right in the middle. Of yes, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought yeah. that up because since you were using a phone line also, remember, it wasn't just the computer bulletin board on the other end that was on a dedicated line. You would have to use a phone line yourself to call in. And some people had dedicated lines for their computer and others had to use the family phone line. There's only one phone line in the house and you have a computer with a modem. You've got to use that line. So you're on there, you're downloading, and then your mom picks up because she wants to call up your Aunt Myrtle. And guess what happens? It disconnects you because it interrupts the connection because it, it's a connection that uh, is very fragile. It, it's, it's basically using sound to transmit back and forth. And once someone picks up the other line, that corrupts the entire thing. So it will either cause the whole thing to hang up or you'll just see gibberish all over the screen. And if you're downloading something, then the whole thing will get errors and eventually abort. It was a disaster. So the nightmare would be Let's say you start a, uh, a three-hour download of, of a pirated game you wanted. And it gets to two hours and 50 minutes. And it's 10 minutes away. You can't wait to run the game that you've been waiting three hours for. And then your mom picks up the phone. And the whole thing gets ruined and you have to start all over. You can't even resume where it was. So those type of things would yeah. happen. When you're talking about modems, it... So the earliest ones were actually, they were called audio couplers, and you would actually take an actual phone headset and you would lay it down on the receiver, and that's how you would uh, make a connection. And they, the quality there was even worse because of the, you know, the the noise that it had to go through because it wasn't connecting directly to the phone line. Yeah, so those yeah. were some of the original ones, and those those were those were awful. Man. In fact, that was depicted <laughs> in war games. The movie War Games yeah. from 1983, yeah. and they made a technical error in War Games, which which bothered me. Not right away when it came out, because I didn't have a modem yet, so I didn't understood that. I didn't understand yet that this was an error, but a few years later, I saw it again, and I realized that there was a problem. In that, in War Games, there was a scene where he was doing something called auto dialing, where he was basically calling just random phone numbers over and over and over to try to find government government computers that he could connect to. Yeah, war dialing. Yeah, so it was later referred to as war dialing, referring to that movie. But uh, he was using one of those acoustic modems where you're actually putting the modem onto a device. You're putting the handset of a phone onto the device, onto the modem, to make the connection. So how can it dial itself if you're actually... It can't pick up and hang up. You have to do all these things manually. If you think about an old-school phone, like the Mount Charleston 1970s rotary phone... uh, you can put the handset on a modem, but in order to dial or in order to hang it up and make another call, a physical action is needed where you actually have to press down on on the phone to do it. So somehow the computer was doing it automatically in war games, which wasn't possible. You actually need a, a modem which uh, just directly connects to the phone line that way. So that was a little technical error they made in war games. And you'll notice if you watch that today. But that's what they were using, one of those acoustic modems. In fact, the earliest modems were 110 baud those were really slow but really the first modem people probably bought in the 80s if they did this sort of thing back then would be a 300 baud modem and That's my my first modem was actually 1200 and that was like cutting edge at the time when i got uh, super fancy drift yeah super it was in 1986 that was early 86 that was a big deal now how did i get into it 
what got me personally into this? Well, I was at a summer camp in 1985. And, you know, I'll tell you, these summer camps, they were a mixed bag as far as the kids I would encounter. Sometimes I would encounter kids there, and these weren't usually kids I knew. These would be like total strangers, most of them, or sometimes all of them. So the kids I would encounter there, sometimes I'd really like them and they'd really like me. And we'd get along great and everybody would be good friends there, or at least with me. And, you know, like sometimes I'd really get along with the kids super well and I'd be very happy. Sometimes the kids would not like me and I wouldn't get along with them and I'd have a lousy time because the kids wouldn't like me. And then sometimes it's kind of in the middle. Uh, in this particular case, in this summer camp in 85, it was an odd situation I hadn't had before where only one kid of all the kids in that uh, camp, which wasn't a huge camp, but uh, it was a small camp, but like none of the kids really wanted to be all that close to me or be like close friends with me or hang out with me all the time, but like everybody respected me there, which... Wasn't always the case. Some of these camps where the kids didn't like me, they were very disrespectful. But the, and, and sometimes where everybody did like me, everybody was respectful and liked me. Here it was like they didn't really want to hang out with me, but everybody respected me. And everybody treated me very well. And when I'd say things, people would uh, respect what I'd have to say. It was kind of a weird situation. But there was one kid who was not getting any respect and getting picked on and getting made fun of and getting hit and getting stuff thrown at him. And this was actually an older kid, too. And it was a kid who I believe now, thinking back to him, though this term didn't exist back then, I believe this kid had Asperger's. But I found him very interesting and unique, and I liked him. And so I befriended him, and uh, I actually was able to convince the other kids in the camp to stop picking on him. Because remember, they, they respected me. They, they listened to what I had to say. And I did it actually in a surprisingly mature fashion for a 13-year-old. Like, I'll think back to things from my life in those days, and I'll sometimes think, wow, that was very mature for my age. And other things I'll think back, oh, wow, that was very, very immature for my age. But this was a mature moment where I uh, noticed the kids were just relentlessly picking on this guy and being so mean to him, but yet were very respectful towards me. So I thought, hmm, maybe I can get them to stop this just because I felt bad for him. I just felt it wasn't right. And, and I kind of reasoned with each kid who was doing it why they shouldn't pick on him anymore, and, and it worked, and they stopped picking on him after some time. So anyway, uh, he and I became friends there, and he was telling me about these computer bulletin boards he was calling. And the reason he even brought it up is because he, he told me on one of the nights there, after some of the kids had picked on him, he said, this is just like on the bulletin boards. They pick on me there, too. And I said, what bulletin boards? And he told me. And I thought, wow, this sounds so fun. I said, well, when they pick on you on the bulletin boards, why don't you just respond back why don't you insult them back he's oh that's not me i don't like doing that i go oh, i would totally do that i would i would totally insult them back if i were on there in fact that kind of sounds fun so i after hearing him describe it then i just had to get a modem and get on there i asked my mom to buy me one and she said no but maybe for your birthday next year so in early 86 when i turned 14 uh, they bought me a modem for my birthday, and that was the beginning of getting online for me. Now, remember, these bulletin boards were mostly local. So what if you wanted to call one that wasn't local? Well, you could pay, but it was pretty expensive per minute to call. And if you were a teenager, you didn't have very much money. So how could you do it? Well, there was something called freaking. Freaking was the term for making phone calls for free illegally. It was very common in those days. And the way freaking was occurring was that uh, in 1984, there was a major decision 
where there was a forced breakup of AT&T, which was the monopoly at the time for long distance. So AT&T, which basically was your only choice at that point for carrying uh, long distance calls, they were broken up. And this also allowed other companies to spring up and attempt to compete with AT&T. At the time, companies that immediately showed up were MCI, Sprint, which still exists in, in a different form now. MCI is gone. That crashed and burned in the 2000s. But uh, Sprint is still there. Th- those, those were the big ones. But then there were a number of really small ones which popped up that also tried to compete in the long-distance space. However, the small ones, you couldn't just pick up the phone and dial one, the area code, and the number, and dial. They didn't have that capability, so you'd actually have to call a local access number first, then dial in your uh, account number, and then dial the phone number. So basically, it wasn't hard for people to use their computers to call up these local numbers and just endlessly try these access numbers over and over again, the, the, endlessly try like the, uh, the account numbers over and over until it gets one that works, and then store it to disk, and then you have one of these that can make a call, and then the, the customer gets their bill, sees a bunch of crap on there that they didn't really make, they call up, it gets taken off the bill, and uh, the ones that end up losing is the uh, long-distance company. So that was going on all over the place in the 80s. That was very, very uh, common, people calling up these bulletin boards in the 80s that were uh, doing this sort of thing. And uh, so that was happening then, and uh, people were also using something called PC Pursuit. And that came uh, a little bit later, but uh, PC Pursuit was uh, for those that did not want to do this uh, freaking, either because they were morally against it or were afraid they'd get busted. And PC Pursuit was a service that you would buy for $30 a month, and you'd call into a local phone number. And then from there, you could connect to different cities and then from there, you could dial out a number. So it was kind of like uh, piggybacking off of their systems to make phone calls. What was the downside to PC Pursuit? It was very slow. It was it had like a big lag to it. So PC Pursuit had its limitations. Though, you know, it wasn't, it was more of like a lag. It's what's known as latency. It was not so much that it was actually slow in transmitting. So you could actually download through PC Pursuit. It wouldn't be that bad. It'd be only like maybe 20% slower. So I, I used uh, PC Pursuit somewhat. Did you ever use PC Pursuit? Never did. Did you ever hear about it? Nope. Okay. Was, for some reason, it was, it was... I wasn't really involved in any of the, the freaking stuff or okay. any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. The PC Pursuit, it was... Uh, I was skeptical of it, but it actually worked uh, well enough, except for that latency issue, which was annoying. And I, I used that actually all the way through the uh, the 90s. So that was another way to call out if you didn't want to go the uh, the freaking illegal route. So, uh, and there was a whole subculture at the time around the freaking as well. That wasn't just about making phone calls. It was about, uh, there was, that was kind of, it was known as the HP world, which is known as the hack freak world. So there was a, the whole hacking culture at the time was tied into that as well. So that, and then there were bulletin boards dedicated to that stuff. So that that really was the uh, the 1980s online scene. In the 90s, most of this disappeared once the mid-90s came around and everybody got on the internet. This just all became instantly obsolete. Something that some of you know, but some of you don't know, is that genocide from poker 
was part of that hacking and freaking scene, but not in the 80s because she was born in the mid-80s. So she obviously wasn't doing this as a baby, but uh, she was part of the late 90s version of it, which I didn't even know existed anymore, but apparently it did. So she was part of that whole group, and I, I guess she would qualify as one of the pretty girls who kind of found her way there. And that's what she was involved with before poker. And I don't know how she found her way to poker. But that she was a good example of the type of girl you would find on these things where yeah, there, there's, there was sometimes a, a, like a problem, shall I say. Like the, if you'd find a pretty girl in these, in these communities, your first question would be, okay, then what's wrong with her? Like why is a pretty girl even here? And often there was something wrong. Often it was that they, they had some kind of social issue or uh, there's something a little bit off about them or a little bit weird about them and they have a very difficult home life. It, it usually wasn't like a pretty plus very well-adjusted normal teenage girl. It was usually like a normal girl who was not attractive or a girl with issues who was attractive. That was usually what you'd meet on there. What I'm learning about this, Druff, is that Getting on these bulletin boards is the gateway drug to poker. It happened to you. It happened to her, right? <laughs> I think Magic the Gathering was even a bigger gateway drug to poker. That was, that was after our time because we're old, but so many of these Magic guys got into poker. I, I do see some similarities, by the way, to the present poker community that you see interacting online and the bulletin boards back then. And so it's no coincidence that I'm part of all that. Because if you think about it, there, there is a lot of the online uh, communication, dramatic element to the whole thing. It is very much male-dominated as far as numbers are concerned. And so there's a number of things that uh, go along with that. And then uh, I guess there's illegal elements too. In poker, it's the scamming rather than the hacking and the freaking. Yeah, for anyone who's listening is wondering about what these Usenet type stuff is was like, the best similarity these days is Reddit. So Reddit is is very much kind of a modern version of Usenet, where you'd have different subgroups, like there was Rec Games Poker and there was all that kind of stuff, and you'd have people could post and read messages, and it's really you know it's not that far off what Reddit is, except there were much there there weren't as many different topics on there right they're just more big general things because there weren't that many people on there yeah and that's true reddit is kind of in that form and when he's saying using that he's referring to the news groups that i talked about earlier yeah. like that people yeah. would use uh the ones that were using the internet in the 80s because remember all the stuff i'm talking about with the bulletin boards that had nothing to do with the internet the they were called right. bbs's they they were completely separate from the internet so was CompuServe. so was prodigy all those things had nothing to do with the internet and you could go on all of that without having any access to the internet. And in fact, I didn't have access to the internet until January of 1991 when I got access through my college. So that was my first. Yeah, I never, encounter. I never did a whole lot with the, the the freaking stuff and everything. I was more focused on actually learning how to build and write software. And we, I actually had a forum on GEni back in the day. Like I had my own little sub software forum on there so i didn't need to find these local things to call up i had to dial up to a local node that would connect me to that service hmm. 
Yeah, I never so used Gimini. Different ecosystem, I guess. Yeah, there were a lot of different little ecosystems on there. Surprising, given that the numbers of overall user, it wasn't that high. But I guess it was enough to have some of these little niche communities. And it was interesting, these bulletin boards, as he mentioned, there were some themes to them. So I remember I called one that had kind of yeah. like a like an anarchist theme to it. And uh, I called another one which... Uh, would have more of a, a trading of software theme to it. And I have another one which would have uh, more of the hacking freaking theme to it. And I'd call another one which which yeah has a, a music or TV theme to it. So it, it was, and some of them were just kind of general themes. Some of them were ones where people just like to sit there insulting each other all day. So there's a lot of different themed PBSs. It was basically whatever way the person who ran it wanted to mold it into. You know, maybe I'm remembering it fondly, but I, I don't remember tons of insulting going on. I mean, I'm sure it was going on, but it wasn't quite the cesspool that a lot of the online stuff today is. Oh, it, where I was, it was. There was, there was a oh, lot really? of it going on. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah there was a lot of that well, going on. Well, maybe it was the places you were dialing up into, too, right? Well, pretty much every... Like uh, I'll tell you, most of the bulletin boards, except the ones that are were like very serious places that were aimed at, at adults, which I didn't have an interest yep. in because I was 14, 15, uh, the, the ones with teenagers, it, it always became that. Some more than others, but it, it always became that, and... Uh, in some places, they were very hostile. And something else that was going on in those days was that there was a lot of looking down on people who were younger. So the age was a big thing. If if you were 14 hmm. or 15, uh, you were much more likely to get insulted if, if that got out, if you said that's what you were, than if you were like 17 or 18. So, in fact, okay. there was a term so for that. I think that. I figured out the, the big difference is that I never really used – the online stuff in a, a social capacity like i didn't i didn't use it for that at all really you know I, I mean i did a little bit but mostly mostly not so it makes sense you were calling up uh, to different places for different reasons yeah yeah and in fact there was a term that was used at least around where i was calling for the younger people calling in like the earlier teenagers uh, rodents r0dent and that was a derogatory term for the younger kids on there. And <laughs> in fact, when I was in high school, I was having a hard time getting a computer club started. There was no computer club. I thought there should be. I couldn't get one started because I couldn't find a teacher who was willing to be the, quote, advisor. And without an advisor, then you can't have one. So I gave up. I tried to find an advisor. No one would do it. I said, screw it. And I gave up. Well, in my senior year of high school, at this point, I'm 17, getting close to 18. On the club sign-up day, I see a computer club. I'm like, what the hell? Who started this thing and how? So I went to the first meeting, and amazingly, it was started by a freshman. And not just a freshman, but the kid was short. He had a high voice. Uh, he looked like a little kid. So um, the other people who showed up to this, boy, were they mean and nasty to him. And they, they called him a rodent and like to his face. And just, everyone was very disrespectful. He's trying to run the meeting and everyone's just constantly ragging on him. So Sounds lovely. Yeah. So <laughs> and this was part of the whole thing that they saw him as a rodent and they didn't want to respect him. So he was so upset afterwards. He was like barely holding back tears. So after all the other kids left who were closer to my age, uh, I, I went up to him and I said, uh, look, I know these other kids here. They're not going to do this to me. Uh, I'll tell you what. If you make me the vice president, then I'll make sure this doesn't happen anymore. And he agreed. He agreed. He was very uh, happy to have that. And so sure enough, the next meeting, 
uh, I, I put a stop to the picking on of, uh, the, of the rodent, and uh, and so people were a lot uh, nicer to him, and he was very happy about the fact that I had gotten involved. And then, for whatever reason, the club just kind of died out. But uh, but we were in the yearbook and everything, and uh, it was actually listed that me and him ran the club. It didn't even say I was vice president. But that's I, I got in, I got to be the vice president because he was being treated like a rodent there. And no one would show him any respect just because of his age. And there was that was really the only reason. They just did not like the fact that the leader of the club was, was a freshman. And not just a freshman, but a, like a freshman who looked young and had a high voice. So that, w- that was very much in the culture then. And, and I dealt with it on the other end when I was around that age. So I, that's why I felt bad for the kid, especially. So I said, let me, let me help yeah, out I didn't, here. I didn't do any of this stuff. Like, I didn't really... I, I I didn't try to pick up girls online or do yeah. any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, maybe you should have. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I, I I was I was doing fine, you know, just in person okay. socially and stuff. And so this the the stuff that I was doing on there was more. I, I was actually, uh, you know, starting a business while I was in wow. high school. So you see, yeah. Cal, I was doing all this like serious stuff. Then I was just. I was just coming on there to mess around. As no, a, as trust a kid. me, man. I was fucking around and and being a, a being a you know drinking and doing stuff that I probably shouldn't have been doing as well. But just hey, the online stuff, I found it very interesting, and I was using it to to learn and to build my business and all that kind of stuff. But I never really used it for that kind of social thing. So it makes mm. sense. Like I wasn't out there dialing all these local uh, BBSs and stuff. Yeah, well, There's I did. More, you know, there were systems, yeah. as I said, there were systems that were kind of more aimed at adults. That this type of stuff yeah. didn't go on at all. But the teenagers, uh, they pretty much uh, gravitated to a certain type of uh, of bulletin board, and it was mostly teenagers on these things. And there were some people in their twenties, and occasionally some older people. And uh, one, one more thing I want to say before we end the segment on those uh, multi line systems, like the sixteen line systems, where it had more of a dating theme. There was an interesting phenomenon I noticed there, that there were a lot of gay guys, because you could list yourself, or you, you had to list yourself as straight, bi, or gay. And there were some gay guys that just outright listed themselves as, as gay or, or bi or whatever they were, and some that put down straight, but then quietly behind the scenes would try to hit on guys. The problem was that they didn't want to respect that some people on there, in fact, most people on there were straight. Now, when I say they, I don't mean all of them, but there were a number of gay men on the system that would use it to try to hit on straight teenage boys. And I know that because I was one of them and they tried to hit on me and I wasn't the only one receiving this. This was common. This was known. In fact, at one point, uh, I kind of got a bunch of people together to start calling them out in public and shaming them for this. And this wasn't like a homophobic thing. It was just a, a lack of respect and, and pedophilia thing where <laughs> these older gay men are, are, are trying to chat up teenage boys and, and uh, ask him if they've ever considered guys, if they like guys at all, and all these you know, sometimes even dirty questions. And uh, this was very, very common then. And so on one hand, I'm like, okay, on one hand, I can understand that gay men, aside from going to like, gay bars, that I know it's not that accepted so it's hard for them to just approach guys they, they know in real life and, and 
try to ask them out or ever, especially in those days, they could get punched for that. You know, like it, it was a different time than today. So I understood why this could be appealing, that if everyone just lists what they are and you see someone's gay and you're gay, you, you chat with them and then there's no question. And it doesn't involve going to bars or anything like that. So I thought, okay, that's good for them. But what's not good is to uh, hassle the straights, especially the straight uh, boys on there. Uh, but that was happening at an alarming rate. And uh, well, you was, were their twink, right? Well, yes. And it was very focused on the teenagers too. Like the, the, the guys who were like, 23 or older got much, much less of that. Uh, when I say much less, I mean much, much less of that. And not all the gay guys there were guilty of it. In fact, I actually befriended one of the gay guys on there, and he was always very respectful and, and never once hit on me. He, he understood I was straight. He, there was never any kind. I even you know, spent time with him in person, and we, uh, there was never anything that was uh, awkward about it. So, uh, you know, it, it wasn't about any kind of homophobia. And there, there were some gay guys there who were uh, perfectly fine and very respectful, but there were others there that uh, they had this thing for wanting to convert straight teen boys or try to find the, the few teen boys there that might be in the closet. It, it was pretty gross. and <laughs> That went on a lot. And yes, there were some older male perverts that also were uh, straight perverts that were doing this to the teenage girls on there. But it wasn't as common. It, it, per capita, as far as uh, gay guys on there and straight guys on there who were adults, uh, far more of the gay guys were doing this to the boys than the straight guys were doing to the to the teenage girls. There, there was no question where it was happening more often. So there was a lot of that, though. And there, there was a higher percentage of gay guys on there than were probably in the general population. So like a lot of them gravitated to this because they could both one do this anonymously and two they could see who else was gay or bi on there and the second part i totally understand and if i was if i was gay then i would have liked that too but the second part that was not very good so that was something that uh, i had to deal with there as well and once i aged out of it it stopped too though once i aged out of it these were kind of ending anyway but i i knew people were a few years older than me and it was funny how much less of it that they were getting simply because they weren't uh, in their teens anymore. So that was kind of disturbing. It definitely had a... Uh, somehow it was attracting gay pedophiles and some straight pedophiles as well. So that wasn't good. There was, there was one guy there, remember, a straight guy, who was perpetually 29. Year after year after year, he was 29. And we, we met him at one of the meetups, and this guy looked like he had to be over 40. And yet he would talk to all the teenage girls, too. And that's exactly what I expected anyone that pretended to be a girl online was. Yeah. <laughs> this guy didn't pretend to be a girl, but he pretended to be 29. And he didn't look anywhere near 29. I got you. And, and, then, and then what was kind of uh, gross was that he had befriended a girl that I was about to date from there. Like, we were about to go on a date. And uh, she was telling him how much he liked me and how excited she was for this. And uh, we had already met in person, me and this girl, like at one of the parties, but we just hadn't gone out. So we knew what each other looked like, which was good. So that, that part was out of the way. But he was trying to tell her about like, you know, that she should do this and that with me. He's like encouraging her to do sexual stuff with me on the date. I'm like, what the hell? Why is this guy? I, I didn't ask him to do this. I, I didn't even know him. I knew who he was, but like, uh, it wasn't like this was a friend of mine trying to help me get action. This is a guy like who was getting off on, wanting to hear stories about her doing sexual things with, with other men. It was very strange. And we so were both speaking like, of getting off, Druff. Uh-oh. I need... 
Not, not like that. I need to get up. I'm exhausted. All right. Well, thank you for hanging out here till uh, 4:22 in the morning, and uh, glad you were able to contribute to this segment because you were you were part of it as well, part of a kind of a different community. But you were there. Uh, I got tons of war stories I can tell you sometime, but I'm going to uh, hang up and listen. Okay. Well, good night, Calwat. Thank you for coming on. Later. All right. So that's the end of this segment. It was longer than I expected, but I kind of wanted to give you a full picture of the whole 1980s online world. There were a lot of facets to it, and I, I spent a lot of time doing this. I enjoyed it. It was just something that I immediately found appealing even before I did it the first time. Just hearing it described by that kid in the camp who had Asperger's, uh, I thought, wow, I really want to do this. It was one of these things like the second you hear about it, you want to do it. That was these bulletin boards. And I was instantly drawn to them. And that's kind of a forerunner to why I participate in all these online communities today. There's a lot of similarities. All right, so moving on, I want to give you an update on a story we previously had on the show, but it really is not being covered in much other media. There's some stories here and there in the LA Times. Beyond that, you're really not seeing very much coverage of this, and I think this should be a huge story. This is just one of these things I scratch my head and go, why is this not like really, really being covered everywhere in national media? As I've talked about on a previous episode that wasn't too long ago, I forget which one, there was a $100 million plus jewelry heist that took place in Fraser Park, California, which is a little bit north of Los Angeles, between Los Angeles and Bakersfield. And it occurred involving an armored truck that was carrying this jewelry from San Mateo, California, which is in the Bay Area, to Los Angeles. And there were two guards, two armed guards in the truck. And they had stopped at a Flying J truck stop, which is a chain of truck stops that are across the country in the U.S. The Flying J truck stops, you've probably seen them before, known as Flying J travel centers. And this one is off I-5 in Fraser Park, California. It technically being reported as Lebec, California, but Lebec is a very, very tiny town with basically nothing in it. And technically, this was considered unincorporated Lebec. But really, this was in the greater Fraser Park area, which isn't huge itself. But it's right there where you get off to go to Fraser Park. It's actually called Fraser Mountain Road. And it really is considered Fraser Park, even if it's technically unincorporated Lebec. So I'm calling it Fraser Park. Anyway, I have been to this this uh, Flying J a number of times in Fraser Park because I usually visit Fraser Park at least twice a year, and I have gone there before for various things. This Flying J, so I'm very familiar with it, and I was surprised that that was the center of this major story about this hundred million dollar jewelry heist, which is thought to be perhaps the biggest jewelry heist in world history. So why this isn't getting more attention, I don't know. This armored truck, as I said, was going from San Mateo to Los Angeles, and this is not a very long distance. 
It's not short, but it's not like it's going from Chicago to Los Angeles, where it's going to be a multi-day trip, and there's going to be a lot of necessary stops and points where the guards have to sleep and uh, where they have to eat. Uh, you, you would think that they could just do this straight with maybe having to stop once for the bathroom at most. But other than that, they should drive this straight because it's 370 miles. And while trucks can't travel as fast as passenger cars can, you could still knock this out in like six to seven hours. And they did this at night, so traffic wouldn't have been an issue. So if it's going to be a six to seven hour drive, do you really need to stop anywhere other than maybe a quick bathroom stop? And that's what I wondered. Like, why was this armored vehicle even at a truck stop in the first place to get robbed of a hundred plus million dollars worth of jewelry? Also, why, if this amount of jewelry is being transported, why was there not more security? Why weren't there more guards there? Why wasn't there a second vehicle following it? Why was there not more precautions taken? Why was it just two dudes driving it like they're taking any cargo? Well, I have some answers now that I didn't have when I initially reported it, but it was initially reported that they stopped in Fraser Park which is most of the way there between San Mateo and Los Angeles. If you look at it on a map, they stopped in Fraser Park at the Flying J and both guards got out and left for 25 minutes and then came back and found that the truck had been broken into. Somehow the lock had been breached and the jewels had been stolen. Now, immediately what would come to anyone's mind, if they're rational, is that the guards were in on it. Why else would they leave the truck for 25 minutes with neither of them in it? Why would they leave it unattended? And then how would these thieves have even known what was in there? How would they know in 25 minutes that this is the truck to hit? And I'm still not convinced that the guards are innocent here. I'm still not convinced that they weren't in on it, but... I do have more information that explains some of this. The thieves still have not been apprehended. If you want to see a picture of some of the jewels that were stolen, you can go to the thread I made about this on the Flying Stupidity portion of the forum on Poker Fraud Alert called $100 million jewelry heist in Fraser Park, California, and then some other stuff after that, but just look for those words. You'll find the thread. You can see a picture of some of the jewels that were stolen. The Jewels were going between two jewelry shows, one in San Mateo, one in Los Angeles, and that was the reason for them being transported. The guards never explained why they left the truck unattended, nor did they explain why it was necessary to stop for 25 minutes at a truck stop when they easily could have done this nonstop, maybe just with a bathroom break. And again, why was there not more care taken if the cargo really was worth more than $100 million? Also, there was a dispute because the company that was doing the transport, Brinks, was insisting that the jewels were worth less than $10 million, and the owners of the jewels were insisting that they were worth more than $100 million. Now, that's a tremendous discrepancy. So which one was it? It's not like it's a difference between 195. This is the difference between 100 or more and less than 10. That's a factor of more than 10 times. So how's that possible? So finally, more answers are coming out thanks to a lawsuit 
that was described in detail by the LA Times. It appears in this entire mess that even if the guards were not in on it, that both sides were stupid. And when I say both sides, I mean both the owners of the jewels and Brinks itself, or at least the guards working for Brinks. So the jewelers were intentionally under-declaring the value of their merchandise to be shipped. Why would they do that? Well, they saved money. They assumed it was so unlikely that a truck with two armed guards would have the jewels stolen out of it in a 370-mile transport that it's stupid to declare the full value of 100-whatever-million because then it's going to be far more expensive because this has to be insured. And insuring 100-something million worth of jewels is much more expensive than less than 10 million. So they had declared only $8.7 million worth of jewels when in reality there was more than 100 million and they were doing this to save money. But what happens if the jewels get stolen? Well, oops, guess what? You're going to have a hard time getting your $100 million back because all you said was in there was $8.7 million, and that's all it was insured to. Uh-oh. So that was the dumb thing on the end of the jewelers. On Brink's side, they had two stooge drivers who were apparently more concerned with following Department of Transportation sleeping rules than getting many millions of dollars worth of jewels to their destination safely. Now, keep in mind, even if they thought it was only $8.7 million worth of jewels, that's still a lot of money, $8.7 million. So you'd think they would still protect this and still be very careful, and they were not. So what is wrong with following Department of Transportation rules? In fact, don't you have to as a truck driver? Well, yes, but there are ways to avoid these rules from coming into play where they're going to stop you from doing your job properly. So it has come out in the lawsuit that the heist took place not with both drivers away from the truck, but with one driver that was out of the truck in the Flying J getting food, and the other was in the truck sleeping. (laughs) He was actually in the sleeping bay of the truck while it was being robbed. So one was sleeping, one was getting food for 25 minutes. Now, why didn't the guy who stopped for food wake up the other guy and say, hey, uh, I'm getting food here and we're stopped, so how about you stay awake and guard everything? Why didn't he do this? Because Department of Transportation rules forbid it. (laughs) Well, sort of. The Department of Transportation, this is a, a federal department, they have a rule that truck drivers can only work 14 hours out of a 24-hour day. And that once they've already worked 14 hours, that not only can't they continue working, they can be in the truck if there's another driver, they can be in the truck, but they cannot be working anymore actively driving. And that if they choose to sleep during these other hours, when they've already worked 14 hours, they're not allowed to be awakened. And the reason that they came up with this rule is because they wanted the drivers to be able to get a decent amount of uninterrupted sleep without being interrupted by the other driver who takes over. So basically, they're trying to keep everybody on the road safe by making sure 
that the drivers are all getting enough sleep. So they're not working too long. They're not driving more than 14 hours a day. And that if there's two drivers where one's driving when the other is not driving, that if one of them is going to sleep and trying to get his rest when he's not allowed to work, that he is allowed to sleep uninterrupted. So apparently the driver who was sleeping had already worked his 14 hours and could no longer drive. So now he went to sleep and apparently the driver who was driving, the one who stopped at the Flying J, felt he could not wake that second driver because of Department of Transportation rules. (laughs) Can you believe this? And it also came out that they had previously stopped the truck 55 miles north of the Flying J in Fraser Park for the first driver there to go to the bathroom. So he went to the bathroom, and at that point, the second driver, the one who had already worked 14 hours, decided that he's going to go to sleep. So he moved into the sleeping bay at that point while the first driver went to the bathroom. So then the first driver drove 55 miles south with the second driver sleeping already and then stopped at the Flying J in Fraser Park because he was hungry. And so he could not wake the other driver to tell him to come out and guard the truck because Department of Transportation rules said he can't. So he went in, had his meal for the 25 minutes, came out, and the truck had been robbed while the other guy was sleeping. The question was asked on the forum, how is it possible that this guy didn't wake up when the truck was being broken into? But apparently they soundproof these sleeping bays pretty well, so that it is possible if the story is true. This is all from the lawsuit, by the way. That's why this is known now. At least that's the stories that are being given. But I have some problems here. I have some problems with this whole thing. A lot of this doesn't make sense to me. Fraser Park is about 75 miles from Los Angeles. If you're down to the final 75 miles of a 370-mile drive, and you have at least $8.7 million worth of jewels in the truck, and you know you can't even wake up the other guard to take care of these jewels and to watch that nobody's breaking in while you're in there eating. Even if you're very hungry, why not just complete those final 75 miles? And you can't even say, well, they're going into L.A. traffic. No, they weren't, because this occurred at 2 a.m. They started the drive sometime in the evening from San Mateo. By the time they got to Fraser Park, it was 2 in the morning. So there was no traffic at all between Fraser Park and L.A. They could have knocked out those final 75 miles in a very short time. It would have been an hour and something to get to the destination in L.A. So even with the guy being hungry, uh, unless he was uh, starving and about to pass out from lack of food, which I doubt, he could tough it out for another hour without eating. So of all times, to feel like you have to eat, it's weird that he chose that. Also, it was very convenient to me that they stopped 55 miles north of Fraser Park and the second driver went to sleep at that point. Why? Well, let's think about it. Let's say the drivers are in on this. Let's say they've concocted the story beforehand that one of them is going to be asleep and the other one's going to be in the Flying J for 25 minutes eating, and that they tell their accomplices to wait at the Flying J for them to show up, 
wait for one guy to go into the flying J, and then the other one will be, quote, sleeping, and obviously won't say or do anything, and then they can just break in and steal everything that they want to steal. For this plan to work, you have to have one of the two drivers already sleeping. You can't have him go to sleep at that point, because then he won't be asleep yet. Remember, it takes some time to fall asleep. You don't lie down and fall asleep within seconds. So this was a perfect way to have the guy already sleeping to stop to go to the bathroom 55 miles north of Fraser Park. And then it's easy to say, yeah, during those 55 miles, the guy actually fell asleep and was already asleep. And that's why we couldn't wake him up. Because otherwise, if they get to Fraser Park and he's still awake, at that point, he can't go to sleep. At that point, it is okay to say, hey, just sit here with the truck and don't go to sleep yet. And wait until we start moving again, then you can get in the sleeping bay. Instead, he gets in the sleeping bay 55 miles north of there, which is very convenient. But what I'm really wondering is what was the point to make the second stop? You can't even say he was stopping to go to the bathroom and happened to grab something to eat. He already stopped to go to the bathroom 55 miles north of that. And then he gets to Fraser Park and stops again, this time to eat because he can't wait 75 more miles to make the drop off and then get the food. So the choice was drive 75 more miles and you're not protecting any cargo. You'll have an empty truck at that point and there's nothing to worry about. Or you can get out right now and leave almost $9 million worth of jewels, which is actually 100 plus million, which I guess they didn't know, but at least he thought it was around 9 million. You leave that unguarded. Which one sounds like the smarter choice to you? So it's not even like he stopped right in the middle of the drive and says, oh, I have like almost 200 miles to go. I'm really hungry. He had 75 miles left in the middle of the night. That's really suspicious. Also, apparently, the truck was parked out of view of cameras, which is why they really haven't gotten a good description of the suspects. And it was parked kind of off to the side. It was parked with the cargo portion facing away from the building. So any cameras over there would be blocked by the truck itself. So it was really parked in a location which was perfect for thieves to break in without any images of them breaking in. It's also not understood, number one, how it was known that these jewels were in there. There's tons of trucks stopping at the Flying J truck stop. That's what it is. It's for trucks. So why did they pick that one in the 25 minutes they had? Now, there was one theory that an armed guard walking out of the truck would indicate something valuable is in there. And that maybe people were just waiting there for a truck where an armed guard is going to walk out. But on the other hand, how do they know he's going to be in there for 25 minutes? And yeah, you could say maybe they have someone watching him and signaling. But this is just too convenient to me that at two in the morning, that in 25 minutes, they know exactly what truck to hit and happen to hit the one that is carrying by far the most valuable merchandise. And it happens that the other driver is sleeping. How can they know that? How can they know that it's safe to hit that particular truck? How can they know there's not a guard sitting in there with the stuff? And how were they able to break in at all? Because apparently the locking mechanism is not an easy thing to break, especially in a short time. It's not even understood how these criminals were able to do this so quickly. That still hasn't been figured out. So right now there is a lawsuit that has been filed against Brinks, and then Brinks has filed a lawsuit back that is intended just to limit their liability. I'm not sure exactly the legal mechanism there, but I guess they had to do that. I guess it's similar to how the how MGM sued 
the victims of the Stephen Paddock shooting for a similar reason, though very bad optics there. So anyway, there's a lawsuit on each side. But on the Brinks side, they're saying that the most we could possibly owe is one is $8.7 million because that's all it was insured to. Now, what could the jewelry owners say on their side to get more than $8.7 million? Because they're the ones who declared $8.7 million, and they declared it for the purpose of saving money in shipping. So since they cheaped out on the insurance portion, since they underdeclared so they could get ch- cheaper shipping, how is it fair for them to recover the value of these jewels of over $100 million when they weren't paying for shipping $100 million worth of stuff? That's a very good question. Well, they're claiming that they were encouraged to do this by Brinks. They were saying that employees of Brinks were telling them that everything's super safe, that nothing's ever going to happen, that they're basically just throwing money away by declaring the actual value of 100 plus million, that they might as well declare it much less because nothing's ever going to happen. And this is really a sensible way to cut down on shipping costs. It's just needless to really declare the true value because the chance of anything happening is so minuscule. So they claim that they were told by Brinks employees they should be doing this. They were advised to do this, which I don't know if is actually true. And even if they were, I don't think that should hold water because they understood what they were doing. They understood that they were only going to be insured up to $8.7 million, and they just were falsely believing that this, nothing will ever happen, that there's no chance this could ever happen. And then it did, and now they're crying foul. Well, that's what it's like with insurance. If you underinsure something and then something happens where you need the insurance to pay for it, then you're going to be paid up to what you bought in insurance, not more than that. And the person to get angry at when you don't get paid the full value of what you lost is yourself for cheaping out on the insurance. So I'm actually on Brink's side on that, but this was very incompetent on their end because they didn't treat this cargo properly, even for something that was $8.7 million. It's indefensible in my opinion, to have any kind of lengthy stop carrying $8.7 million worth of stuff for 370 miles. The instruction should have been, do not stop for anything except the bathroom. And if you do stop for the bathroom, make sure someone is available to watch this. Also, why were drivers being hired who were already near their 14 hours for the day? This shouldn't have been the situation either. For cargo like this, the drivers who are driving should always be available to be woken up to where there is no situation where the truck can be left unguarded. So the fact that they put drivers on the job who could go to sleep and not be awakened was a huge mistake by Brinks. And it's very possible if the drivers were in on this, they realized this. It's very possible that they thought about this and said, hey, you know, we've been working a long time and we keep getting these valuable things that we're delivering. Because remember, Brinks is an armored truck company, so they're often bringing valuable stuff back and forth. So maybe they realized, hey, you know, next time we're assigned to something that has high value, and when we've already worked a bunch of hours, we can use this sleeping trick and get our buddies to break in while one of us, quote, gets something to eat. But I really, really, really think it's suspicious that 75 miles from the destination, the guy chooses to get something to eat for 25 minutes and the other guy's sleeping and he thinks nothing of it. It's real weird to me.
So that's where it stands right now. I don't know if more information will come out, maybe if they catch the thieves, but so far it has not been caught. So far, there's really not any leads on this as far as I know. But the police are saying very little. They are not talking to the media. They're really not talking to anybody. Maybe they have some leads. We don't know about it. Mumbles Badly, who listens to this show, he's called in before. He's a trucker. I met him in person once at the Rio. He said, what I find especially troubling is why the trailer doors were not equipped with an alarm that has to be turned off by the driver before being opened. And what kind of cheap lock they use to secure the trailer doors? Because the lock I had to use on high-value loads, such as farmer products, required either a high-temperature torch or an angle grinder to remove, and not all that quickly. Also on high-value loads, we were required to park the truck with the back of the trailer against something to reduce the chance of someone to open them if breached, say by backing up to another parked truck or wall. But it sounds like the driver on duty parked it in a remote part of the lot. Yes, true. Not only did he not back it up to where it's hard to access, but he backed it up to where it's farthest from the cameras and easy for someone to break into the back without anything catching them on any kind of recording device. Very suspicious. So that's where that stands today. I will give you updates as more come on this massive jewelry heist. So moving on, we're going to talk about another trucker story, but a very different trucker story. This is about another robbery that took place, but for much less in valuables and under very different circumstances. And it involves a casino, unlike the incident that occurred in Fraser Park. This one actually is casino related. So a trucker was gambling at Buffalo Run Casino in Miami, Oklahoma. That's not to be confused with Miami, Florida. They have nothing to do with one another other than having the same name. Miami, Oklahoma is not very large, but it does have this Buffalo Run Casino in it. And a 38-year-old hooker was at the Buffalo Run Casino. Her name is Carla Lassen, and I have a picture of her. In fact, if you'd like to see a picture of her, you can go to Vegas Casino Talk, which is my sister site to Poker Fraud Alert, and go to the California Western U.S. Casinos Forum, and you can see the thread called Methy Woman Bangs Trucker in Casino Parking Lot, and you can see a picture of Carla Lassen, and I don't think you're going to be very impressed. She is 38. She looks much older than 38, Like, if you just heard her described, you might think she's attractive. She has long blonde hair. She seems to have big boobs. She is 38 years old. This all sounds good until you see a picture of her, and it does not look very good. She looks like she probably does a lot of meth. And if she doesn't, then she's had a pretty rough life here to make her look like this at 38. Anyway, she asked this trucker in Buffalo Run Casino if she could have a lighter for her cigarette. And so I guess he lit her cigarette. They were talking. And somehow, I don't know how it goes from, hey, can you give me a light for my cigarette to, hey, will you have sex with me for $20? But that's what happened. They made this agreement. And it is seen on the security camera that after he lit her cigarette and talked to her for a little time, that they both walked out of the Buffalo Run Casino 
and across the parking lot and got into the cab of his truck and were in there for a little bit and then she walked out on her own. Well, then apparently she came back, but not for another romp in the cab for 20 bucks. She came back later with her boyfriend. Yeah, apparently she had a boyfriend. (laughs) And she knocked on the door of the truck. The guy was sleeping by this point. I guess he was sleeping it off after having his $20 throw there. He groggily opened the door, saw her, and then right behind her was her boyfriend with a machine gun, as he described it. I don't know if it was an actual machine gun, but some kind of... uh, weapon that looked like a machine gun and basically he was told to get out of the way and let them get in the truck so they did they went in the truck and went through his stuff unlike the story about the fraser park jewelry heist they were not looking to steal cargo in that truck or if they were there was nothing worth stealing because they ended up stealing only his personal items and nothing all that valuable but they did steal his stuff and then they left Well, he called police, and at first he did not want to tell the entire story to the police, but he did have to kind of explain what he had found in the truck, because she did forget something when she had sex with him in that first visit to the truck. She forgot her underwear. (laughs) Somehow she just didn't put her underwear back on. They had sex in the truck, and he gave her 20 bucks, and somehow the underwear was left behind. (laughs) So he was going through the truck after they had gone through his stuff and stolen some of it with the boyfriend holding the machine gun, and he found two things that were not his. He found the underwear, and he found a broken cell phone that was not his. So he called the police and mentioned that... She had been in the truck with him previously, and he mentioned that he gave her $20 for just undisclosed reasons. (laughs) That was the way the police put it. So he didn't say the words undisclosed reasons, but he just mentioned that she was in the cab of the truck. He gave her $20, and somehow she left her underwear and a broken cell phone behind. Hmm, I wonder what happened in that truck. I wonder why they went back to that truck. Anyway, regardless of whether he paid her for sex in the truck, which obviously he did, the thing he was calling about was that her boyfriend came back with her and robbed him. So the police did investigate this. The police went through surveillance footage and were able to find the car on the footage that Carla and her boyfriend had arrived in. So they figured the car would lead to them. Well, no, they found the car... And it had somebody in it, but it was neither her nor the boyfriend. It was some third party who claimed that they had nothing to do with this. The third party, I don't know how they were related to these two, but the third party said that they had simply driven these two to the casino and had nothing to do with any of this and didn't know they were going to commit this robbery, which there's a good chance it was true. This third party then identified who the two criminals were, and I don't know if they said where they were, but it wasn't long before the police located them and arrested them both at a motel 30 miles away. They arrested Carla Lassen, 
who was uh, 38, and they arrested her boyfriend, Kaylin McRae, who was 35. They were both from Kansas, even though they were in Oklahoma for this. And when they got to the motel, they found a destroyed cell phone, I guess another one, several backpacks, camouflage wear, magazines for an AR-style rifle, and ammunition. McRae and Lassen were charged with first-degree robbery, conspiracy, assault with a deadly weapon, possession of a firearm, and commission of a felony. And then Lassen was also charged with possession of a firearm after a former felony conviction. So she already had a felony conviction. Uh, I believe the felony conviction involved some form of child abuse in California from another article I read. So she sounds like a lovely woman, doesn't she? (laughs) First uh, abusing kids and then having sex for 20 bucks in a truck and then coming back and robbing the guy. And McRae, I guess, also had a prior record. He was previously sentenced to 22 months in Kansas for a burglary conviction. And then Lassen was sentenced to five months in Kansas for, I don't know if it's the same one, but also for burglary. Sounds like two lovely people. I don't know if they are admitting to the crime. Obviously, she's going to have to admit she was in the truck because her underwear was there. (laughs) But uh, I guess she could claim she didn't come back and rob the guy, but I I don't think that they're going to have very much luck with that. I believe they did find the stuff that was taken from this trucker in their motel. Also, in the trunk of the car that they arrived in, you know, driven by the person who said they had nothing to do with this whole thing, they did find an AR rifle and meth and also a cell phone. So I'm not sure how innocent that driver really was. (laughs) It's possible the driver even uh, drove them back to the motel after this crime. I'm surprised the driver wasn't arrested too. Maybe they don't have enough proof against this person. I don't know if it's a male or female, but it kind of seems like they were in on this. If It's one thing to drive two meth heads from the motel to the casino. Maybe this guy was staying at the motel, too, and he just gave them a ride. But then, then why is this AR rifle and meth in the trunk? Why would that still be there? I have a feeling they're all associated. Now, it's possible this guy or girl, whoever was driving that car, it's possible they didn't know that this robbery was going to happen. I don't know if this is something that was premeditated. It could have just been that she went and did this for 20 bucks and then saw something in the truck that she liked and wanted stolen. Otherwise, why even bother with having sex for 20 bucks? Like, why not just have the ruse that you're going back for sex and have the boyfriend follow you and uh, immediately uh, knock on the door and point the machine gun and get in? Like, why, why did they have to do two visits to the truck, one for the sex and one for the robbery? So I, I think this was an after-the-fact decision. I think she thought that now that the guy went to sleep after banging him, that now she can bring her boyfriend back and they could steal stuff. In general, it is not very wise to sleep in parking lots of these type of places because you never know what's going to happen. If you are going to sleep somewhere that's not indoors, if you're going to sleep in your car somewhere, it's best to go where others are sleeping at the same time. So you'll sometimes see on the highway, there's a bunch of trucks pulled over on the side 
in a row. And that's because they're all sleeping there in a row. So if something happens to one, then the others can come out and protect this person. And this makes a deterrent for anyone to rob any of those trucks because there's so many trucks in the same place and criminals will be outnumbered. So you don't want to be in a situation where you're just kind of out somewhere alone, even in a parking lot of a public place. Sometimes late at night, there's like no one around and you can, as long as the criminals can get into the vehicle, then no one will see what's going on. So that, that's the type of place you want to stop if you are going to sleep. And last time I actually had to sleep on the road because I got very tired. What I did is I actually did pull over to where some trucks were and I slept along with the truckers. And then I moved on after sleeping about an hour and feeling good enough to continue driving. If you remember the story, this wasn't about a casino, but if you remember the story we covered on the show where a guy from San Jose was in Las Vegas for the computer trade show called CES, and he was very cheap, this guy, and felt like paying for hotels was a waste. So what he would do, even though this guy had money, is he would come to Vegas and sleep in his car in the YMCA parking lot, either YMCA or, or a gym. No, I think it was a gym. I don't think it was YMCA. But he, he would sleep in a parking lot of some place where he could go in and use the showers, some kind of place like a gym or YMCA or something like that. And then he could basically stay in Vegas for free. He thought that was very clever, except some methy young couple was looking for cars to break into and the male half of the couple saw him sleeping there and because the guy was really hopped up on drugs was like really paranoid so after knocking on the window to wake the guy up sleeping intending to rob him for some reason he just shot him he just pointed the gun at him and shot him and kind of didn't know what he was doing and that guy was dead that's it so if he hadn't been cheap and tried to sleep in parking lots and shower at the gym or the YMCA if he just spent the money that he had already I mean he had plenty of money he was working as a software engineer uh, then he would still be alive today so it was a big tragedy somehow the uh, guy who shot him the guy who murdered him there only got 20 years in prison despite previous felony convictions for violent crime that was something that didn't make sense to me why he should be able to get out in 20 years especially because he was like 27 so I mean like when he, when he gets out he'll be younger than I am now which is pretty outrageous and his girlfriend got sentenced to eight years. That one made more sense because she was not part of the whole murder. She didn't know that was going to happen until after it occurred. She was just part of all the robberies that were going on, or the burglaries, actually, and continued to break into cars after that guy was killed. So that was pretty callous. We talked about this before on this show. But in general, you just don't want to sleep in places like this. I don't know. Like, I'm looking at this woman... I don't care if it's only 20 bucks. <laughs> like, I don't know who'd want to sleep with her. She really looks beat up. Really looks very worn. Not not very attractive. I, I guess maybe if it was dark in there and he could not look at her face and just look at her body, maybe just kind of look at her hair and her body, he could kind of imagine that he's having sex with someone attractive. But no, she has like this old, worn out, druggy look. And that's a big no. But I guess some of these truckers get to feel desperate after being on the road for a while. That's a kind of weird story. 
Weird story to come back there and just steal stuff out of the truck after having sex for 20 bucks and leaving your underwear behind. I still don't get how you leave the underwear behind. Could she not feel that she didn't have underwear on? I don't know what she was wearing uh, on the lower half of her body. I don't know if she was in a dress. It's hard to tell from the picture. I don't know if it was a dress or a skirt or shorts. I don't know what it was. But how, how do you not know you have underwear missing? That's kind of weird. How do you leave that behind? Unless the underwear got gross from <laughs> the sex they were having and she just decided to do away with it. Oh, my goodness. All right, let's move on. If this story didn't make you lose your appetite, then maybe this story will. But you're going to need a big appetite in order to be successful in what I'm going to talk about. The Luxor is having a promotion. In fact, it's not a new promotion. It's been around for a little while, but I just became aware of it. So it's a new story to me. And we're going to talk about it here. It is an eating challenge. And there's other ones like this in Vegas. This isn't the only one, but this is the one we're going to talk about. So they have a restaurant called Public House. Again, it's at the Luxor in Las Vegas. And it has standard kind of bar and grill fare. Nothing that exciting about Public House. Otherwise, I normally would not be talking about it. However, this challenge they have is what's interesting to me. This is what it says. Do it in public challenge. And no, it's not what you think. It's not doing it in public the same way this trucker was with that methy looking hooker. No. This is a different type of do it in public challenge. It says try and conquer public houses, four massive double cheeseburgers, a basket of loaded fries and a 22 ounce milkshake. Eat it in 30 minutes and it is free plus a souvenir t-shirt. And then it says next to it, 79. Now, what does 79 mean? Does it mean that 79 people have done it? Does it mean that they've been doing this since 1979? That'd be tough since Luxor hasn't been here that long. It was built in 93. But no, the 79 means $79. Does that mean you're going to win $79 if you complete it? No, that's what this food costs. And that's what you have to pay if you fail the challenge. Plus tax. (laughs) Can you imagine $79 for hamburgers? But yes, if you attempt this challenge and fail, it's 79 bucks plus tax. I will tell you, I've never eaten any burgers that have cost me $79 total before or after tax. That's insane. Now, there is a lot of food involved here, but this is the trick, as you can already see, is that they're giving you a ton of food that you're unlikely to be able to finish, even if you think you can, and you're only getting 30 minutes to do it, so you can't even stretch this out over like 90 minutes. You have to finish this all in half an hour, and only if you can do that do you get it for free. And then they'll also throw in a t-shirt saying that you completed the challenge. So what exactly are you going to be eating? I read it to you, but let me describe it more so you can understand. So you have to eat four double cheeseburgers. And each of these patties are one half pound before cooking. Now, they aren't quite a half pound after cooking because some of the weight falls off. But before cooking, each of these patties being half a pound 
That would make eight patties total because there's double patties here. And there's four burgers. So that makes it four pounds of meat. That's one pound of meat per, per burger minus whatever melted off in the cooking process. But it's not just that. There is a ton of cheese because it's a double cheeseburger, not just a double hamburger, and bread for each one. And that's not trivial. You can't just ignore the fact that there's cheese and bread. Plus other stuff that's on the burger, such as lettuce and tomato that I'm seeing here. Maybe something else, but that's what I can see in the picture. Plus what they call loaded fries. And these are fries with some stuff on them. Uh, I think probably garlic and cheese. And it's one of these French fry things where you're not just getting plain French fries. It's French fries with a bunch of stuff on them, which of course makes them more filling. And then a 22-ounce shake, which cannot be ignored. Because it's one thing to have to eat all that and then wash it down with water. The shakes are pretty filling. A 22-ounce shake by itself can be pretty filling. So you have to get that down too in this 30 minutes. Some YouTube videos exist of this being eaten, but nobody has shown proof that they actually finished it all in the time allotted. And something I have to say about YouTube videos is that you can't believe everything you see because there's a lot of money in YouTube in getting a popular channel that people want to subscribe to and keep watching. There's people who make a living doing this. In fact, there's people who make millions of dollars a year doing this. Now, very few make that type of money, but there are people who make an okay living making videos on YouTube. So they don't care if they have to lie, and it's not even illegal to lie to do a video on YouTube. You can claim whatever you want as long as you're not defrauding anyone, as long as you're not having people give you money based upon false claims. If you just want to lie on YouTube for the sake of entertainment or the sake of making your channel more interesting and no one's losing any money out of it, then you can, and there's nothing illegal about it. Nobody can even sue you for it. So I don't trust a lot of claims that are made on YouTube channels. So there are some YouTubers that are like ones who go around and do these eating contests, and that's the theme of the channel. But I haven't seen any of these yet. I will admit I didn't go through all of them because it's kind of gross. It's kind of gross like how messy these people get and how – like they're stuffing their face and you're seeing sauce everywhere. It's The whole thing's kind of not very appetizing to watch. I had to skim through them. And somebody else on the forum that I posted about this on Poker Fraud Alert, someone else said the same thing, that they had to kind of skim through them. But I didn't see anybody with a T-shirt. The T-shirt is what gives it away. Because anybody can order this and pretend they ate it all and then put that on YouTube and get all the attention. But if they don't have the T-shirt, how do you know they ate it? They could say they ate it. They could have just thrown it away or told them to take it away and pay the 79 bucks. The, the restaurant doesn't care. Restaurant doesn't care what you say on YouTube. In fact, it helps the restaurant that people claim to have finished it because then others will want to go down there and try. I guarantee this makes money for the restaurant because $79 is a lot of money, even for four burgers. So they're making a $79 sale for four burgers, fries, and a shake. And almost everybody who tries it will have to pay that $79. And the downside is they have to just give it for free and give a t-shirt. It's not even like they have to award something that's valuable. All they have to do is just 
except the cost of the food that they're not going to be making any money from that. But all they're basically losing there is the cost of the t-shirt and the cost of the wholesale food that is involved here. So they're really risking very little on the restaurant side and they make a lot of money every time someone orders this. So it's definitely something good for public house there at the Luxor. I have thought about whether I could have possibly completed this challenge if I were to try it. This isn't something I want to try or will try, but just hypothetically, could I complete this challenge? Because remember, I can eat a lot of food in one sitting. I can sometimes eat food very fast in one sitting. I'll give you some examples. You've seen me on some of these poker streams, like Live of the Bike, where I order a massive amount of food and put it all away. You guys have seen it. People who've been out with me to dinner have sometimes seen that I've ordered a large amount of food and finished it all. And in Lake Tahoe one time, I finished a 16-inch pepperoni pizza in 10 minutes, so fast that the waitress who brought it to me was shocked and asked, where did it go, and are you sure nobody else helped you eat this? She was absolutely shocked to see the pizza missing after 10 minutes. Now, I had hypothermia that day, like a mild version of it, because what happened was that I was skiing all day in 15-degree weather, and also there was some wind, especially created like by the chairlift or by me when I was going down the hill fast, and I was skiing for many hours that day. So I had lost a lot of body heat and I was extremely hungry. So I, my body felt like it needed like food and warm food. So that's what made me eat it so fast. But I still was able to eat a 16-inch pizza in 10 minutes. But there's one thing to eat a 16-inch pizza in 10 minutes. It's another thing to eat something like this in 30 minutes. It's a very big difference. It's a lot tougher to eat something like this in 30 minutes for sure. It's a lot more food and really to get that amount down is very tough, especially with a shake at the end. But there's one big reason I could not even attempt this, and it may not be what you think. It's not about the amount of food. It's not about the time limit, though that would definitely be a factor as well. But it is about what is on the burgers, because these are not hamburgers. They are cheeseburgers. Number one, I hate American cheese. I used to like it as a kid. I don't know why. I can't even picture that now, but I did. I liked it as a kid, but I hate American cheese now. I find it gross. And second, I don't like any cheese on a burger, even if it's cheese I like, such as cheddar. I do not like cheeseburgers. I only like hamburgers. So I like hamburgers very much. To this day, I hate cheeseburgers. So if a burger has cheese on it, I can't eat it. I also don't like lettuce on my burger. I also don't like tomato on my burger. I like tomato. I get the tomato on the side as people like to make fun of me for. Sometimes the tomato on the sides almost become like a meme on Poker Fraud Alert, but uh, I get tomato on the side. I never put it on the burger. My burgers I get are completely plain, and then I put ketchup on them myself. That's how I eat the burgers. And I really can't eat them any other way. If necessary, I can do without the ketchup. I don't like to, but I could. But I really couldn't have anything on them. I don't want lettuce. I don't want pickles. I don't want tomato. I don't want onion. None of that stuff. I don't want cheese. So the problem here is that in order to get all this down, I would have to like what I'm eating. It is a lot harder to eat a lot of what you don't like than something you do like. It's tremendously harder. In fact, 
When I had my psychological issues four years ago, one of the things that happened to me was that my brain was in a, was unable to feel pleasure in any way, that nothing could be pleasurable or make me happy or make me laugh or be enjoyable to me, and that included good food. So when I would eat food at that point, I could tell what tasted good and what didn't, but I would get no pleasure out of good taste. And you know what that did? I didn't eat as much. I ate much less because there was no pleasure in eating good food. There was no pleasure in something tasting good. So it made me eat less, and that combined with the metabolism that just shot up sky high because my brain was all messed up was causing my body to burn off about one to two pounds each day. And not water weight. Like actual fat was burning off one to two pounds each day, which is crazy. But part of that was because I wasn't taking in as many calories. Most of it was my metabolism, but part of that was I was eating much less due to not getting enjoyment out of eating. Whereas when I am normal and do get pleasure out of things, as I do today, then I do get pleasure out of eating, and that makes me be able to eat a lot more because I'm enjoying eating the food that tastes good. So if I'm eating something that I don't like, such as a cheeseburger or a burger with lettuce or a burger with tomato or a burger with anything on it except ketchup, I'm not going to be able to get it down. It's going to be very hard to even get one burger down. So that would kill me right there. I could only do this thing if they made it four plain hamburgers, which they wouldn't because they want it to be a lot of food. They want the cheese there because the cheese is something you have to get down. The cheese is bulk. The cheese is calories. The cheese makes it tougher to finish than if there were no cheese. Same with the tomato, same with the lettuce, same with the bread. So they don't want to eliminate anything because you don't like it. Now, if you just want to order the burger normally and just eat it without any kind of challenge, yeah, you can have whatever you want. But for this challenge, you have to eat it as they make it. So that would kill it for me. But let's put that aside. In fact, let's even say that they were willing to modify this and leave off the cheese, leave off the tomato, leave off the lettuce, and let's say the tomatoes all had to be on the side. So let's say it was four tomatoes on the side plus four double half-pound hamburgers, but no cheese and no lettuce and the loaded fries and the shake. So here I could eat everything and like it. When I say could, I mean in theory. But could I in practice? Could I actually get that amount of food down in 30 minutes? And I believe the answer is a big no. I don't think I could. That's a lot of food, even for me. To have to eat four one-pound hamburgers just by itself would be very, very tough for me in 30 minutes. Because I know from eating big burgers myself, and I usually do order pretty big burgers. Like I, I will get burgers that are about a pound of meat. I will get burgers that are double half pound patties and I can eat them and I won't struggle and I'll finish it. But if someone said, okay, eat this second one now, I go, ah, I don't really feel like that. Now, if I had to, as part of a contest or a challenge, yeah, I could probably force the second one down. But I have severe doubts that I could force a third one down, a fourth one down, plus a big thing of fries, and plus drink a 22-ounce shake and do it all in 30 minutes. I think it would be incredibly hard. So no, I don't think that I could do this in the allotted time, or even with some more time. Even if they gave me an hour, I couldn't do it. Even if they would modify the burgers to where I'd like them, I don't believe I could do it. 
As much as I can eat in one sitting, which is a lot, I don't think I could do it. I also think this is something stupid to attempt because the upside isn't there. So in the best case scenario, you sit down, you order this food, you have to scarf it down, and then what? You finish it and you get the whole thing free in a t-shirt? Okay, so all you've done is potentially make yourself sick and stretch your stomach, which is a real thing, by the way. You really can stretch your stomach from eating too much at once, and then it can take a while to unstretch. Your stretch, your stomach will compact back to what it was before sometimes, but it doesn't happen right away. And then what happens if your stomach is stretched is you're not satiated from the amount of food that you're used to eating. So you really don't want to stretch your stomach because then you're going to start eating more and more and get fat. So you'll probably stretch your stomach here. And then there's other things that can happen. You can really make yourself sick. There can be a number of negative things that occur from this. Now, a lot of people would assume you eat something like this, uh, you're at risk of a heart attack. Eh, not really. That's not really how heart attacks work. It feels like it would cause a heart attack, but it really wouldn't. Because heart attacks happen from a cumulative effect of uh, buildup in your arteries and not from one very fatty or large meal. But could this cause other digestive problems? Yeah, it definitely could. Could this cause issues that would be more than just minor? Yes, it could if you're not used to this amount of food. Like there's a number of things that could happen that would not be good. And there's no upside. It's not like you're doing this on national TV and trying to win $100,000. You're doing this for a freaking t-shirt. So then, okay, you got a t-shirt and says, okay, I, I ate a massive meal at Public House in Luxor. Like, okay, so what? So you did. It's not like people can be proud of you. <laughs> people can go, what's this for? Oh, I, I ate four double cheeseburgers and tons of fries and a shake in half an hour. So are you jealous of me now? <laughs> They're going to say, what? Why would you brag about this? So there's really no upside to this and a big downside. You can't even say you're getting free food because it's not going to be a, a pleasurable eating experience. It's not like I get to go to a steakhouse and order a very nice steak, an expensive cut, and have some very nice high-end sides with it and run up what would normally be a big bill and then... I have some easy challenge to finish and then I get the whole meal free. I mean, here you're doing something unpleasant. So it's not like you're going to say, oh, wow, I really enjoyed that meal. Ha ha ha. I got this for free. I didn't pay the 79 bucks. No, it's something that's very unpleasant. You're going to hate doing it. So there's no reason to do this. It's just one of these things where they put a challenge and idiots say, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to do this because I want to complete the challenge. But why? (laughs) I mean, what's the point? I'd love to know how many have completed this and how many have failed. I'd love to know the completion rate. I bet it's very low. This also used to be $69 not too long ago. They raised it to $79. So there we are, Joe Biden's inflation, even at the public house hamburger eating contest. I won't be trying that, and I'm not going to do any of these other similar eating challenges around Vegas. There's other ones that You have to eat a certain amount of food in a certain amount of time and they'll give you something free, but no thanks. No thanks. You know, I do like eating a lot of food, as you guys know, and I do like getting things for free, as you guys know, but I also like value. And 
there's no value here. What value am I getting? Getting myself sick? Feeling uncomfortable? Scarfing down way more food than I would want to? Getting a t-shirt that is not going to impress anybody? So just because you get something free does not mean that you have gotten a good value. A good value means you're paying less for something that you want that you otherwise would have paid more for, but you got it for cheaper. That's what good value is all about. Take that from me. So you think this is up my alley, but it's actually not. It's actually not. However, I did love the free food I could order at card rooms. I'm so sad that's gone. I'm so sad that I can't just order these massive plates of food at commerce or the bike anymore. Impress all the skinny Asian guys sitting near me and say, what? Who's with you? Who's going to eat this food with you? And I say, nobody. I can eat it myself. And you know what? I could eat double this if I wanted and be telling the truth. I was waiting for one of these guys to bet me. I was waiting for one of these guys to challenge me. That's a challenge I'd take. I'm at the poker table and I order this big spread of food and then they say, you can't eat all this yourself. And I'll say, I'll bet you I can eat double of this. And someone would take me up on it because I'm playing a middle to high stakes game. We could bet something like a thousand bucks. Man, I'd pack that food all in. Because that I can do. But not four double half pound burgers with a big thing of fries and a 22 ounce shake in 30 minutes for no money. Uh Uh-uh, I'm not doing that. Moving on here, you might think the mafia no longer really is involved in the gambling world. They've been pushed out of Vegas. They were very, very present in Vegas in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But after the early 90s, they were pushed out of Vegas. So now you kind of don't associate the mafia with gambling operations, when you hear that there's a bust involving the mafia and gambling, it's, it's actually kind of surprising. You kind of don't really expect this anymore, but that's what has happened, but not in Vegas. The feds have busted a mafia-run gambling operation in New York City. So in federal court in Brooklyn, there were indictments charging nine defendants with racketeering, illegal gambling, money laundering conspiracy, obstruction of justice, and various other offenses. There were two crime families involved. The nine indictments were against the members of the Bonanno organized crime family, as well as the Genovese organized crime family of La Cosa Nostra. U.S. Attorney Peace, I guess that's uh, this guy's name, who was the U.S. attorney in charge of this. U.S. Attorney Peace said, today's arrests from two La Cosa Nostra crime families demonstrate that the mafia continues to pollute our communities with illegal gambling, extortion, and violence while using our financial system in service to their criminal schemes. The defendants tried to hide their criminal activity by operating from behind the cover of a coffee bar, a soccer club, a shoe repair shop. Even more disturbing is the shameful conduct of the detective who betrayed his oath of office and the honest men and women of the Nassau County Police Department when he allegedly aligned himself with criminals. So this actually goes all the way back 10 years. In May 2012 and beyond, the Genovese and Bonanno crime families, and by the way, Bonanno is not Justin Bonomo's family, 
Justin Bonomo, he wouldn't be running something like this. Uh, he'd be running an operation to force everybody to use the proper preferred pronouns. <laughs> but this is the Bonanno family, B-O-N-A-N-N-O. And they ran an operation in Lynbrook, New York, called the Grand Cafe. So that was a fake coffee bar, I guess a real coffee bar that in reality was a gambling operation. And then they also opened a shoe repair place called Sal's Shoe Repair. Come on, Sal's Shoe Repair. (laughs) That sounds like a front. Come on, Sal's Shoe Repair. If someone said there's a gambling front in this town and I walked around and I see Sal's Shoe Repair, I would totally think that's got to be it. And then the Centro Calcio Italiano Club, which was a soccer club. Now, see, that's a good one. I wouldn't expect the soccer club, even an Italian soccer club, would be a front for gambling. See, that one, that one would trick me. And maybe even the Grand Cafe would trick me, but not, not Sal's Shoe Repair. Come on, that's almost like out of a stereotype. The Bonanno crime, fac- crime family also operated... Uh, illegal gambling operations at establishments called the Soccer Club, La Nacional La Soccer Club, and Glendale Sports Club. So I guess they did a lot of this at soccer clubs. In the statement from the government, it said, current members of the five families demonstrate every day that they are not adverse to working together to fulfill your, their illicit schemes using the same tired methods to squeeze money from their victims. Enlisting alleged assistance from a member of law enforcement also proves they're willing to do all they can to hide their illegal behavior. Our active investigations show the mafia refuses to learn from history and accept that at some point they will face justice for their crimes. This case is further proof that organized crime is alive and well in our communities. These violent criminal organizations operated secret underground gambling parlors in local commercial establishments, generating substantial amounts of money in back rooms while families unknowingly shopped and ate mere feet away. These mafia figures were assisted by a sworn member of law enforcement who helped these gambling dens to thrive by offering police raids on competing clubs. The detective involved was Hector Rosario who was a Nassau County Police Department detective. And he was allegedly accepting bribes from the Bonanno family in exchange for offering to raid competing illegal clubs. So I guess it wasn't all cooperation. I guess that uh, some of these illegal gambling operations were run by either other mafia families or just people unrelated to the mafia. And allegedly this Hector Rosario, a detective with the police department, said, hey, give me money and I not only will leave your club alone, but I'm going to bust all the competition where they all have to come to you. That's being alleged. So Hector Rosario was indicted as well. And Carmela Polito, who is an acting camp, an alleged acting captain in the Genovese crime family, is also charged with operating an illegal online gambling scheme in which people were placing sports bets online. So I guess they had an online portion to this too. I'm guessing it was one of these things where they use some sort of service that you can be a member of for pretty cheap to run your own bookmaking operation and then just you handle all the money. 
And apparently someone lost thousands of dollars betting with Polito and didn't pay. And that's never a good idea with the mob. And so predictably, Polito was threatening him, according to the indictment. In October 2019, uh, allegedly Polito called someone who owed this money and said that he's going to break his face. And then in another message that he had given to somebody else to tell this guy who owed the money, tell him I'm going to put him under the fucking bridge. So they're also charging him for these threats that he was making to a guy who was betting with him that didn't pay his debts. I don't believe anything happened to this guy, but it's not very smart to bet with the mafia if you're not going to settle up with them. I'll tell you that. If you're if you're going to enter into an operation that is run by the mafia, placing sports bets through them, and you settle up the figure at the end of the week or whenever, if you can't afford what you're betting, you better not bet it, no matter how degenerate you are, because those aren't good people to stiff. It's not going to be like stiffing a poker player who at worst is going to go on Twitter and call you out. Uh, you, you don't want to mess with the mafia even in the 2020s. It's not quite as bad as messing with the mafia in the 1980s, but it's still not something you want to mess with. But I guess fortunately for that guy, nothing happened to him, even though this was in late 2019, but it is possible that he paid off his debts and that's why nothing happened to him. I don't know if poker rooms were part of these gambling operations. Remember, poker rooms don't make as much money as casino games do. Poker rooms are usually there because the customers want them and the casinos typically hope that the poker players then will shoot off money in the casino, which often does happen. And when there is no casino attached to it, when it's just a poker room, that's really not done out of choice. It's out of necessity because nothing else is allowed in many venues. And when underground rooms exist, why would someone run an underground poker room rather than an underground full gambling operation? Well, because it's considered less of a crime and the police and feds care less about that. So if you're going to run any kind of illegal gambling operation, the least serious in the eyes of the law, both in uh, enforcement and uh, I believe maybe even in charging, would be running a poker room and collecting rake. And that I think that's going to get you in much less hot water than running games where the people are directly competing with the casino, such as table games or dice games or slot machines or even uh, sports betting. So that's why some of these underground poker operations exist, is that it's seen as less of a risk for criminal prosecution. But I don't know if these underground casinos, these gambling operations, if they had poker or if it had nothing to do with poker. That's not really stated here. But it did occur in New York. Looks like it actually wasn't New York City. Looks like it was just in New York. I guess some of it was New York City. Some of it was New York City and some of it was New York New York City. But I guess there's now fewer gambling operations in that area. The Nevada Gaming Commission has put somebody in their black book and it is a first, not for somebody being in the black book, which there's a number of people and it's operated for several decades, 
But the reason the person was put in the black book is a very first. And then there's an update to the story as well that was actually given to me by Brandon. But unfortunately, he's not here right now. I was hoping he'd be here for this uh, segment, but he is not. So here's what happened. A well-known Las Vegas pimp is now in the Nevada Gaming Control Board's Black Book, which is a list of people automatically banned from every casino in the state, regardless of how the casinos themselves feel about it. So even if they want to let him in, the casinos are not allowed to. It is very hard to get into the Black Book. Even people caught cheating usually don't end up in the Black Book. Usually people who just create trouble at the casino don't end up in the black book. It is very hard to get into the black book. It really is supposed to be for the worst of the worst of those that they feel just absolutely should never set foot in casinos. And it almost always has to do with some form of casino cheating or connections to organized crime. You can actually see who is in the black book by going to the Nevada Gaming Control Board's website and going to the excluded persons list. And the list is a bit old. It's updated three years ago. So this guy I'm talking about now is not posted there. But there really are not that many people on the list. There's 36 people shown on this list, almost all men. I see looks like one woman. The rest are men. But it's almost always uh, somebody either organized crime connections or they've been caught cheating. And it's a serious enough case of cheating to where they're considered to be a danger to the operations of these casinos. So that's why there's only 36 people. Of all the different things that happen in casinos, which result in arrests and bans and everything else, still there were only 36 people in this black book up until now. And the only way you get out of the black book usually is if you die. You can petition for them to change their mind, but usually it doesn't happen. Usually once you're in the black book, you stay in the black book until you're dead and then they take you out. The guy who was put in the black book that I was going to talk about, his name is Kendrick Larante Weatherspoon, and he is a reputed pimp, and he had a history of violence against women and sex trafficking, and he's been thrown out of five or more Las Vegas casinos for his activities, and he's been arrested a number of times. He's faced 30 cases in Las Vegas Justice Court in the past 22 years for drug dealing, impaired driving, burglary, domestic battery, sex trafficking, battery by strangulation, sex assault, kidnapping, and accepting the proceeds of prostitution. Sounds like a, a lovely gentleman. So he was added to the Black Book, and he is the first person who has been put in the Black Book for sex trafficking, which is the reason they put him in there. Because apparently he kept showing up to Las Vegas casinos as a pimp and uh, bringing prostitutes in there with him. And because he kept repeatedly doing this, he was declared by the Nevada legislature, by the NGC, he was 
determined a nuisance and banned from all Nevada casinos, so he can't continue doing this. So this is kind of like a message that they are sending to all sex traffickers and pimps out there, that not only will they be arrested if caught, but that if they are believed to repeatedly be bringing their hookers over to casinos and trying to do business at casinos, that they're just going to get banned from all casinos in the state. Jason Frierson, who's the new uh, U.S. attorney, announced, we have conferences and conventions. We have the Super Bowl coming. I think there will be opportunities for us to make it clear that Nevada is not a safe haven for sex traffickers. So he's a new uh, U.S. attorney for Nevada. And he said, Las Vegas is one of the worst destinations in the U.S. for sex trafficking. It has an estimated 5,600 victims across Nevada each year. And pimps are all over the casinos because that is often where the Johns are found. So basically, these pimps bring the girls there and instruct them to find Johns at the casinos. And that's why you see all these girls approaching you if you're a guy walking alone late at night in the casino. And then they're right there when the whole thing's over and they take their cut from the girls. The Black Book itself was created in 1960 and it was created so tourists coming to Vegas would not fear the fact that it was thought to be, and actually was, mafia run. So this Black Book wasn't really there so much to keep cheaters out of the casinos. That's kind of what it evolved into. But it targeted individuals with, quote, a notorious or unsavory reputation that would have adversely affect public confidence and trust that the gaming industry is free from criminal or corrupt developments. But as I said, it's, it's become a mixture of keeping cheaters and also mob figures out of the casinos. But since the mob influence has uh, basically disappeared from Nevada in the last almost 30 years, that's become much less of a priority. At the Nevada Gaming Control hearing, the commissioners debated back and forth whether Weatherspoon should be in the Black Book because there are a number of others like him, and there were also worse criminals that are in Nevada that are free to enter the casino once they're no longer incarcerated. So why just single him out? But they decided that they're going to make an example out of him because he is a well-known pimp in the area that he keeps going to casinos and he's been in trouble so many times for so many different things that they have put him in the book. And I think it's also sending a signal out to all other pimps that this is going to happen to them if they keep doing business at a casinos. What happens if he enters a casino anyway? Well, it's an automatic gross misdemeanor and incarceration. The last time somebody was added to the Black Book was in 2018 when a cheating ring was discovered at Bellagio. So again, it's not along the lines of what was originally intended, where people were supposed to feel better that Nevada was taking the organized crime thing seriously. It's mainly aimed at cheaters now, but as you see, this guy was put in for pimping. Now here's the second thing. Here's the second uh, part of the story that doesn't involve this Kendrick Weatherspoon. This is this uh, South African guy 
he already was in the Black Book. His name is uh, Tazia McDonald Musa. And he went into Paris, Las Vegas, and because there aren't that many people in the Black Book, the guards, the security guards there are told to memorize the faces of those who are in the Black Book so they know they can get rid of them. Uh, they probably also have facial recognition software running to catch them as well. But supposedly in this case, the guards recognized him right away and they tried to stop him, say, hey, stop, we want to talk to you. And then he, he took off because he knew why. So then it was reported to police and an officer of Las Vegas Metro PD saw him crossing a street near Paris and they ran after him and right by the Bellagio Fountains, they caught up to him and he was stopped and he was booked for unlawful entry by a person who has been placed on the list of excluded persons. So this is a separate person from this other guy who was just added for being a pimp. Now, why was Musa in the Black Book? He was in the Black Book since 2015. He was previously convicted seven times and had been arrested 19 other times for grand larceny and attempted grand larceny at casinos. So this guy was a thief. So he was not a pimp. And he was not an organized crime figure. He was just a thief. And he just kept going back to the casinos over and over and over between 2006 and 2013 and stealing. And they convicted him seven times of stealing. And 19 other times they arrested him and did not convict him for whatever reason. So 26 arrests total in seven years for stealing from casinos. So when they made the case to ban him, they said that he's a person whose presence in licensed gaming establishments would pose a threat to the interests of the state or to licensed gaming or both. And they said that Musa seems incapable of staying out of trouble in Nevada casinos, which is true. So this was a guy who just was black booked because he just went over and over and over and just kept stealing. Must be a kleptomaniac or something and could not stop. 26 times in seven years. But this is the first time a sex trafficker is in there. Everybody else that's in there either cheated, stole, or was involved in organized crime. I had thought initially here that these were the same person. Because both stories came out in a short time. So it sounded like this Kendrick Laurente Weatherspoon was put in the book and then was caught going to Paris a short time later. But that wasn't true. It's two different people. It's just coincidentally, someone just added to the Black Book was days before someone in the Black Book from 2015 tried to enter the Paris and was caught. So the good news for you is you probably won't end up in the Black Book even if you get yourself in trouble at casinos. So if you're an advantage player, you're not likely to end up in the Black Book. If you are someone who smokes pot on premises when you're not supposed to, you're not going to end up in the black book. If you do other drugs on premises that you're not supposed to, you're not going to end up in the black book. If you get drunk and belligerent and get thrown out and get banned, you're not going to be in the black book. Even if you get in fights over there and get arrested, you're not going to be in the black book. In fact, there's been people who've committed pretty violent crimes involving uh, murder or assault with a deadly weapon, things like that, and they're still not in the black book. They are banned from the casinos and they were probably criminally charged and possibly convicted but they're not in the black book and that's why they were debating do we put this Kendrick Weatherspoon in the black book when he has not actually 
done anything to the casinos directly. He hasn't cheated, he hasn't stolen, and he's not an organized crime figure. So even though the guy sounds like a complete piece of shit, is the pimping and his history enough to put him in that black book among only 36 other people? And the answer was yes. So he's number 37. I have to imagine they're going to start doing this to other pimps. I guess they're getting tired of it. I had wondered why they're not clamping down on this more than they are, because it's not hard to catch. It's not hard to catch at all, because they approach me all the time. And I'm not trying to get approached, believe me. So all it would take would be the police putting undercover detectives in plain clothes and having these detectives be the right age and have the right look to be approached. Basically just a regular uh, middle-aged white guy and have the detectives just kind of walk around the casino and wait to get approached and then wait for the offer to be made and then arrest the girls. And if there was a major effort to keep doing this, then they would stop this. But there isn't. I don't ever see any of these girls getting in trouble. I'm not saying it never happens. These girls eventually get ejected. But it takes a long time. And they're very blatant about it. They come right up to you. I even had one touching my chest. (laughs) Like I tried to ignore her and she walks directly over to me and kind of blocks me and, and touches my chest. And this is with me showing no interest. So it would not be hard at all to put undercover police officers there to let these girls approach and then pretend like they might be interested, let the girls make their offer and bust them. And it's not that I want to see hookers busted, but the ones that harass the tourists, I think, should be busted. The ones that the tourists have to call and then express an interest in before seeing, I don't care so much if those are not arrested, because as long as there's no scamming involved... And as long as there's nothing else that rides along with it that's bad, such as uh, sex trafficking or scamming or pimps showing up and intimidating people into uh, giving more money than they agreed to. Like there's all these types of things that have been happening. So it's not necessarily a victimless crime, but if it really is limited to exactly what the transaction is supposed to be, which is just sex for money and nothing else along with it, and the girl is an adult who is there because she wants to be there and not because she's being forced to be there. Like if all that is true, then if, if there's no arrest there, it's not a big deal. But the ones that walk up to you and hassle you at the casino just because you're a middle-aged dude walking around, like that shouldn't happen. It's just a nuisance. It makes it unpleasant. It was kind of entertaining the first few times this happened, but I'm just so used to it now. It's just something I just... I see these girls and I see the way they look at me and I see them trying to get my attention. And my first thought is, oh, not again. (sighs) Maybe if I ignore them, they won't continue talking. Like I, I keep thinking, I just want to get away from them. I keep thinking, I really hope they just leave me alone if I keep walking. So it's not just like they're making eye contact and hoping I come over there. They've gotten very brazen. And at major strip properties, it happens at Paris, it happens at Bally's, it happens at Caesars, it happens at Bellagio. I remember at Caesars, uh, I've had a number of times, uh, I've had ones like call over to me all the way from the bar. Hey, come over here. Hey, what's up? Hey, what's going on? Come over here. And, and then I ignore them. And, oh, what's wrong? You don't like me? Then I've had ones that 
places where I'm picking up food, which also have a bar in it, so I have to do it through the bar, and then I want to waiting for the food to come to me. They come sit down next to me and try to strike up a conversation, and it's so obvious what's going on. And I'd really prefer just to be left alone and not bothered with this. And I'm sure other guys who are in this spot would think the same thing, and other guys who are in this spot who don't know what it is and think these girls are just interested in them, it's even more frustrating for them when they find out the truth, and sometimes very awkward. So they really should just clamp down on this and stop it. So maybe this is part of that effort. Well, that's the end of our main topics here. I think this is all we're going to do here, but let's see what we got text-wise because I haven't read any texts on the air and I've gotten a number of them. So thank you guys for texting me. From the 503 area code, hope all is well, sir. That was Goodfellow who called last week. Well, thank you, Goodfellow. I appreciate that. Everything's fine. Hope is all well with you. From the 310, Vanessa Russo way before Selbst. Not exactly sure what that's referring to. It's something about the Selbst story that I talked about, but Vanessa Russo did berate people for sure, but she was never quite as bad as Vanessa Selbst. I, I watched Vanessa Russo do it, so both Vanessas there had an issue. In fact, uh, I don't know what it is with these Vanessas in poker. They seem to be good at poker, but flawed human beings. <laughs> That's what I'm seeing with each of them. They're all different from one another, though Vanessa Russo and Vanessa Selbst are also both lesbians. As far as I know, Vanessa Cade is straight. Vanessa Russo is kind of just weird. She's kind of just a weirdo. She, I, like, I, I don't even know like, what her deal is. She's just very odd. Vanessa Selbst is less odd and more just angry, more just aggressive, not just in her poker play. She's like not a nice person. She's kind of like a mean person. Vanessa Russo is kind of weird. Vanessa Cade is just drama. <laughs> I don't know what it is with all these Vanessas. I, I, I'd like to find a Vanessa in poker that I think highly of, but uh, I don't know. They keep doing things that make that tough. Mm, we have some drama here about the poker father free roll. There's some allegations that at the final table, I hope this isn't true, but there's some allegations that at the final table, there was chip dumping. Uh-oh. We may have to look into this. Someone's claiming that a player, I'm not going to say who it was, is it's a claim that a player who had to leave just dumped his chips who ended up winning. Hmm. Now, the two players involved are not known to be friends, so I don't think it was like two players colluding. I don't think it was two guys who just wanted to cooperate to win. I mean, it's only 25 bucks for the top prize. But this guy is basically alleging that someone at this final table dumped to somebody else because he had to go and just basically picked someone to do it to. But it's also possible that he just shoved it in because he had to leave and just it happened to be against the guy who ended up winning. Like, if you do have to leave and you don't want to just blind off, maybe you just go all in with a seven-deuce officer or you're dealt to, whatever you're dealt, and if somebody calls you, then you end up winning. So I, I, I'll have to get more details about this one. Someone texted me, would you like my friend who's a server at Encore to call in and discuss the various tipping situations she's been part of. Yes, I would. 
but it may have to be next show because I'm about to shut this off. We have an American, not in Paris, but in London. We have an American in London who said he's enjoying my show during daylight in London, which he's not used to. He's not used to enjoying my show in daylight unless we're just finishing and I've had a very long show. Right now where I presently sit in the Los Angeles area, it is a little bit short of 3.30 in the morning, so it is not light outside. And from Vegetera, who I believe is in Sweden, he said, or asked me, I guess, when are you getting a new dog? Hmm, that is a good question. I do not have a new dog yet. It's been over a year since my dog passed away at the age of 16 and a half. I did not have this dog for 16 and a half years, though. I got this dog when he was close to 11. And I had him till 16 and a half. I didn't expect to have him till 16 and a half because that breed, at least the males in that breed, usually die before the age of 13. But he lived a very long time. And I have not gotten another dog since. I actually was going through some motions in 2020. Not 2020. Last last year, not 2020. He was still alive in 2020. But I was going through some motions in uh, 2021 shortly after the dog died to get another dog. And what I was finding is because of all the stimulus money people got and because people had been spending a lot of time at home because of COVID, there was a very high demand for dogs. And I decided not to go forward with it. And you may ask, well, why don't you go get dogs from a shelter? And I actually did. I wasn't just looking at breeders. I was strongly considering getting a dog from a shelter. But believe it or not, these shelter dogs were getting snapped up. Any decent dog from the shelter was just getting snapped up. So it didn't have to be a purebred dog. I just wanted a a dog that was nice and easygoing and not too wild and uh, easy to take care of. And as I had certain criteria, I also didn't want the dog to be way too big or way too small. I wanted kind of more of a medium-sized dog, but every decent dog at the shelter was just getting snapped up real fast. And it just wasn't working out. So I, I kind of backed away from it for a while, but maybe I'll look again soon. Believe it or not, the last time I had a dog that was not old was in the mid-1990s. Every dog I have had since the mid-1990s, which is only two dogs, but still, has been old. So I haven't had the experience of a young dog in a very long time. It's kind of weird. Because I got this last dog old, and then my dog before that just got old, starting from the mid-90s, and lived through 2001. But yeah, I might get a new dog. I mean, there's upsides and downsides to having a dog. I like dogs, and I would like sitting with a dog and petting the dog and having the dog sit with me and having the dog uh, be happy to see me and play with the dog. And there's a lot of upsides to the dog. The downsides is that, number one, when you travel, you have to find something to do with the dog. And I don't like kennels. I think kennels are kind of cruel. Most of them, the, the dogs are very miserable. I just really don't like kennels. So you, 
ideally you want to be able to give the dog to somebody else or let somebody else come over who you really trust and, and stay in your house with the dog. You can take the dog with you, but I don't really like doing that. And sometimes it's just really not possible. So there's the vacation issue. And then there's also just you have to walk the dog at various times of the day. So it becomes a problem. You're gone all day. What happens? Now, yeah, you can have the dog outdoors, but some dogs don't really enjoy being outdoors like that, or uh, they want to come in and they keep barking and disturb the neighbors. So there's burdens with this. I, I also, with his last dog, I'd be playing online poker. and I, the, the dog has to be walked, so I got to leave the game. Things like that. Just simple things like that were sometimes it was a pain. So there, there's times it's kind of a relief not to have the responsibility of a dog. And then, of course, there's the expense. There's vet bills that can really add up, especially as the dog gets older. I, I'll, I'll give this last dog credit. He just uh, didn't rack up any kind of major vet bills because he just never got any kind of really major illness that or, or condition that needed a lot of work from the vet. This dog basically just got old and died. And there wasn't much that could be done about it, obviously. You know, time passes and the dog gets old and that's it. But sometimes you're going to have major vet bills. As I know Calwatt knows. Calwatt, uh, you know, he's discussed on here. He has a dog that's actually quite old. And uh, he's had to pay a lot to the vet. And he really loves that dog and wanted to pay to keep it alive as long as possible. But, you know, these can really add up with old dogs. The vet, the vets really make a fortune off of owners of old animals. They make much less from owners who have young or middle-aged animals. Kind of like humans, that the healthcare expenses go way, way up with age. It's expected that when you're young, you're going to spend relatively little on healthcare, and when you get old, you're going to spend a lot, even if it's not your own money. But the bills you rack up will mostly be when you're old. So you'll start spending more in middle age, and then when you get old, it goes up, and then when you get really old, it goes way up because really old people have all kinds of problems. The same with dogs. Dogs have one thing in common with humans health-wise. Even though uh, dogs and humans have some emotional similarities, which is why people have dogs as pets, there's actually similarities in the way your brain works emotionally with dogs. That's why there's like a natural connection between humans and dogs. Other than that, health-wise, you don't have a lot in common with dogs. You actually have way more in common with rodents, would you believe? That's why they do laboratory testing on rats, because rats have a lot more in common with human beings health-wise than dogs do, and you wouldn't picture that. But where dogs and humans have something very much in common is cancer. The way cancer presents in humans and in dogs is very similar, where it really is mostly an older age thing. It can happen in young age, but uh, for the most part, it doesn't really happen much until you start getting old, and then the chance of getting cancer goes way, way up, and a lot of people end up dying of it. And same with dogs. A lot of dogs end up dying of cancer that begins at an old age. 
So they've actually been studying dogs somewhat with the theory that if they can prevent cancer in dogs or cure cancer in dogs, then maybe they can do it to humans too because they have a lot in common in that way. But other than that, you don't have that much in common. So, for example, if you have a cold, you can give it to a rodent. Like if you have a hamster, a hamster could catch your cold. A dog cannot. A dog can have a cold, but a dog's cold can only be transmitted to other dogs. If your dog has a cold and the virus gets in you, then that virus will die. The dog virus, the dog cold virus cannot survive in a human body and vice versa. If the dog gets your virus, your cold virus, it will die in the dog's body and not get the dog sick. Another big difference, you know how your dog can lick stuff off the floor and not get sick? That is because there's actually something in the dog saliva. There's uh, enzymes in the dog saliva that neutralizes the bacteria that's on the floor. So that's why the dogs can uh, lick things that are full of bacteria and not get sick. Whereas if you were to try to lick food off the floor like the dog does, you would probably get very sick eventually. So that's another huge difference. That's That's how your dog can get away with doing that. The last dog I had was always hungry. He just loved, loved, loved to eat. And for that reason, there was never any food scraps on the floor. Anything would fall on the floor, he would find. Not always right away, but you would never see any crumbs on the floor or any scraps on the floor. Anything that fell on the floor, then within a short time, he would get to it and eat it. There was only one exception. It was lettuce. He did not like lettuce. I think he saw lettuce as like a leaf, so he didn't think that was food. So he did not eat lettuce. It's funny. You put lettuce in front of him, he would uh, sniff it and walk away. But he would eat any vegetable except for lettuce or something lettuce-like. Anything that's like leafy, he didn't want to eat. But like if you had green beans and dropped it on the floor, he'll eat the green beans. He'll eat the carrots. He'll eat basically anything that isn't leafy. So I'm getting all over the place here. Just kind of talking at the end of the show here. It has been eight days since the last show. And the show before that was more than eight days. We haven't quite been sticking to a week for the most part. Actually, no, that's not true. I think the show before that was seven days. But I think the one before that was like 10 days. And I I was on a trip. I was on that trip to Vancouver Island in the middle of that, you know, between uh, late July, early August. So that was some other reason for the delay. I would like this show to end back up on Friday. So maybe we're just going to keep drifting towards Friday. I guess I could just make it eight days in between shows instead of seven, and then we'll eventually land back on Friday. But I know what's going to happen. Then one Friday, I won't be able to do it, and we'll be back to Saturday again, and we'll have the same problem all over again. So I don't know. So just check the Twitter, twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert for info about our next show. We have a number of free roll donations that we're still going to get to, so... Don't worry about that. If you've donated to the free roll, I I have it noted. It's publicly noted, not just in my private notes. So I'm not going to pull an alleged 
Espen Jorstad on you. Though I think Espen's totally innocent. But what he's alleged to have done, have just uh, agreed to something and then have no notes of it. That's not what's happening here. I publicly note in a thread on the top of the Flying Stupidity Forum that's pinned to the top of all the donations we get, and then I note as we use them. So this way you can see where all the money's going, including anything you donate. So we still have that money left. And I only used $50 this week. But we'll use it. We'll get to it. So I thank everybody who donated to the free roll. And if you'd like to donate, there's many ways I can accept the money. Just let me know. And I'll add it to the pool. And it's up to you. Like, if you don't want me holding it back and just adding it to the present week, I can do that. It's your money. You can choose. But if you don't tell me, if you don't say, I want it to be used this way or on this date, then I'll just use it how I want. I will use it. I'll use it in some kind of poker fraud alert uh, free roll for the radio, but it just won't be necessarily on a date right away after you give it to me. But it gets used pretty fast. So I thank everybody who donates to the free roll. It's a nice little feature we have here. And I don't know when I'll get this in the archives. Sometime today. Well, I thank you for listening. That's it. I'm sure we'll have more drama to talk about next week. You know, it always presents itself. There's always stuff to talk about. It Every week, I think we're not going to have something. We end up with a bunch of topics because you're a lot of dramatic people in poker. You really are. And that's good for me. Shalom! <laughs>